It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy too. He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show To get your ears on right, buckle in real tight He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way Welcome to the mop up for what is it? December 10th. 2020. I'm David Feldman. We have a fantastic show coming up for you today. A little later on, the the amazing First Lady of the United States, Melania Trump, will be stopping by. And I think Rudy Giuliani will be stopping by. And Jim Earl is coming up in just a second. I want to tell you about an important pay-per-view event that we are doing this Saturday night. Every Saturday night, we do a pay-per-view. We're trying to do a pay-per-view event every Saturday night. Listeners, you know, with the vaccine rollouts, there's hope on the horizon. But our pandemic isn't over yet. All your lives have been turned upside down. So this Saturday at 930, we're hosting our six, our sixth COVID town squares to benefit our very own Henry Huckamacki. All the proceeds go towards Henry's research and education and you know he should be in berlin right now or germany working on ebola but because he can't leave the country due to donald trump being our president germany's loss is america's gain but it costs money to keep henry huckamacki in america that's why we're doing our sixth covid town square saturday night we've put together another immunology extravaganza to entertain and inform you with all the latest on the science behind COVID. So you're going to learn about vaccines, all the vaccines that are coming your way. I just want to remind you that we're in this together. Henry's given so much to us on this show, and it's our turn to give back to him. I know times are tough, so 
we're adding this option to pay what you want. We want to raise as much money as we possibly can and invite you to contribute as much as you can. This is about solidarity, and it's solidarity with our friend and hero, Henry Huckamacki. So even if you can't make it to the show, please share the information with as many people as possible. To get your tickets, go to davidfeldmanshow.com right now. Click on the pay-per-view tab. It'll take you directly to Eventbrite, and you can buy a ticket uh, for our COVID Town Squares number six. It'll be fun. It'll be educational and uh, surprising. Here are the tiers. Our pay for what you want, pay what you want here, gives you access to the show, plus a limited edition COVID Town Squares postcard. The $30 tier is our super generous tier, and you'll get a postcard plus a funny credit at the end of the show. Frankie C makes these, and and they're hysterical, and Benji, one of our writers, comes up with the uh, title. I, I believe I got Donkey Fluffer for one. And then we put the credits up on YouTube. They're great to have in, you know, for you can frame them. You can get a screenshot of the credits and they're great to have. I was on Curb Your Enthusiasm, Curb Your Enthusiasm, and my credit was the angry Jew. That's, that was my and I have a, a screenshot of that. I'm pouring some water here and I have a screenshot of David Feldman as the angry Jew, and it's on my office wall. Well, it was, but then uh, I got kicked out of my house, and now it's in storage. But one day, if uh, Jim Earl and I ever empty out our storage space, I'll have my screenshot. So that's the $30 tier. You, you get a postcard, a limited edition postcard, plus a funny credit at the end of the show, which will live in eternity on YouTube and uh, for $50, you get the Sausage Fest tier, which is turning out to be kind of popular. The Sausage Fest tier is where you get the postcard and the credit, and you get to attend our next rehearsal. You, you, you get to see not only how the sausage is made, you also get to see how it's eaten, digested, excreted, and how the fecal plumes are neutralized. And... We did a rehearsal yesterday and a couple people showed up and, and got to enjoy our sausage fest. They saw how the sausage is made. Our top ticket tier is Hank's Shank. You'll get the limited edition postcard, the credit at the end of the show, which will live forever. The sausage party plus a handcrafted finished style knife made by none other than Henry Huckamacki himself. Besides being an Ebola slayer and an immunobiologist, Henry also makes these beautiful knives that can take care of a noisy neighbor in a flash. Or you can, you know, cut. I don't know what you cut with a knife. I live in New York City. I've never cut anything. Once again, visit DavidFeldmanShow.com. Click the pay-per-view menu to purchase your tickets for COVID Town Squares number six this Saturday night, December 12th at 9.30 p.m. Eastern. Let's make this fundraiser a success. Please come, invite your friends, invite enemies, and make sure to spread the ticket information far and wide. 
let's make this show be more viral than COVID-19, shall we? Let's pay what you want and everybody gets a ticket. I just want to make sure that Rudy Giuliani got his invitation to the show. And I am pleased right now to go to a winter wonderland where the first lady of the United States, Melania Trump, is standing by. Please welcome Melania Trump. Davey. Oh, hello, Melania. It's so good to see you. You look fantastic, as always. Thank you. And how are you feeling? Well, I am fine, David. It, it sounds like you got a bit of a... It sounds like you got a bit of a cough there. I am fine. Mm-hmm. That's good to do that because you, you really don't want it to get into your lungs. So just cough it out. We don't want you getting pneumonia. Thank you. Yeah. We are all in this together. Yeah. Yes. And uh, First Lady, uh, how, how's Christmas? Are you having fun? Of course, David. Is your Uncle Slobodan around? My uncle Slobodan is preparing for the next children's fire at the hospital of he, children. Oh, oh, the children's. He's going to do the children's fire. Again yes. For yeah, that's 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 so wonderful. You do that every Christmas, your uncle Slobodan. Every Christmas we gather and we have a heartwarming burning ceremony of tiki torch and we light the children's hospital on fire. Right. Right. And it's, stand around the fire and sing Christmas carols. Christmas carols. Yeah. Yes. And uh, is this going to be your last Christmas at the White House? Do we know yet? I am not going anywhere. Okay. So I understand, if memory serves, you are a tear. You, you decided to participate in Diabetic Fury. And one of the tiers at Diabetic Fury to raise money for diabetes awareness was the first, yes. la- the first lady of the United States would give a shout out to the people. Shout out. A, a shout out to the, the people who contributed to that tier. So shall we start? Yes. Yes. Let us begin. Okay. So this, this is. Hold on. Let me clear my throat before I begin. Okay. Okay, I'm better now. Yes. Okay, so I believe this goes to Dean Cully. Is that is that who, who we're doing it to? Giving it to? I believe so. One moment. Let me look at my notes. Your nose? Dean Cully. Yeah, Dean Cully. Dean Cully. No, no, Dean Cully. He's, he's a Bean good man. Dean Cully. Okay. Is that a Jewish name? I, I, I don't I don't know what a Jewish name means. Well, with a name like Bean Curry, I bet his wife calls him FedEx during hop time. <laughs> okay. All right. Be, be Happy not. bullshit hunk, Hanukula. 
with the candles and all the, oh, poor me, I'm so depressed, wandering the deserts all over the place already. Okay? All right. I, I don't think that's appropriate. Today's is the first night of Hanukkah. I don't know if Dean celebrates it. And, and I don't think Hanukkah has anything to do with wandering around the desert. Hanukkah. It's Hanukkah. Hanukkah. Uh, okay. Anyways, yeah. Bean Kari, stay out of Melania's brand new White House tennis pavilion unless you want Barton to shave the fuzz off your Wilsons. <laughs> Bart, your son Barton. My son Barton. Okay. All right. Your Wilsons, you mean your t- the, his balls? Wilsons, yes. His Speaking balls. of Wilsons. Ivanka, Princess Ivanka, is such a big slut. She once had orgasm on the Space Mountain ride. (laughs) That's that's your stepdaughter-in-law. Princess Ivanka. Ooh, be nice. You're the first lady. Come on. Yes, enough. Enough already with the first lady bullshit. Melania wants to make graceful exit from White House, like in Melania's short film, Graceful Exit, where Melania puts a swan up her ass. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I remember that. I love that. Graceful exit because it is swan up Melania's poppin' fresh door tunnel. Anyway, it's been great, Kari, but Melania's bored. Next shout out, please. Right. Thank you, Dean Cully, for donating to Diabetic Fury. And uh, yes, this uh, this shout out. Shout out. Sh- shout out. Shout out. Shout out goes to Frank Pow. That's Frank Pow. Hello, Crank Paul. <sighs> Frank Pow. Crank Paul. Yeah. That is what I said. It's Frank. Crank it, 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 it's Paul. Frank Pow. Crank Paul. And it's a pa- it's a pow. Frank Pow. Shout out, Crank Paul. Hello. And this is Melania, first first lady shout out for Crank Pool, <sighs> who sounds like man who used to spend most of his nights sucking down tater skins at Hooters. <laughs> That's what the man gave to Diabetic Fury. He he opened up his wallet and his heart. Please, he's a good man, Frank Pow. Well, Crank Pool, here is your Melania COVID tip. And shout out. <laughs> Do not get vaccine. It only encourages sluttish behavior. Mm. Like stepdaughter Princess Ivanka, oh, who once had orgasm on wild ride of Mr. Toad at, at Walt Disneyland. <laughs> it's, this is, she is the first daughter. That's what Princess she calls. She's Ivanka. the first daughter. Princess Ivanka is so dumb. How dumb is she? She thinks Roe v. Wade was World Cup soccer game. <laughs> this is, be nice. These are people, yes. we're, we're just, the, the entire purpose. I am nice. Yeah, I know you're nice. But anyway. The, yeah, the purpose, let, let's, this, oh, uh, yep, yes, let, sorry. Let, let, let's, please. 
this is to raise money for diabetes awareness. Don't use this as a platform to 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 attack your your step daughter, our for America's first daughter. Okay. But it sets Ivanka up. All right. Cough it out. Cough it out. <coughs> there you go. It's, uh, you, anyway. You, you have, a, you have a, a lingering cough. Yes, I do. You have a lingering cough. Fingering cough. Yes, a lingering cough. How is your husband? Tonel? Donald. Tonel. Yeah, how is he? How is he feeling? He looked pretty Tonel good. Tonel is, is fine. He is man of steel. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's Donald. Tonel. Duh. That is what I say, David. Duh. Duh. Uh. Uh. Mm. Ald. Ald. Donald. Tonel. Go ahead. Do the next one, please. Anyway, Melania urged all Be Best Americans to stay home during COVID-999. <laughs> it's not COVID. COVID-19. That is what I said. Lakewood 56745. No, that, that's an old ex- that's an old telephone exchange name for New Jersey. It's COVID-19. Murray Hill 59975. That's Lucy and Ricky Ricardo's phone number. What the fuck? Who the fuck cares already? Shut the fuck up already. The uh. important thing, Craig Paul, is to always be best. Right. And do not forget to wear protective claw face coverings while taunting local police with your cryptic notes. Next shout out, please. (sighs) Melania is getting so sick of this shit. All this stress is making me infertile. All right. All right. Thank you. Who was that a a shout out to? That was Frank. Frank Paul. Frank Frank Powell. Okay. Uh, This next shout out goes to Atlantis Johnson. He's a friend of the show. Thank you, Atlantis Johnson. Here's your Melania shout out. Hello. Shout out. Hello, gigantic Johnson. (laughs) It's not gigantic. It's Atlantis Johnson. You know, who gives a fuck about this Christmas stuff and decorations? Um, Give me a fucking break already. Atlantic Johnsons. I'm serious. Who gives a fuck about the the taters for tots Christmas uh, presents bullshit already? uh, Please. How many taters do these stupid brats need? Uh, First lady, just thank him for... Can't you just thank him? Please be thankful you're not small Chinese orphan making iPhones for fat husband who has feet like duck fossils <laughs> and morning breath that makes Somali warlords run away. <laughs> oh, thank Daddy, you. Did you know Tonald sleep? Tonald keeps making unprotected phone calls. No, I didn't. Did he? Does he? Yes. Now his computer worms are attacking his privates. <laughs> Thank you very much. 
First Lady Melania Trump. Thank you. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. I, 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 I apologize. I, I, I'm sure you're used to that. Yes. <laughs> Gigantic Johnson, stop hating on my toenail tramp. He is father of modern urinalysis as well as democracy. And he would have been hero in war if not for the 38 staples in his stomach. <laughs> He has a moisture leaking problem. He makes his own gravy. <laughs> Shut up, Atlantic Johnsons. Manania finished with be best shout outs now to you nitrous sucking degenerates. Be best. Don't get sick. It is waste of time. And walk it off already. And remember, we are all in this together. So Heil Hitler and Happy Nukula. <laughs> Thank you, First Lady Milan. Happy Hanukula. Hanukkah. D- David Fartman. It- it's David Feldman. David Fartman. Yeah. It's Happy da- Hanukula. Okay. Thank you, First Lady Milan. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I Good na- night, everyone. Thank you. All right, all right, stop. With, oh, thank you, First Lady. Let us now go. That was uh, First Lady uh, Melania Trump. Thank you, Melania. Well, this is exciting. We have Rudy Giuliani. I, is he here? Let me just check here. Hang on for one second. I, I, I think, is, let me. Excuse me. Is this Rudy Giuliani? Oh, yes, yes. I'm right here. Oh, this is unbelievable. He, I'm, that's really great news. Hang on for one second. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, please welcome Mayor Rudy Giuliani. Thank you, Maria. Thank you, Maria. Uh, this, is, this is fantastic. Uh, join Good us right you, now. Maria. It's very nice to be here, Maria. Thank you very much. It's, it's David Feldman. Oh, Oh, okay, where's Maria? Uh, the, the, your Maria Bartiroma? Maria. Uh, she's. What is it? Fine, fine. I'll I talk think, to anyone. Okay. I, it's okay. I'll talk to anybody. I think he may have butt dialed us, but it's okay. Joining us right now is America's mayor, Rudy Giuliani, President Donald Trump's personal attorney, who is out of the hospital after spending four days there mm-hmm. battling the deadly coronavirus. That is not true. That is not true. I never had it. I okay. only had the flu. I only have the flu, David Feldman. I just need a little chicken soup. I'm going to have a nice conversation with my priest, work out some quick changes into my will, and I'll be back Monday working for the American people, as I always have, fighting democracy. Okay, thank you for, for that fight. That's not what I'm hearing. <laughs> well, then you should get your ears checked, is what you should do. Okay. Everyone right. knows that the Rudy has COVID story is a complete hoax that these rumors were orchestrated by Michelle Obama and Chelsea Clinton in conjunction with a Pakistani Swami who hacked into Ukrainian software and then digitally sneezed on my test results, giving my perfectly healthy nasal swab a terrible case of the China virus. (laughs) One of the worst I have ever seen, quite frankly. Wait wait a second. Do do you have COVID or not? Of course I don't have COVID. (laughs) 
My test results have COVID, not me. My test results. It's as plain as the ink on my face. (laughs) Okay, hang on, America's mayor. You're saying, thank you you for saying that. You're America's. You're the world's mayor. You're Kiev's mayor. You're Moscow's mayor. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> You're very kind. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> okay, all right. You're saying Michelle. You're saying Michelle Obama. Yes, yes. Michelle Obama did that. Orchestrated that hoax and put a bunch of lactation porn on my computer. <laughs> what? While perfectly legal is not something that I would ever look at, but still. It's 100% within the law. All right, Mr. America's mayor, with all due respect, there are pictures of you leaving Georgetown Hospital. Even President Donald Trump. Who was not only reelected by a landslide, but has also assured me that lactation porn is legal in all 50 states. So even if it were my lactation porn, (laughs) which it is clearly not. Yeah. It's basically no harm, no foul. That's a legal term. Latin. No harm, no foul. All right. All right. M- M- Mr. Mayor, President Donald Trump tweeted that you tested positive for COVID-19. That's how we found out from your own client, the president. And Puerto Rico. What? <laughs> it's perfectly legal there, too. <laughs> what? What is? The lactation porn that you won't shut up about. <laughs> Come on. Give me a break. <laughs> Mr. Mayor, you had a health scare. You're a public figure. And as our president, you're a public figure. And and as our president's personal attorney, you have an obligation to to set the record straight. Do you do you have covid? No. And when my lawsuit against covid-19, the Obamas and the Swami go to the Supreme Court, everyone will know the truth. All right. The fact is, sir. Sir, you, you've been flying around the country, not wearing a mask. And a lot of people are saying that you have been, I don't know how to put this, somewhat reckless that you might have exposed dozens of people, if not hundreds, to this virus. What are you implying? That what you, are you implying? That, you're are you a su- implying? that you are a super spreader. I'm, I'm sorry, we have a bad connection. What did you just say? It's my neighbors next door. Uh, it's my neighbors. They, they blast that crazy dance music all day. <laughs> Lambs on the half shell and roller skates, roller skates. Good times. Turn it down already. Turn it down. These are the good times. Fine, fine. In the morning. And a happy, healthy to all of you. Yes. And happy, healthy to you as well. <laughs> for the last time, Mr. Merry Christmas. Yes. <laughs> thank you for saying Merry Christmas. But for the last. Oh, don't thank me. Thank the guy who just said it to me. Yeah, that's. There he is again. He, he, he sounds like. He... Isn't that nice that we can live in a country where we can say Merry Christmas again? <laughs> we can say it three times. That's what we're saying. Shout it to the rooftops. For the last for the last time. Merry Christmas. Just said it again. Okay. All right. We've said it enough. Oh my God. It's it's a festive. Merry Christmas. No, it's you can never say it enough, David. You can never say it enough. Okay. Uh, For
and a happy new year. <laughs> to you too. To you too. You know what? I think they just felt bad about the music. I, I like Chic as much as the next guy. You know, I think they felt bad, and now now they're uh, you know they're being very festive and uh, traditional. All right, Ma- Ma- Mayor Giuliani. For the last time, did you do you have COVID? Okay, listen to me. Listen to me. Okay. Everyone knows that if I had coronavirus, it would be affecting my digestive system, and I've never been more regular. I'm pooping eight, nine times an hour. I believe doctors call that irregularly regular. That's how regular I am. All right. Uh, You mentioned it. Mentioned what? Are you on the... Is that your cell phone? Should, should, should we switch to a landline? Oh, someone's now. Na- someone's knocking on my door. Okay, that's that's what. Ha- Come on in. The doors are wide open. <laughs> what, what what is going on? Oh, it's it's just my gardener. It's just my. Uh huh. <laughs> <laughs> what 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 was that? Oh, I'm just speaking Ubangi, the African clicking language. That's all. That's all I'm doing. That doesn't sound like a click. Oh, excuse me. Suddenly you're an expert on sub-Saharan African languages. I just told you that you're full of it. In perfect Ubangi. That's what I just did. That's what. Okay, I'm sorry. (laughs) I crossed the line there. Your mother has nothing to do with this. Your mother has nothing to do with this. I apologize. Oh, and now you're bringing in my father. Look, Mr. Mayor, let's be honest. Wouldn't you agree that what happened in the in the Michigan House of Representatives was somewhat embarrassing? Um, uh, which uh, sorry, which somewhat embarrassing are you referring to specifically? You know, in front of all those nice people. Hang on. I'm trying to remember. I'm trying to remember. It's. <laughs> It's under the sink, Gonzalo. <laughs> you don't remember? Having a clue. Having a clue. Excuse me. Excuse me. <clears throat> I just I just have some pigeon beaks in my throat from lunch. <clears> throat> All right. You don't remember? You, you don't remember uh, the noise you made? There was no noise. There was no noise. No noise. That was, whatever you heard, that was special effects. Seriously? Got it? Seriously? Yes. Yes. The people from Burisma, they what? used special effects to make it appear as though I was making that sound. Uh-huh. Like my hair was melting onto my face and like, like my teeth were made of discarded chicken bones. Okay. That was all Burisma. That was all Burisma. Everybody knows that. Mr. Mayor, we saw the video. We heard what you did. You farted. I have a document signed by a notary in which my doctor attests under penalty of law that it was the fat chick next to me. (laughs) Come on. And that is not an insult. When I say fat, I'm only referring to a big fat boobs. (laughs) Okay, that's enough. Thank you for joining us. Guam. Guam. What? Not a state, but a pro, but a, but a protectorate where your right to, 
to watch plantation porn is absolute. Once again, America's mayor, Guam, once again, America's mayor, uh, Rudy Giuliani, thank you so much for, thank you for joining us and stay safe. Wow. (laughs) You really won't let go of this lactation porn nonsense. Look at me. Do I come across as the type of guy who can only enjoy adult films if the woman has recently given birth? Seriously? I was the mayor of New York City. As the United States attorney, I single-handedly prosecuted the mafia. I am personal attorney to the most powerful man on the planet. I can have my pick of any stag film I want. Why would you think I would have to resort to something as low rent and common as lactation porn? It absolutely makes no sense. But I guess, I, I guess if you repeat a lie over and over, which you seem to be intent on doing, eventually enough people start to believe it's true. Plantation right. porn. Give me a break. Oh. Okay. Okay. Yes, Mr. President, I'll be right there. Thank you. Mr. President. Mr. President, thank you. Mayor Rudy Giuliani. Oh, that was great. Thank you, Mayor. He's gone. That that's fantastic. That that was uh Mayor Rudy Giuliani. And uh I believe that was Robert Smigel and Dave Cyrus pranking us. That was great. All right. Well, uh let's keep it moving. That was amazing. Joining us now is Emmy and Peabody Award winning comedy writer. Mr. Jim Earl. Hello, Jim Earl. How are you? Why, hi. Why, hello. (laughs) (laughs) That was Smigel. That was amazing, wasn't it? You're you're a fart comic, and (laughs) I've always... If it, can I say something? Yes. Is no. that the America's mayor flatter sounds just like the floaters. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. Jesus. My enough God. already. It's enough already with the. Oh, my God. So Jim Earl, Emmy and Peabody award winning comedy writer joins us. And I thought we would look at the news, if you don't mind. We're trying to up uh, our. Yeah. You want to do that? Oh, sure. And while we're getting the news ready, is there anything in the news, anything that the Biden administration has done? No, <laughs> there's nothing. There's there's nothing. No, no. No, right. and and Diane Feinstein has uh, dementia. Can you she prove that? She needs to go. Her staff practically says so. They're worried about her. She repeats sentences over and over again with the sa- exact same intonation. Really, she repeats sentences over and over again. And her staff is worried about it. She repeats sentences over and over again with the exact same intonation. Now, I understand she keeps repeating sentences over and over again. With the exact same intonation. Is her staff worried about this? Her staff is worried about it. Worried about what? Her being demented. 
she's she's got an adult onset. Didn't you read the New York uh, New Yorker article? Is she repeating sentences over and over again with the exact same intonation? Is her staff concerned about this? Over and over again. Well, let's look at the news. I don't know who this guy is, but. Whatever he's holding, I think it took about five hours to get that out of his ass. I think that's a, is that a potato that no, has it's COVID? One those, it's one of those sink scrubbers. Oh, okay. I thought, I thought a, a sink that scrubber. Guy's, that guy's a famous character actor from Three Stooges. You're right. I, you're right. Well, desperate New York City workers using the LIRR as quiet and cheap office space, according to the New York Post. Do you remember WeWork? Remember, everybody was looking for an office because they were sick of working out of their homes. And now we're discovering that people are very happy not going to an office. But this lady, apparently, Muriel Sonins, gets on the Long Island Railroad and she just sits there all day and does her work. And she says it's cheaper than renting an office. She pays $40 for a ticket and rides the train all day and treats it as an office. So where? Where does she go? It's her office. It doesn't. I love the train. I do. Yeah, but there are people on it. Uh, you're right. But not there that are, many. Not that many. New Yorkers on it. Yeah, you're right. You know what that is? We're looking at the vaccine and Britain made history. A 90-year-old grandmother. Let's listen. Well, her jab marks the start of the biggest vaccination program in British history and a huge step forward in the fight against COVID-19. You can't hear anything. The grandmother oh, you can't hear it? 91 no. next week. No. Tell the health correspondent, well, what do you know? Joshi, how grateful well, we'll stop. Of course you can't hear anything because that's the, that's the story of my life. That's the, that? that's the story of my life. That I, I, no matter how hard I work on this show, the, the technical problems continue here. We'll try it again. All right. Now you're going to be able to hear it. Well, anyway, here she is getting the shot. 90 year old grandmother. And yeah. apparently there are no side effects. Uh, well, <laughs> look, look at her. She turned into a cat. She head. turned into a cat. I don't know how that happened. That doesn't seem right. New cases as of December 8th, 192,299 cases of covid in America. Total, we're getting close, 15 million cases of COVID. Do you think that would happen in a Biden administration, Jim Earl? I think, uh, no, not this much, no. So I, you, think you, it would, I think it would be uh, probably half this. Okay, that's not bad. <laughs> wow, that's not bad, no. You think, you think, what do you think would have happened had we had Medicare for all in a coherent healthcare system? I, I think agree it would have been. You much better and of course joe biden is steadfastly against that and so is uh, so is his administration yeah yeah i agree i agree so the trump administration is all about privacy and personal freedom but according to cheryl gay stolberg in the new york times some states are balking after donald trump cdc is asking for personal data if you want a vaccination the Trump administration is requiring states to submit personal information of anyone who received a COVID-19 vaccine. The CDC wants your name, your birth date, your ethnicity, your home address. 
this is this is from a Republican administration with libertarian strains. Can you believe that? You think people are going to you think Republicans are going to get COVID-19 if they have to reveal their name, their birth dates, their ethnicity, their home address? Well, we gotta know where to build people when you know, if they don't want to pay <laughs> pay the fifteen fucking thousand dollar fee. This is America. We're this, we're capitalists. That's just the way it is. Right. Well, Canada. Morning. Right. You know, I always say if you if you hate America so much, move to Canada. Turns out, according to CNN, Canada right now is getting crushed by the COVID nineteen curve because they were complacent they're going through a second deadly wave yeah well what are you going to do i mean you know we have our freedoms we can't just we can't have a a lockdown lockdown we got to have rolling lockdowns that pretty much are meaningless and bring people's hopes up for a couple of weeks and then dash them all to hell for the next two months now, and we, now we're looking we're looking at maybe next spring by the time people like you and I get a vaccine. Because we're not essential workers. No. No. And we have emotional problems. They don't yeah. want to give vaccines to emotionally disturbed people. Because they want us to go away. You set a bad example. Only yeah. nutcases are getting vaccinated. Right, right. Well, Armour Otteron, he's an American-raised Canadian professor of law and public health at the University of Ottawa, told CNN that Canada was complacent because they were comparing themselves, the Canadians were comparing themselves to America. And he said, comparing yourself to America, what you're saying is we're better than the worst country in the world. Yeah, that's the expectation of lo- a low bar results or whatever. Yeah, Isn't that, that's that's exactly what the Democratic Party did. They compared themselves to the worst people in the world. And that's that's what they used as an election slogan, campaign slogan. It really didn't get many voters, did it? I mean, well, he won. Biden won. He won what? He lost 10 seats in the House. We still don't have the Senate. We should have taken the Senate. We're going to get the Senate. We're going to get the Senate. There's Canada. I'm showing a graph right now. Two Georgians? It's spiking. It's going straight up. They don't celebrate Thanksgiving. Well, they do celebrate Thanksgiving, but it's just straight up there. And Kellyanne Conway, according to Politico, has been appointed to the Board of Visitors of the U.S. Air Force Academy. That will be her new job. What does that mean? I have no idea. Board of Visitors? The, there's I mean, a, she's, a gr- she's a greeter at the, uh, <laughs> when they load up the bombs. New York City shootings, according to the New York Post, are on pace to hit a 14-year high, according to the New York Police Department commissioner. Well, they should stop shooting people. If they if they're unhappy with the pace, that looks like one of those uh, paint by numbers things. Yeah, yeah, with the color red. When was the last time you went outside your apartment? Uh, I ran an errand to pick up a gun. Yes. 
Donald Trump said during his vaccine summit, this according to Vanity Fair, if COVID-19 kills another 1.8 million people in the United States, we won't need a vaccine because (laughs) (laughs) this is what he said, herd immunity will start kicking in. The president said Tuesday it would be terrific. We're 15% of the way towards herd immunity. We're going to miss this guy. <laughs> we are. We're going to yeah, miss you know, him. He's, he's right. You know, if he kills another one point, yeah, that should do it. It should be nothing but uh, superhumans. Left. <laughs> Lindsey Graham, according to New York Magazine, predicts Donald Trump will become a shadow president. He's not going away. He's going to be more dangerous pissing into the tent than pissing out of it. That's a big shadow. Yeah. Biden's pick of retired general for the Pentagon is being criticized for breaching civilian control. We have a we're going to have a new secretary of defense, General Lloyd Austin, the third. He's African-American, but he did not spend the obligatory, I think it's seven years or six, seven, seven years in the in the private sector working for defense contractors. That's according to tradition and law. Before you can become defense secretary, you have to have spent seven years working for Boeing or Raytheon before you can. He's a he's a Raytheon board member. Yes, he is. Yes, that's great. That's 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 clearing out the swamp. It used to be 10 years. In 1947, when it was uh, the, the uh, National Security Defense Act, or whatever hell, hell it was called, or the, was yeah. passed. It was the Department of War back then. Yes, it was. And what do, they, what do you what do they call that on his chest? What's uh, the spaghetti. slang for that? All those medals. Spaghetti. I've heard it called lettuce. Uh, oh no! I know. Actually, that's a that's a tomato sauce stain. I'm talking about the left side. Fruit ch- salad. Fruit salad. Yeah, fruit salad. I yeah. think, yes, fruit salad. And then once it stands for four million dead Iraqis. Ah, OK. That's what it stands for. And that it's wasn't like, very funny. You're going to you're going to go to the, on to the next one. Yeah. The safe harbor deadline is approaching for states to certify presidential election results. Tuesday marks the deadline for U.S. states. That was last Tuesday to settle outstanding disputes over the 2020 presidential election. But Trump says it's not constitutionally binding, so he's going to keep fighting. Why do you think he's still fighting? I know you hate Biden, but I have a theory as to why I think. I know why he's still fighting. Publicity, and it, it's good for the Republican Party. They, they, the constituents think their elected officials are fighting for them. Hey, that'd be weird if Democrats actually did that. Yeah. You know, they might actually get non-voters, 90 million to 100 million non-voters to actually show up to the polls and have an overwhelming majority instead of this uh, shadow majority. All right. That he won. I think, have you ever owed money to the mob? And they Yes. Yes, of course you have. And you have to prove to them that you're working as hard as you can. The insurance industry. Yeah. And, and when they come for you, you have to just you, you work. You tell them you show them how hard you're working to get, you know, to get that money so they don't kill you. That's what Trump is doing. He's proving right. to Putin 
I'm trying. I'm doing everything I can. Putin? No. Let's, let's stop this, please. All right. What about what about Hunter and Jim Biden? The brother Jim? Yeah. The Would brothers. you like to live in Joe Biden's shadow? Do you know how hard that is to live up to middle class? Accepting, except, without accepting bribes and, and peddling your influence? All right. Celebrity plastic very- surgeon. There's times are good. Look at this. You can now get a Bel Air mega mansion. It was originally priced at one hundred eighty million dollars. It's down to ninety nine million dollars. People are being evicted. Did you know that people can't pay their rent? But a celebrity plastic surgeon. Well, I guess that's very kind. He's he's lowered the price of his mega mansion to ninety nine million. This is the inside. You couldn't afford to rent that little pillow. No, look at this. Look how people live. That's pretty ugly, by the yeah, way. I know. Uncomfortable and ugly. I know. What that's his wine that? cellar. Oh, she's that's it's not looking good. Grandma. Oh, it's a, a bad side effect. Do you have any allergies to vaccines? Uh, yes. I. Uh, one of the side effects for me is a, a tendency to sue the drug manufacturer for imaginary side effects. Brazil. You were, you were vaccinated with a photograph needle. Yes, I was, and it skipped. But it didn't affect. It didn't affect. It didn't affect. <laughs> you. That oh, was nice. We're going to talk to Henry Saturday night at Covid Town Squares. Look, is we Henry are even doing tonight. Huh? Is Henry? Is Henry on tonight? Henry is on tonight. Can you ask him about, hey, are maintenance people who come in and change your um, smoke alarm batteries essential workers? I think your landlord would say so. Yeah, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to constantly come in here and and danger us with the mouth-breathing idiots who refuse to wear their... Or they cover their mouth, but they still have the nose... Oh, bad or it's, it's just a scarf or, you know, it's it's a big mess. People are stupid. Yes, just, they are. They don't take this seriously. We're approaching 69 million global cases of COVID. We're going to be talking about that at the COVID Town Squares this Saturday night with the irritable immunologist and Henry Huckamacki. Go to DavidFeldmanShow.com and hit pay-per-view. We'll take you right to the Eventbrite page. Pay what you want. Los Angeles, 7,936 deaths from COVID. And you think rent would be going down. You would think so. In L.A. But it's not. You've got hedge funds buying up uh, people's apartments. New York State's pension fund, according to the Wall Street Journal, has pledged net zero greenhouse emissions. This is great news. State Comptroller Thomas Dinopoli. He's in charge of New York State's $226 billion pension fund. You know, people who work for the state, it's kind of like CalPERS in California, people who work for the state, mm-hmm. they, they pour money into a pension fund and they have a lot of sway with investors because $226 billion, that, that moves markets. And state controller uh, Thomas DiNapoli says he is pledging that that, 226 billion dollar pension fund 
will only invest in net zero greenhouse emissions by oh 20, 2040. Oh, by 2040. And yeah. how much time does the planet have? We have like a, a six to eight years now. Four See, years ago, four years ago, we had like four years left before, or six years left before all the Arctic uh, ice is melted. Right. So that's going to, the only reason they're 2040, yeah, they're saying that because that's when they're going to switch over to something more profitable profitable for them. 2040. That'll be in 20 years, right? Not because they care. Yeah, that's 20 years. Well, you know, he's an investor. You have to, you have, to have a long horizon. This is the buy and hold strategy. Yeah. So it's good. Uh, in his final days in office, according to the BBC, Trump has ordered a series of executions. He's yeah. uh, the executions begun this week, starting with 40 year old Brandon Bernard and 56 year old Alfred Bourgeois. They're both scheduled to be put to death at a penitentiary in Terre Haute, Indiana. Uh, he's not going away, Trump. Well, neither did Hillary Clinton. Yeah. You want to hear Lou Dobbs talking to Stephen Miller? And Hillary Clinton isn't about to let you have a public option, let alone Medicare for all. But Stephen Miller and Lou Dobbs are worse. Look at they never, they've never ran for office. Nothing. It's it's what it's, it's an outrage. Is wrong. It's, well, what's wrong with and, the Republican Party? Where is the outrage? It's really on the Tens of millions. They're not going away. Where the hell are the Republicans? No signature checks. Where the hell are the Republicans? You're right, Where Lou. Are they? Tens of millions of ballots nationwide. No signature checks. No citizenship checks. No residency checks. No age checks. No criminal record checks. Not even checking if you're alive or dead. Are we a third world country? Are we a banana republic? What? Yes. Uh, okay, that, they're not going away. Stephen Miller isn't going away. He's going to become a multimillionaire. And Bill Barr is going to be a multimillionaire. Yeah, yeah. Well, this, we're a capitalist nation. We're capitalistic, yeah. like Mama Bear said. Rudy Giuliani became the latest in President Trump's inner circle to boast about the treatment he received for COVID-19 as hospitals across the country ration care, according to The New York Times. We'll talk to Henry and Irritable about that on Saturday. We see all these wealthy Republicans, members of the administration, checking into the hospital with COVID. Three days later, they're out. But there are two types of covid you know, there's COVID for the 1% and COVID for the 99%. Tom Wolf, Pennsylvania's governor, has tested positive for the coronavirus. And California says playgrounds can remain open despite stay-at-home orders. That doesn't make sense. That California is, a, hey, it's run by a Democratic supermajority, isn't it? I believe California? so. Fifth richest economy in the world, yeah. richest state in the country, the highest Dude. rate of poverty, highest rate of poverty in of any state in this country, yeah. California. It's and turning yet, around, Jim. Think, look, this is a CNBC yeah. trend shows home prices are growing at record highs. This is the fastest pace since the early 2000s. Look at that graph, Jim. We are seeing housing inflation that has not been witnessed since the bubble back in the early aughts. 
That's that's a good sign. Yeah, the, it's turning around. This is some rich prick's home. I was looking at Architectural Digest, so I scanned this. There's some Keith Haring knockoffs in this rich prick's home. And do you see the one bottom left? It's a it's a body crowd surfing and how the message mm-hmm. is, we you know, we're, we are raised on the hands of others. We all depend on each other. Do you see that? Is that, is that what you get out of it? Yeah. That's the Keith Haring picture. You think this MFR in this $40 million home has lifted anybody other than themselves? I think it's time to start shaming rich, but you got to show these homes. Yusuf who comes to our office hours suggested this, that we use this YouTube channel to shame people for being this piggish. Well, look at his table. You know, I said that back to Ikea. It's, it's got all kinds of gashes. And, and hey, watch it. it. I'm sorry. It's got all sorts of gash hey. around the edges, like it like was damaged in transport. People should who live this way should be terrified of us. I'm not saying I'm not saying they shouldn't have this money, but they should be terrified that we're coming for them, at least their money. I'm saying they should shouldn't have that money and they should be terrified. Hey, I get emails from Deborah Messing. She says, what are you for asking you gracefully? Wow. No, that's from Center for American near a near a Tandon. Yeah, but she's, listen, she says, you know, now that we dodged the the Trump bullet, we have to ask ourselves, what are we for? Yeah, one where America, uh, one where we lift each other up like that Keith Haring photo. We lift each other up. I wonder if that was her house. Why didn't we ask that before, you know, the primaries? What is the Democratic Party for? And here's what she's for. She's for tackling basic issues like access to child care, paid sick leave and family medical leave. And this is what I love about Deborah Messing and the Center for American Progress. And we are for stopping climate change. How? By making it part of our conversations around the economy, infrastructure and racial justice. Isn't that fantastic, Jim? That that the Center for American Progress and Deborah Messing says that we need to be for stopping climate change. And we do that with only four years left by making a part of our conversations around the economy, infrastructure and racial justice. So, I know you're making a lot of fun of, uh, of Deborah Messing. Dave, but I'm not going to make any value judgments on her until I know what the guy who played Jethro on Beverly Hillbillies thinks. Max Bear. Right. You know who her father was? His father was? Max Bear? Yeah. And finally, Max Bear's father was the the boxer. He also played Jethrina. Yes, I remember that episode. (laughs) It wouldn't hold up. We we have to wrap this up. Do you know who this is? That's that's Max Baer uh, Sr. 
That's not Max Barrett. Do you know who this is? Burl Ives. Burl Ives. Burl Ives. Holly Jolly Christmas, right? Mm Mm-hmm. We all watched him with Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. You know who that is? Audacity. Huh? Yes, Bob Seger. Bob Seger. How are they connected? How is Bob Seger? Not Pete. It's Pete Seger, not Bob Seger. Seger. Pete Seger. Pete Seger. <laughs> like there's any difference <laughs> there you're right how is burr alive we're out of time how is it they're, they're folk singers right yeah they, they were they were i thought they were both kind of lefties lefty singers oh one would think wouldn't one <laughs> burr lives uh-huh. burr lives name names before the house on american activities committee and one of the names was pete seeger in order to remove his name from the blacklist, Burl Ives, decided to have a holly jolly Christmas by turning in Pete Seeger. He well, was held in know, contempt of Congress and was sentenced to serve 10 years in jail for it, but the conviction was overturned after Pete Seeger went before HUAC, HUAC, House Un American Activities Committee in 1955. He refused to plead the fifth, but he also refused to name any names, even though Burl Ives named him as a young communist. Mm-hmm. And Pete Seeger was held in contempt of Congress and sentenced to 10 years in jail because of Burl Ives. The conviction was ultimately overturned. John today, Lennon. T- today, the Republican, the Democratic Party would smear him as a. Uh, a Russian asset. Yeah. There's John Lennon killed 40 years ago this week. Great man. We love him. Oops. What does this say from Vice? You don't have to imagine John Lennon beat women and children. It's just a fact. This is by Lauren Oyer from Vice. To celebrate the anniversary of the Beatles' beloved album, Imagine. She wrote this five years ago. We recount some of the terrible things the famous asshole John Lennon did during his life. Oh, boy. In an interview, he admits to hitting women. Any woman, he explains, quote, that is why I'm always on about peace. You see, it is the most violent people who go for love and peace. He talked about uh, being fat and depressed, and I guess he hit his wife, Cynthia. And... Mm-hmm. Yeah, but Julian to make up for it, he hit kids. Yeah, that's true. That's Lena Dunham. Star Trek: The Next Election. Wait, a minute. wait, wait. wait. We... Uh, Go back. Body acceptance. Star Trek: The Next Election, Saturday, December twelfth at six p.m. Eastern. They're doing a fundraiser. the The stars of Star Trek are reuniting on Zoom for Warnock and Ossoff to win yeah. in Georgia. You know- Yeah, they did that also for Biden. Yeah, we need to listen to celebrities. Early voting starts in Georgia on December 14th. Listen to your celebrities. Olivia Jade apologized for sending her parents to prison. Her dad's in solitary. And there's a bill before the New York City Council to end solitary confinement in New York City jails. Our podcast listeners can't see this, but this is what... Solitary confinement looks like at Rikers. 
Yeah, okay. People haven't been talking much about prisons and Rikers no. in a few months. The, it's a mental the, institution. A few months after they became raging hotspots for COVID infection. I haven't heard anything. Yeah. Well, we need to recently. we need celebrities like Lena Dunham and Rob Reiner to speak out. William in Los Angeles sent this to me. This is Jeremy Irons from 2013. I guess he was against gay marriage. Let's listen to why Jeremy Irons is against gay marriage. I mean, tax-wise is an interesting one because you see, could a father not marry his son? Uh, well, there are laws against incest. It's not incest between men. Incest is there to protect us from having um, uh, uh, inbreeding. But but, but men don't breed, therefore they... So incest wouldn't cover that. Now, if that was so, then if I wanted to pass on my estate without death duties, I could marry my son and pass on my estate to him. No, that sounds like a total red herring. I'm sure that that incest law would still cover same-sex marriages. Really? Why? I love celebrities. All right. Well, okay, that accent, that accent. I didn't pay attention to anything he was saying. It's that accent. That just... Yeah. Thank you, Jim Earl. This was fun. Let's do this more often. No. <laughs> Let us now go to Michigan, where Henry Huckamacki is standing by. And you have a guest. And I will say goodbye to Jim. And I will say goodbye to Melania, and I, it's good to see Professor Avina back with us. Thank you. How's it going? Thank you. Yeah, I agree. I'm, I'm glad that Professor Alex Avina decided to come back onto the show. Don't know why yet, but he's here, so we're going to utilize <laughs> He doesn't him. listen to the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we brought him back on. Uh, this is his first time on since the election, so uh, we're going to run through a few things. We're going to get his thoughts on the election. Then we're going to talk about uh, the, the Latino vote uh, in the election. And then we're also going to talk about Latin America during the Cold War, because that might help explain uh, the Latino vote in the election somewhat. So, uh, Professor Avina, nice to have you back. What were your thoughts on the election, broadly speaking, before we get into the Latino vote more specifically? My thoughts? Um... You know, I think, you know, there was a little bit of relief, right, Um, that we, I think, we managed to dodge some sort of bullet, right, in the form of Trump and Trumpism, although he's still there. And uh, I'm not entirely convinced that he's going to go away anytime soon. I think, but look, I think the most, the more interesting things for me uh, in terms of the election have happened since then with regard to who uh, Joe Biden is picking to staff his cabinet, right? And uh, for all those uh, commentators, mainstream commentators who are, who are asking progressives and leftists to just wait and watch and, and, and see, you know, Biden transform into another FDR, uh, I think I think that illusion has already been dashed. Right. And I think particularly for me, as someone who studies Latin American history, like looking at the people that he's picked to do foreign policy or, or to, you know, to do something that we could rightly refer to as imperial policy. It's a lot of the same old, same old that reaches back to the Obama presidency, right? So people like Tony Blinken and, and Jake Sullivan, who, who, um, you know, they, they're a big fan of interventions, right? Particularly like the one in Libya. So I, I think for me, it's kind of this weird deja vu going back to 2009. I mean, it's a radically different context, 
obviously with the pandemic and, and the level of, of, of desperation is even, is even more intense than it was in 2009. But, it, you know, it's just, it seems like they're, the Democrats are going to proceed in a way that's going to rehash and repeat um, what the Obama presidency did in the first couple of years. Right. And I think that's, they haven't learned anything. And um, that's really dangerous. Right. Um, because I think last time I was on, we talked about this, like what happens when, when we truly get like a, a smart, uh, disciplined, loyal, you know, right wing fanatic or fascist in, in, in a position that, that Trump occupied. Right. And, and these feckless democratic leaders are still wholly unprepared and indeed are, are helping generate the conditions to have someone like that come in in, in 2024. Well, when you say that they haven't learned anything, I think that that's a common thread for the Democratic Party since at least the 70s. So you know, this, this isn't wholly an unexpected phenomenon, but you're right. It is disappointing. But let's let's change our focus to the, the Latino vote uh, now. So in the news, it was pretty heavily covered that the Latino vote shifted slightly towards Trump more so than it was in 2016, which is to say Biden still had a decisive advantage in the Latino vote, but not quite as big of a percentage advantage. And I'm emphasizing the word percentage for a reason. I'm going to get to that in just a second. Uh, the percentage difference between Biden and Trump was smaller than the percentage difference between Hillary and Trump in terms of uh, the Latino vote. However, one thing that isn't covered quite as much is that there was about 8 million more Latinos that voted in 2020 compared to 2016. And uh, you don't win based on percentages. You win on base. uh, You win based on number of votes. When you have 8 million more votes, even if you're winning percentages slightly less, as long as you're picking up a larger number of votes compared to the opposition, your margin of difference in terms of vote total, that's a good thing. And I don't think that the media did a very good job of reporting that they were just looking at the percentage numbers, but that's neither here nor there. Let's just look at what the media was reporting though. What's this, this narrowing, slight narrowing of the, the gap between Trump and Biden compared to Trump and Hillary. Why was there uh, a narrowing of the Latino vote in 2020, specifically when we look at places like South Florida? I know that this is a big question, so I'm going to let you take as long as you want on that, on that answer. No, so I, I think that it, so I'm glad you handled the, the statistic uh, mathematical stuff because I, anyway, I would have tragically failed at that. But I, I think, um, look, I think, and, and some of the, it, it, what drives me nuts every two to four years, it drives me nuts when I see like mainstream or very important media commentators or political figures, when they start to talk about Latino voters. Right. And, 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 and we always have to remind these figures that like the Latino vote is not a monolithic vote or a block, right. It has no utility as an identity to understand voting habits or political ideas from a heterogeneous community of, of, of people that are coming from different countries in Latin America with different historical experiences who then come to different places in the United States. And that those local contexts are really also really important in shaping how they vote and who they support. Right. So, so that's the first thing, right? Like the, to understand voting habits, a Latino is useless as a category. And like, we continuously have to push forth this lesson, this idea to, so let's be honest, like white political commentators and like mainstream media outlets who, who forget or who are always shocked, right? Like the day after the election, all these people, um, you know, MSNBC, CNN, were, were so shocked that, that uh, it looked like 
um, but as you just described, it was a statistical illusion that Trump had somehow managed to increase his nationally his his his, his Latino support. The second thing, local context really matters, right? So South Florida has an incredibly complex uh, is a complex situation, and a lot of it has to deal with with what you also want to talk about today in terms of Latin America's Cold War. So I'll, I'll leave that to the side, and I'll, and I'll go to like I'll go to the Rio Grande Valley in Texas, where um, you know Trump managed to. I think Hillary won like 28 of these like US Mexico border counties in 2016 and Trump uh, took back 14 of them. Um, places like Zapata County, places like um, Star County where uh, Mexican Americans voted for Trump primarily for two reasons. One, one, a lot of them are associated with the oil and gas industry and uh, they, they listened to uh, the, the, the Trump discourse about Joe Biden being a green new dealer and he was going to end the fossil fuel industry. And these people believe that, or they were motivated by that. So they very rationally decided to choose the guy who wasn't going to take away their job without replacing it with something. Um, the other big thing that is also really important to think about, and this also complicates the one issue that's always associated to Latino voting habits it, it, with immigrant in regard to immigration. Um, the other reason why a lot of these Mexican American voters in South in South Texas and Mexico, U.S. border, voted for Trump. Is that many of them are linked to law enforcement agencies, particularly federal law enforcement agencies. A lot of them work for uh, this institution that that you know we in the in the in the immigrant rights uh, community refer to La Pinche Migra, right? The Border Patrol, right? So they so these are two reasons why many of these people decided to vote for Trump. Um, and this goes way beyond, I mean, some of the more outlandish explanations that I've seen is Trump's macho image somehow then uh, translate into these very macho Mexican-American males voting for Trump. I think we need a lot more research and, and really locally based research to kind of bear out any sort of, of resonance with, with, with uh, in terms of affinity between Trump and these Mexican-American voters with regard to gender and, and patriarchy. Florida is a totally different radically special case, right? Like, so, you know, for, for places like Nevada, for Arizona, for California, for other places in the upper Midwest, for, for places in the Northeast, and even certain places in the South, like Bernie Sanders showed the way in terms of how to gain uh, strong Latino uh, votes, right? It was very locally based grassroots activism in which Bernie folks basically went to people's homes, even in the context of a pandemic. And um, they tried, they got to know these people, right? And they, and they had established longstanding roots within these communities, right? All the way back to 2015, 2016. And that's really like the number one factor that determines whether a Latino person is going to support a particular candidate is if someone working for that Kennedy is actually making direct grassroots connections with them and with their community. Um, so that's really important. And I think in, in a certain extent, Bernie showed the way, particularly in Nevada, right? Making, um, you know, he had like strong, uh, resistance from certain leaders in the, in the union movement in, in Nevada. So what did they do? Well, they had been there for four years and they had actually made inroads to rank and file Latino union members and workers. And that's what led them to the spectacular primary victory. Um, Florida is radically different, right? In the sense that uh, you have the, the biggest segment of the Latino voting population in Florida are the Cuban Americans, right? And that's extremely complicated. There's something like, like 29%, like they're the biggest, there's about almost a million uh, voting uh, eligible Cuban voters in, in Cuban American voters in Florida, Puerto Ricans come in second place are about eight to 900,000. And surprisingly in third place, it's actually Mexican Americans, right? Except uh, many, uh, uh, they have a much lower uh, voter eligible percentage. Many of these people don't have 
papers. They're, they're not, they're not, they, they're not allowed to vote in elections. Right. So the Cuban factor is, is, is really important, right? Because of, of the history uh, that shapes their views. Um, and we've, we, I've read a, I've read some like deep dives into, you know, what the Trump campaign did in South Florida. Right. And, and this effort to connect, which is laughable, right. For our perspective, but it, it made an impact the effort to connect Joe Biden to like these socialist governments and movements in places like Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua. Right. Um, there's a reason why that resonates. Right. And, and this is, this goes to this long cold war history in Latin America that then gets brought over to, to Florida. And to a certain extent there, some of these people are still living out the afterlives of this cold war. Um, so, you know, I, my first teaching job was, was at Florida state university. So I had, and I'm from California, I'm from a Mexican family. My parents were undocumented migrants, right? So I have a very different quote unquote Latino experience. Um, but I'm so happy that my first teaching job was at Florida state university because most of my students were Cuban American and I learned a lot from them. And one of the things that I learned from them is that there are really important generational differences within the Cuban American voting population in South Florida. And there are, all, there are also diff, uh, very important racial differences, right? Depending on when your Cuban family came from Cuba to the United States, that's a huge factor, right? So the first generations that came over in 1960, like the family of the, the guy who Biden's going to pick as the head of DHS, it's upper class, right? Very wealthy um, white Cubans who then go, who arrive in Florida. They have uh, political Jewish. capital. Like, Jewish. Jew, so, yeah. Uh, they have political capital, they have, uh, they have economic capital, they have cultural capital, and they get support from the U.S. government to kind of set up. Subsequent migration waves from Cuba get darker and darker and darker, especially the, the, the folks that came during the 1990s uh, uh, as a consequence of the special period in, in Cuba. There's, there's very um, severe racial conflict and divisions that exist within the Cuban American population as it exists currently in, in South Florida. So that's really important to keep in mind. Um, but because they got there first, so to speak, and because they, they were able to establish this economic and political infrastructure that goes back to the early sixties, they're the loudest. They're the loudest. I would almost say the loudest Latino group within the country, right? In terms of how, how political parties try to make inroads and, and gain their support. Uh, more recently, and I started to see this, I, I, I arrived at Florida State in 2009. I left in 2016. Toward the end of my time there, a lot of my students were Venezuelan Americans. And they were kind of trying to create the same type of narrative with the Cuban Americans, right? Uh, the ones that came in the 60s, right? So very uh, wealthy, well-off white Venezuelans who were coming to Florida saying, we're escaping the evil Hugo Chavez or Nicolas Maduro. Um, and, and that kind of shapes their, their voting habits as well. But there's like 80,000 of them. Right. But again, they're, they're, they have an outsized presence and voice because of capital and because of U.S. geopolitical concerns in the region, which right now is you know, right. trying to remove uh, the ones that came in power in, in Venezuela. Um, even then, with all this said, right, like Biden still won overall the, the Latino population in Florida. It's just he won a smaller. Uh, he didn't win as many votes. Right. Like Trump did make serious inroads in a place like Miami-Dade County. Um, but a lot, again, a lot of this has to do with the legacies and the afterlives of the Cold War as it played out in, in Latin America, in the Caribbean, in places like Cuba, in places like Venezuela, in places like Colombia, and also Nicaragua that helped make Miami like the right-wing exile capital of the Americas, right? And, it, and, and the, 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 the political culture there is so different from a place like Los Angeles, California, right? Or even certain parts of Texas. 
Yeah, you hit two things that I think are very important. And I, I, I was hoping that you'd bring them up is that the Latino vote is often seen as a monolithic block that, you know, swings as a whole block during an electoral cycle. And they never see that there is heterogeneity within the Latino population in the United States. And when I say they, I mean, of course, the media. And also, uh, many people don't think about uh, racial differences, racial heterogeneity within uh, Latino populations. Uh, in most uh, Latin American countries, there's a large degree of heterogeneity in, in racial uh you know, racial makeup of the population. We just look at, uh, for example, one that really stands out right now because of recent events, there is Bolivia. Look at the the racial makeup of those that are allied with Evo Morales and then look at the racial makeup of the, you know, right-wing reactionaries that fomented the coup against him. And it's a very, very different racial makeup of those two groups. And it's something that people never think about, uh, Again, when I say people, I mean the media. Yeah. But I think that you you have a very uh, you, you started to touch on a very interesting point, which is what we want to transition to uh, the Cold War in Latin America. So when Americans tend to think of the Cold War, they always think of Eastern Europe. Uh, you know, maybe the Middle East, they think about Afghanistan with the Soviet Union. But typically, you know, the Cold War is thought of as Eastern Europe. But there was a fairly significant impact of the cold war on Latin America. Could you speak to that? And and I guess I, the first question I'll bring up is, can you explain what the hemispheric defense doctrine is? Uh, Sure. (laughs) Well, one thing, so so before I I move in is also to, to signal the, the, the factor of religion. So religion is also another important factor to think about when, trying to like break down uh, voting habits. So race is definitely an important one. Right. And, um, but again, this, the, 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 the inability to understand that says more about how race is thought of here in the United States than anything to do with, with these, the, the Latin Americans or the descendants who live in the United States, right. The, the, the rate, it says a lot about how Americans, particularly white stream, uh, mainstream white uh, Americans think about race. Right. And that's one of the reasons why they tend to not think about internal racial differences and, 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 and uh, conflict that exists within some of these communities. Um, and religion is also an extremely important one as well. Um, uh, so but let's not get into that. In terms of, in terms of the, the, the Cold War in Latin America, right? I think this, I'll start this way, right? And, and this links it to, to immigration and links it to like how, actually, how Latin Americans actually got to the United States, right? The, the, the great Puerto Rican journalist, Juan Gonzalez, has a book called Harvest of Empire, right? And the title is the thesis of the book. That basically Latinos and Latin Americans who are here are here because they are the harvest of empire. Right? So it's similar to kind of like the slogan that, that um, there's some radical writers in Britain in the 1970s had when they would say, you know, we are here because you were there, right? Like we are in Great Britain because you were there in places like Jamaica or Asia and, and now we're back, we're here in the center of empire. Um, so in terms of the Cold War in Latin America, generally when we think about the Cold War, it's, it's a post-World War II conflict that develops between the United States and the Soviet Union, right? And one of the, one of the first things that the United States tries to do is to try to um, more or less ensure control over its own zone of influence, which is the Americas, right? And they can go back and, and, and make connections to the Monroe Doctrine, this 1823-24 proclamation by President 
James Monroe that says, you know, America for the Americans, um, no Europeans are allowed to, to come in and intervene in American affairs. Uh, that then in the 20th century, particularly in the Cold War, becomes this excuse, right, for U.S. Uh, government policy and imperial policy to intervene in Latin America um, against this, so po- this supposed uh, Soviet presence, which um, now we know, right, looking, going through, through uh, national archives, both Soviet declassified archives and, and a series of national archives throughout Latin America, but the Soviet presence was always very limited with the exception of a place like Cuba, right? It was more of a specter that the U.S. government consistently raised as a way to legitimize the overthrow of democratically elected governments, beginning with the Jacobo Arbenz government in Guatemala in 1954, and to justify the support of death squad repressive regimes throughout the Cold War in Latin America. And this has a longer history too, right? So one of the things that Latin American historians have been doing in the last 10 years when they think about this period, well, one, that this wasn't a Cold War at all for Latin America. It was a hot war that that resulted in hundreds of thousands of deaths of Latin Americans. Um, But they're also stretching back the temporal boundaries, right? So there's some historians now that make the argument that the Cold War in Latin America actually begins with the Mexican Revolution of 1910, right? Which starts to, the military phase starts to wind down right when there's a Russian Revolution, and the, and the Mexicans are, are uh, throughout the 1920s, the U.S. government will refer to Mexicans as like the Bolsheviks of the Americas, right, or Mexican Bolsheviks. And to a certain extent, like the framework for understanding Latin America really begins in the 1920s. You have a domestic Red Scare in the United States, and then you have a real revolutionary government, flaws and all, right on the southern border. That is also coincidentally the first country to, to establish diplomatic relations with the Soviet Union in 1924 in the Americas. So that makes, that, that makes a huge uh, difference. Um, and they're also coincidentally by 1920 supporting the guerrilla army in Nicaragua led by Augusto Sandino that's fighting against U.S. Marines. So already in the 20s, the U.S. and Mexico are off on the wrong foot, uh, particularly because the Mexican Revolution is, a, is, a, is an example of, of economic nationalism. And, and it was an effort to, to protect Mexico's natural resources and land from foreign capitalists and to make it for Mexicans. Um, so I, so I would say that the, the Cold War stretches even beyond what we normally re- refer to as a Cold War from, from post-World War II up until the early 1990s. Um, so it, what the U.S. government then tries to do throughout the, the Cold War period in Latin America is to ensure that its rear guard is protected, more or less, right? And what you end up getting during this time period is consistent U.S. efforts and policies that align this government with the most repressive uh, governments with the hope that that's somehow going to produce some sort of stability that then will allow the U.S. government to not have to worry about Latin America and they can focus on Eastern Europe or, or the Middle East or, or Sub-Saharan Africa. But that very stability that, that is generated by these horrific death squad repressive regimes and military dictatorships actually produces more instability because people resist and, and people are going to rebel. Um, and that then just increases the level of repression and the level of assistance that the U.S. government will have to provide some of the worst, some of the worst governments and regimes in the, in the history of Latin America. Um, so here, and, and that takes us to like Central America in the 1980s, which is really like the, the killing fields of, of Latin America during, during the Cold War. Um, but really, so, and, and before I, I let you ask another question, Henry, um, from a Latin American perspective, there's also domestic conflicts that are really important. This is not just a story about the U.S. being able to dictate terms in Latin America. So something that happens in Latin America during the last couple of years of the World War II and up until 1947, 1948, is you have an effort throughout the region by leftist parties, leftist, left of center parties, uh, trade unions, and, and peasant movements to actually create social democracies in the region. Um, 
That then will then generate a counter-revolution from the right in Latin America, which will usually consist of land-holding elites, the Catholic Church, and their militaries. And with the help of the United States, we'll start crushing these social democratic efforts in Latin America. And the most example, the most famous example, the last one, is what happens in Guatemala in 1954 um, with the overthrow of Arbenz. And that just unleashes these processes of political radicalization that will lead to things like the Cuban Revolution, like will lead to guerrilla movements in Latin America in the 60s and 70s. It will lead someone like Che Guevara, who was actually in Guatemala witnessing this coup, to barely escape with his life, go to Mexico, where he ends up meeting Fidel Castro. And from there, they, they, they go to, to Cuba and, and, and they launch the Cuban Revolution. And, and, and Che Guevara would consistently taunt the United States by saying, um, you know, Cuba is not Guatemala. We will defend our revolutionary process. Excellent. So uh, I know David's chomping at the bit to ask some questions. So before I turn it over to him, I just want to mention uh, listeners, if you've enjoyed the conversation about Latin America and the Cold War, we're going to have Professor Avina on in an upcoming episode of Guerrilla History to talk about that subject exactly. So if you haven't subscribed to Guerrilla History yet, do so now because uh, Professor Avina will be one of our guests in an upcoming episode to talk much, much more in depth about that topic. Uh, but before I turn it over to David, you mentioned Arbenz. Uh, can you just remind the listeners very quickly why the U.S. decided that Arbenz had to go in case they don't know why we decided to get rid of a democratically elected leader in Latin America? Sure. So the, the quick version is that Jacob Arbenz, who had been a military officer, who was Guatemala's second democratic, democratically elected president in its history um, in the late 40s, early 50s, decided to enact a, a very reformist agrarian reform program that was actually supported by those notoriously socialist organizations like the IMF and the World Bank. Um, and it was basically, it was an attempt to make Guatemala's agricultural system capitalist and move it away from this feudalistic system that predated it. A system that included like, that treated Mayan um, indigenous workers as essentially slaves. Um, he also, in his cabinet, decided to include a couple of important uh, labor leaders and, and Guatemalan uh, communists to help him rule and to help him design uh, this agrarian reform program. This brought him in conflict with one of the most powerful entities in the Americas, economic entities, which is the famous United Fruit Company. This company stood to lose a lot of their land, uh, primarily because a lot of their agricultural land in Guatemala lay fallow. And that was one of the requirements. If you, weren't, if you weren't making your land productive, that then opened you to expropriation, compensated expropriation. Um, one of the, the genius moves of this agrarian reform program was that the government would pay uh, people who lost or, or companies who lost their land based on what these companies and individuals had reported on their taxes. Um, so there was like a sweet justice, right? Because they were, United Fruit Company was always underreporting how much they owed in taxes. Um, that then led to the CIA um, enacting its first successful um, uh, clandestine operation in Latin America. Right in 53, they helped overthrow Mossadegh in Iran. In 54, they overthrew Arbenz in Guatemala. They used yes, Edward Bernays. I was just about to say that, David, because I know that you like to bring up Bernays. He was part of the propaganda arm of that. Was Edward and Bernays. the New York Times. Right. It was a very sophisticated marketing, like, uh, you know, K Street marketing effort. Um, psycho it was psychological warfare more than anything, both in the U.S. and in Guatemala, actually. Right. Now, David, I know you said you had a question for Professor. Well, I, I, I'd you, like you to can ask it and then I'll give him his readout. OK. 
the I, I just like you to we have Dr. Jennifer Vertolin standing by. So briefly, if you don't mind, talk to me about the the, the shared memory of living under a socialist regime for the Latino community here in America. We keep being told that it's a bad idea for the Democrats to push socialism because the Latino vote has a pretty unhappy memory of socialism. You talked about Nicaragua, Cuba, and Venezuela. I guess they're socialists. What percentage of the Latino vote, Latino vote do you think has a sour memory of socialism? And the, the ones who are living in America, how, what percentage do you think would not vote for Bernie Sanders because they didn't like Fidel Castro or uh, Ortega in Nicaragua? I think uh, it's a small percentage. And again, yeah. it would be limited to the, the community in, in Florida. Yeah, right. So it would it would have a huge impact over Florida, but it wouldn't make much of an impact um, uh, in other parts of the United States. But that's being that's received wisdom among centrists in the Democratic Party yeah. that if you want the Latino vote, don't push socialism. They don't think too fondly of it. it it's it's a small percentage of children of oligarchs who fled the overthrow of Somoza and. Uh, Batista. That's what happens when you listen to people like Ana Navarro. So who's like, who literally was raising funds in the eighties for the Contras. Um, and now she's, I guess she's a never Trumper. So she's on the, she's on the Democrat side. Um, but I've heard, but, I've heard supposedly smart people talk that way. And, and uh, do they believe it or they're just. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think it, I don't know if they believe it or not, but what they do know is that it does resonate with a certain segment of, of, of the voting community in South Florida and Central Florida. Yeah. So they keep using it, right? But I think at some point, I mean, that, that also explains why Biden kind of lost, so, lost ground in South Florida is that he never responded to the charge. So also, so just to go, to just not respond to it is also not very helpful, right? And, I, and anytime Bernie, like I've seen Bernie do these primary debates on Univision, and quite predictably, these these dirtbag journalists like Jorge Ramos will will will, will red bait him, right, and be like, "You express support for for the Sandinistas in 1985," and it's just like, "Yeah, if you were around in '85 and you were supporting the Contras, you were on the wrong side." Yeah. Um, but you know that type of nuance and historical knowledge uh, is 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 missing with a lot of the the centrists that you're talking about, David. Yeah, I, I hope you keep coming back. Go ahead, Henry. Yeah, I just wanted to say, if you listen to what the people in the media say is going to resonate with certain communities, you're probably going to be off base. And this is a, a pitch for something else that Professor Avina has done. I remember it was last year. It would have been during the primary anyway. Um, Joanne Reed had a Haitian American on the show and she said, well, you know, you're from Haiti where revolution has a very bad <laughs> evokes bad memories for people. Uh Apparently, Joanne Reed missed the missed the uh, story of what the Haitian Revolution actually was. And you, if you listeners don't know the story of the Haitian Revolution, Professor Vina did an excellent episode on Rev Left Radio a year or two ago on the Haitian Revolution. And you should listen to it because you'll learn a lot. And then you won't make the same mistake that Joanne Reed did by thinking that the Haitian Revolution was a bad thing. Amazing. That was weird. 
it, it was really, really, yeah. absolutely cringy. It was cringe. It was yes. It was really cringe. In any case, listeners, that's, yeah, that's your pitch to go listen to that episode. It's, it's like an hour and a half of nothing but insight. Thank you, Henry. No problem. So that was uh, Professor Alexander Avina, professor of history at Arizona State University and author of Specters of Revolution, Peasant Guerrillas in the Cold War Mexican Countryside. Thanks for coming on, Professor Avina. We'll have to bring you back again. And, and listeners, again, remember, subscribe to Guerrilla History. We're going to have an episode with uh, Professor Avina, one of the next few episodes that comes out. Ask him to come Good. back. Ask him to come oh, back. He'll, he'll, I'm, I'm, I, he's going to be bothered, but to come back by me, David. I, I will come back. This is a lot of fun. Thank, Thank you. you both for having me. This is oh, great. Thank it you. It's great. Thank you. Great job, Henry. <laughs> David, one quick question. You have me scheduled for later, too? Did, did you yeah. Want well, uh, I, I'm trying to balance Professor Ben Burgess and Dave Cyrus. So can you come back later? But a little, can I talk to you in email? Email me what time you want me to show up at and I'll I'll poke my head and then tell people to come to the show on Saturday. Yeah, that's what I was going to. Why don't we quickly plug Saturday show right now? Okay, listeners, we're going to be having another COVID Town Squares uh, event on Saturday. Me and the irritable immunologists are going to be telling you all the latest about the vaccine candidates that are out, the latest research on COVID some of the uh, conspiracy theories that are making the rounds and we'll be taking all of your questions. It's three hours of, of science and comedy and entertainment. Uh, tickets this week are going to be available for whatever price you decide to pay. It's one of those, you know, come on in for any donation sort of ticket deals. Uh, everybody that comes is going to get a signed postcard. There's other fun tiers. So if you want to know more about COVID and the vaccines, all of the latest news and help me pay for my insurance, that's, and then eventually to get back to Germany once it settles down a little bit, come to the show on Saturday. And please, once David tweets out the ticket information, uh, send that ticket information around to everyone you know, because the more people that get tickets, the better. Yes. Go to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit pay-per-view. It'll take you straight to Eventbrite. Everybody... Who buys a ticket? It's pay what you want. Anybody who shows up gets a limited edition postcard that will be a collector's item. It looks great. Let's now go down to North Carolina. I'll I'll talk to you soon, like in a, a few. Just yeah, just email Thank me. You. When great you job, come back. great job, Henry. Thank you, Professor Doctor Jennifer Vertolin joins us. She's an animal behaviorist and author of Raised by Animals. I am sorry to keep you waiting. That's all right. How are you? Good. Are we going to see you today or are you? No. Okay. I am in the uh, throes of all kinds of of holiday preparations for for friends who celebrate Hanukkah, others who celebrate Christmas, others who celebrate Kwanzaa. So my living room is full of of, uh, things to send them. Yeah. (laughs) Well, we had so much fun doing that benefit for the centerforgreatapes.org. Everybody should go to the centerforgreatapes.org. I know that you're all being asked for money, but uh, this is a good cause, the Center for Great Apes. We should keep doing it. It was, it, we, we should. And, and here's two things. If I can jump in really yeah, quick. Yeah, 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 yeah. One, if you missed Saturday night, go watch it on, on your YouTube, YouTube channel. Yeah. And two, there's a live hangout with the apes 
And, um, and there's a, a link to that coming up. Uh, it's through Facebook. You don't have to be a member of Facebook. Um, and then they're having a live auction of ape art, including many by Bubbles, which I know you're a fan of. Um, none by Brooks. Sorry, David. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and I was thinking that we should do the next one on Valentine's week where I can talk about the salacious sex lives of apes and other animals for Valentine's day. And that will be our next ape um, telethon. And we might even have some folks from the center for great apes participate and beyond. So for Valentine, why do we have to wait? Until Valentine's Day. Because, uh, you know, the holidays are here. People have, you know, we're, we're in this deep, dark uh, thing. We'll have a new president. We will have people vaccinated. The holidays will be over. Maybe you've gotten some tax dollars back and and asking you to to join in in another Ape Telethon in February just feels right. Okay. <laughs> What is the sex life? How, so, well, I'm not going to blow the... the hey, 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 hey. I'm hey, going to hey, hey. before we get to the foreplay. Come on now. <laughs> That's not happening. Well, let me... Well, you can't tease this without my... Well, let me... Do we know... Well, we, what we've learned is that there are cameras out in the wild now capturing... The great apes. That's right. Well, that was at a rehabilitation center, so it's not quite the wild. But there are wild webcams for all kinds of animals. Uh, That particular one, that gorilla cam, was a rehab center. So they have a natural environment in terms of enclosure and, and how quickly they're able to transition them back to the fully wild. Um, you know, but but there's definitely there's a lot you can see. I mean, there was those eagles. There were two males and a female, Valor 1 and Valor 2 with a with a, a female. So that was an unusual threesome in eagles. And it was all caught on camera. Their whole, their whole life is and, just... And do they all make love the same? Do eagles and gorillas do it the same? I mean, yeah, or? do they mix it up? Is there a spectrum of their sexuality or... Well, no, no. So in the case of Valor, well, there is a spectrum of sexuality within and across species, for sure. I mean, it's a rainbow out there, um, without a doubt. But Valor 1 and Valor 2 might actually be brothers. So so this makes sense why they would be willing to share a female, right? Because she gets both, uh, their genes are, are, they're 50% related to each other, which means they're going to be related to any offspring that she has. And it's not a one season anomaly. They've, they've stuck it out for two seasons. So, so in that case, Valor one and Valor two, aren't going to mix it up because they're brothers. And they, okay. Do they know that their siblings do brothers and sisters know to stay away from each other? Oh yes. The, the inbreeding avoidance seems to be really strong in everything except potentially humans. <laughs> I mean, that's why the royal families kind of, you know, <laughs> went extinct. Um, <laughs> right. A little too much inbreeding uh, right. was, was the death of them. 
So, so they just know innately to stay away from one another, but not. Well, there's there's a, a, a familiarity first if you're raised together. So I believe, am I wrong? What is the name of um, in Israel, those um, communities where people can go? Kibbutz. Like, a kibbutz. kibbutz. Yeah. So if you're raised together in a, in a, in a kibbutz, you, you tend to also avoid um, any any if, if, if a boy and a girl that are not genetically rena- related are raised uh, together and uh, from birth and uh, or young ages, they tend to uh, act as if they're brother or sister. So they'll avoid. Uh, so there's a familiarity component, but then there's also a genetic component of of smelling uh, each other. So so MHC genes, which we've talked about, major histocompatibility genes. The nose knows in a certain way uh, how genetically related you are and and will or genetically similar and will avoid and and not be. Marco is saying hello again. I know. Marco is so happy. Marco is being taken (laughs) care of by the Center for Great Apes dot org. Go there right now and give them a dollar or anything. (laughs) Who is Marco? I'm sorry to interrupt you, but who is Marco? Uh, he he was a former circus chimp, uh, and I believe um, after that he spent a very difficult time for a year or two in a medical lab, and <laughs> then he was deposited or cast aside in a roadside zoo for many years, and um, and now he is at the center, and you can see that it took a really long time. For him to feel comfortable, to feel safe, you know, other animals get post-traumatic stress disorder, and we see that in many uh, many of the chimps and many of the animals that are kept in, uh, like so. Kavan, that elephant, like he was showing mental distress about his situation, and so he's okay now. He's uh, got a, a buddy and. They have a good time and, you know, there's lots of a lot of the things that we did uh, that night, Saturday night, was suggest people go to the wish list and help um, zero out their wish list. Oh, Louie. Right, so <laughs> well, I have let a me... friend who got peed on uh, by Louie. <laughs> oh, you're talking about the comedian or this Louie? Um, well, I, I, I could do... <laughs> 20 hours with you just showing pictures sure of so them. so so people might be wondering what's up with that face well that hang on let, let me let's go back hang on for one second because okay. I, i'm overwhelmed here let's go okay. back to marco and then come back to louis <laughs> because okay. it's important so i look at marco and we talked about this right uh during the show on saturday night my paternal instinct is to look at Marco. How old is Marco? Oh, gosh, it is. I think it is 40s. Oh, well, maybe it's not a paternal instinct. Maybe there's something else going on. A here. fraternal instinct. A fraternal. I want to hug him and sure. play with him and give him love bites and pet him. And that is wrong. It is absolutely wrong. And in fact, while we were on talking about that, Saturday Night Live had a chimpanzee on, and uh, that chimp was terrified. And you know what? I used to like Jason. So, so here's the thing. I don't know how much 
say celebrities have and things. Maybe David, you know more than I do, but I, I will say, and I'm sure Jason Bateman listens to your podcast that shame on you. You need to get some education. Give me a call. I'll tell you why you need to say no to any television commercial or promotional appearance that features an ape. So, I, you know, he might not know. And I, you so know, it's an uneducated, you know, the problem right. is he, he looked terrified too. And, and that chimp was just terrified and he could have gotten really hurt. And, and so for his own protection, he needs to understand, you know, this is not okay. And until those kinds of people stand up and say, no, I will not participate in your Saturday Night Live without, you know, with a chimp. Write um, better jokes. Yeah, I mean, there's a, what is the purpose for, for the, and that, guess what? That chimp will probably end up at the sanctuary after um, after a very difficult time. So, you know, so Marco is happy, but it doesn't take away from the fact that he suffered for the, a large right. portion of his life. And so, you know what? I love that, that you, David, feel so much empathy and so much care that you want to. It's a natural thing to want to hug something you care for. But I think we need to learn how to show our love differently to wild animals and leave them alone. And we live at a time now when we can observe them remotely. Okay, now back to Louie. <laughs> what? This is an orangutan. This is an orangutan, and you can see the. I long mean, what a beautiful. Hair. I mean, I mean, yes. what a exotic looking. What? Like, who invented this? <laughs> You know, their name means people of the forest or person of the forest, man of the forest. And and so the males get these cheek pads. So what you're seeing um, around his face are, are cheek pads or flanges, uh, a fully flanged male. And that means he is uh, sexually mature. Now, you've said and- to me, wait, wait a second, doctor. <laughs> I just remember that you told me you are able to identify a handsome ape versus an ugly ape. <laughs> Is that correct? You once told me that you... <laughs> okay, so I have a little uh, pet, you know, project where it was to survey people. So this idea of symmetry, right? We, we call that the golden triangle. It, it, you know, like people who are considered beautiful are perfectly symmetrical so my, my pet project, I have a bunch of facial photos of, of chimpanzees and orangutans. And I was going to do a survey of people asking them which one they thought was more, was, was, uh, they thought was a better looking. But, but then that became complicated because if I say you're a good looking ape, what does that mean? You know, so uh, I, I haven't figured out how to phrase the question. But Louis is a very handsome... Uh, orangutan you know he's he's well i mean compared to donald trump who's also in the picture anybody's handsome 
Oh, well, I think it's an insult to orangutans because not only are they more intelligent, they're more even-tempered, can plan long-term. And in fact, orangutans are the escape artists of zoos because of their long-term planning, quiet observation and reflection. Really? And solving problems and puzzles. So to compare, to call, uh, you know, the soon-to-be ex-president who can't even figure that out, an orangutan is such an insult to orangutans. So what is, so what is, (laughs) so again, we owe the great apes an apology. And one of the ways to apologize is by going to greatapes.org and making a donation. We did a pretty good job Saturday night raising money for the great apes and I'm so grateful yeah so am i and we want to zero out their wish list they have all these different toys and food stuff that they need but in defense of human beings again i'm not i'm not defending how we've treated these beings but when you look at louis mm-hmm. holding that pumpkin it's not just fraternal instinct it's also obsessive intellectual curiosity like who are you and i mean who like what are you thinking i want to know you look 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 at because we're seeing ourselves in them right i mean they're so similar to us that we can't help but feel that and and you know what I, i think that that is so that actually, to me, elevates it even more, the importance of acknowledging their individuality. And, you know, people can, what you see in zoos, this is not their individuality. You don't know them. You, you're not knowing them. And so <laughs> I love that for the same reason, right? You look at, you look at the... Um, the, the baby gorilla and you look at the baby human and they both react the same way. And so I feel that same. The reason I became a biologist was because I wanted to know animals. I want to know who you are. Why are you this way? I named all my prairie dogs. I, I named the squirrel outside of my, my, my screen and I have conversations with this squirrel. I'm following a beaver and, and, and checking out, you know, the progress every day and saying, wow, that's a good job. You work really hard. I've never seen the beaver, but I know the beaver's there because of all the wood chips I find. Right. Now, let me but, ask you a question. Do you know who this baby is? The, 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 not the human, the, the ape. Is that a male or a female? Well, so I happen to know it's a, a male, mm-hmm. but... but only because I know the adult uh, uh, coming up, you know, if you show that picture. Yeah, I will in a second because we have Dr. We have Dr. Philip Hershenfeld. But but, you know, you would anatomically if he wasn't covering his arm, there's no diapers on him as opposed to the baby. I have no idea if that's a boy or a girl, Um, you know, but if his if his little arms were moved, we would find out, you know, that he's a little boy. Mm-hmm. Um. <laughs> so he's a little boy, and and we have Dr. Philip Hershenfeld, who's a Freudian psychoanalyst, and his son standing by, yes. and and we're looking at a little baby 
baby ape. Gorilla. Gorilla. And now we're going to see what the uh, what he looks like full grown. And this, I, I, and I'm going to yeah. ask Dr. Philip Hershenfeld, this is how every father sees his fully grown son. <laughs> right? Well, and you know, his nose looks like a little heart. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> but as a, as a threat to <laughs> the father, he's no longer the baby. This is, that's Ethan, fully grown. <laughs> <laughs> who uh, wants to kill his father. Now, listen, David, you, you've repeated this calumny a number of times, I've noticed, in the last number of meetings we've had. I've and noticed I, it also. I think it says something about David. Uh, let's yes. talk about that. I think we should talk about that. We should explore that, David. Is that projection, um, yeah. Dr. Phil? I think David has to lie down on the floor, <laughs> say whatever comes into his mind, and we'll figure it out. I have a fully grown son, and uh -huh. they, they go from what's on the left to what's on the right, and, <laughs> and, and it's not pleasant sometimes. Uh, back again, if you, if you wait long enough. They what? I said, and then back again. And then back long. again. Yeah, we all end up in diapers a second time. Yeah. Let, let me finish up with Dr. Verdelin and talk, and we'll talk about the apes, because I, I, we're running a little behind today. I wish, you, I wish the two of you could have come to the, uh, the benefit for the Center for Great Apes. It's, uh, it's confusing, Dr. Verdelin. It really is. And I made some mistakes. Well... We well you know, I think, again, right, like, I want to say, I want to reframe, you know, all of the, the, the self that you see in, uh, of yourself that you see in these individuals, and the personalities that you see come out, and the, the similar, the way you want to make an analogy to people that, you know, or that you might know, it's, it's no different than I sort of make the analogy uh, I take animal behavior and, and I zoomorphize people. I, I just think that's more respectful to the animals. Right. But also, you know, to be careful that because when you say, you know, oh, he's he's like my Uncle Bob. And, you know, mm -hmm. I don't want to lose the individuality of Marco. I don't want to lose his story and that he is a he has a right to his own existence that is separate from molestation of humans on their habitat, on their families, on their, on their babies. And that when we do that, then they have a right to the ability to live peacefully and be with each other and have those relationships that fulfill them and to move away from this anthropocentric, um, position that we we occupy all the time right and so this is uh noelle is on the on my what is she my right um and you know for me i feel privileged because i've known them noelle i've known since she was six months old and i know that she loves chapstick especially if it's flavored and wow. i i know that she signs apple and I know that Kenya, who I believe is the one hugging her, 
um, no, that's Grubb. So he, he died um, uh, in 2011, but Grubb loved to be chased. When you um, say hug, I, 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 I'm sorry, but when you say loves to be hugged, since I don't get to see this, and if you visit the Center for Great Apes, you, it's it's not a tourist attraction, right? You don't get to. It's not open to the public. It's not open to the they, public. There is a member event twice a year where members are invited, and you get to meet the apes, in the sense that you you know they are guarded by you know uh, their caretakers to you know make sure that well-meaning humans don't throw food in or do other unfortunate behaviors. Um, and, and so the, there's twice a year, there's a member event where members are invited to the center and, you know, you're not likely to see, you know, well, if this were Kenya, which is also who Noel is housed with, you won't necessarily see them hugging because it's very stressful for them to have lots of people milling about. That's not the normal day to day life that they're in. And, and so, I think that, you know, you can see their normal behavior if you want to look at wild cams. There are chimp wild cams um, in different forests, and you can see their behavior. Yeah, before you go, this is why you don't need to go to a zoo. Although, right. uh, what, what, what are we looking at here? And then well, the- and you're not likely to see this at a zoo, right? When animals are stressed, they don't behave. They behave in different ways. Um, this so- is a happy gorilla. Again, <laughs> yeah, we don't know the sex, saying- do we? Um, this, I believe, is a female. But I, mean, I could be wrong. I and- believe it's a female. But, um, I, she- you know... The male, let me just say that gorilla penises are about two inches big, fully erect. So it'd be pretty tough amongst all the fur and the belly and everything, um, unless it's a silverback. And I can't see, you know, the back of this one to see if it's a black back, which is on its way to becoming a silverback. Um, So I don't know if it's a young male or if it's a female. I would guess female, but... I could be wrong. And, and for so. those of who are listening, <laughs> she is playing with a branch. She's in a tree. She's kind yeah. of chewing on it and using it as a tool. She's scratching her head with it. Yeah, it's a multi. So they like to eat the pith, which is the inner part. But why waste the opportunity to scratch your back, amuse yourself? Um, you know, so so I think that. This is a very relaxed gorilla. <laughs> That's one thing we can say. It's not rushed, not not agitated, taking its time, playing with its food, basically. Right? And um, and so, so I think that when you, first of all, mostly in zoos, you don't see them up in trees or, or doing anything like this because they're in a really small enclosure. Look at her breaking the branch and looking, sure, her, and then she makes a choice. Neck, with, right? I'm sorry? With her back or neck, right? Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> it, it, so. And she breaks it again. Yeah. And she's looking at it. And t- kind of taste testing it. Like, nah, I don't know how tasty this thing is. Um, you know? Sort of how I feel about kale. And she wants to be left alone right now. She's just. 
Well, she is left alone, right? Like she has the option to be left alone. This is the thing, right? Like to have the option to hang out in a tree, bust around with a, with a branch, eat a little, break it, scratch yourself, play with your food, dangle, beat your chest. So that's why I think, I think we, we decided this was a male because only males do that. Yeah, what is the beating of the chest? She finishes up, she just beats her chest. Well, he, oh, he, he, he beats likely. his yeah, chest. Yeah. So, so males, their chest is structured differently, not unlike in humans, right? Like we have a different chest structure than you guys. <laughs> um, but theirs has sort of got this percussion ability and so it can be, um, you know, it's a, it's a way of communicating. Young males will practice this quite a bit. Uh, even young, young ones as young as two or three years old, they're, they're super babies and they copy dad. They're like, oh, yeah, I can do this, uh, you know, and, and they, don't, they don't make much of, uh, of a noise until they're older. So I think we should next time get a, a full video with sound of a, of a silverback, uh, making making his uh, you know chest beat like a drum. Right, and if you yeah. we're gonna wrap. Oh, there's Marco again. He wanted to say hello. <laughs> yeah, so I don't want to cut into uh, Doctor Philip Hershenfeld's time or or Ethan's time. So, but, but, um, but let me just uh, suggest that if you want to hear a pant hoot, I <laughs> go to the David Feldman Show YouTube channel. Pant hoots and long calls, a benefit for the Center for Great Apes. Right. And here's here's another teaser, David. So in February, when we hold this next telethon on the salacious sex lives of humans and other animals, for, for the Great Apes, if there's two people I'm hoping can join us from the Center for Great Apes, you might just get a pant hoot chorus. Because we we, all are right. Very good at pant hooting. (laughs) All right. Before you go, Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, we are doing shows Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve because they fall on Thursdays. So I'm just putting that out there. Okay. I I hope you can show up for. Yes. You will show up for our New Year's Eve show. Of course. Where am I going? Good. I'm here with Senior Buttons. Okay. Good. (laughs) Doctor, that's that's good news. Dr. Jennifer Vertolin is an animal behaviorist, a professor. You can follow her on Twitter at Real Dr. Jen, and go to jennifervertolin.com. Sign up for her newsletter and Wild. I, 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 what is the name of your YouTube channel? Wild Connection? Connection. Wild, Wild Connection. Connection TV. You can watch yep. Dr. Jennifer Vertolin. And I look forward to talking to you next week. If you love Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, go to Center for Great Apes.org. Did, did I say that right? You did. You did. And, and you'll be able to, to do a live, uh, live, uh, a video session uh, this this twelfth of, of of the apes um, on their Facebook page, and there's a live auction, and all of that is found on their website. So thank you, and thanks to everybody who came Saturday night. Right, thank, we raised a little money, and if you love Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, if you want to thank her, go to centerforgreatapes.org and give them a dollar, or check out the wish list by. They have an Amazon wish list and you can buy some peanut butter 
or a sandbox <laughs> or what else? Or paintbrushes. They paint. Paintbrushes, canvases, juice. All you can buy juice for the apes? <laughs> wow. Juice. Juice. <laughs> oh, juice. Juice. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Let us now go to the dark recesses of our gray matter. Joining us is actor and singer and comedian, Harvard apologist, Ethan Hershenfeld. And you are the son, I believe you are the son of a Freudian psychoanalyst who that joins us, Dr. Philip Hershenfeld. Thank you. And happy Hanukkah to both happy of you. Hanukkah. Can I ask a question? Yes. Were we just listening to a talking prairie dog? Was, was yes, that? they talk. That was amazing. <laughs> it's, it's great to see you. Uh, now, Hanukkah. Go it's ahead, okay. doctor. Go ahead, please. It's okay to see you, Dave. <laughs> uh, Hanukkah, it's the first night of Hanukkah. It's not really, it's not a real holiday, right? It's not, it's not what's, what's known among the Jews as a Yom Tov or a Yontif. It's not an actual holy day. It's more of a festival and a... The, the, the thing about Hanukkah that, that's very confusing for Gentiles is, is the ch, because you see it's spelled in so many different ways. Is it two N's? Is it a K? Is it an H? Is it a CH? Is it capitalized? Is it hyphenated? It's a disaster of a holiday. The reason it's eight nights is because it takes eight nights to figure out how to spell it. <laughs> that's where that tradition came from. It's just a disaster of a holiday. Um, so I, I, I do you approve I of Hanukkah? I do not recommend it. Do you I approve do of it? I do approve of it because I, I, you know, I have a, a soft spot because as a kid it was exciting. It was a, it was a way that you're. It was basically the parents could torture their kids because there's eight nights and there's supposedly eight nights of gifts, but basically it's eight nights of dreck. <laughs> the last night you get a decent gift, right? should be a crescendo of generosity from, from the first day to the eighth, but it never is. It's more, it's like a, it's not like a, it's not like a Y equals X squared. It's, there's no parabolic growth. It's more of a, it's a very slow. It's like, it's like Y equals Y equals one. It's the graph of Y equals one. It's just a horizontal line. And then suddenly you get a sort of vertical like X equals eight. That's the that's the formula for Hanukkah. It's a nothing. It's just, forget it. Just it's it's shameful. I mean, it's a shander. This entire holiday is an attempt for the Jews to catch up to the Christians. Yes, they, they, yes, that's what happened. We got we came here. We saw these them the Gentiles getting gifts, and the Jewish children clamored for gifts. So the parents said, "Fine, you want a gift? Here, I'll give you eight eight pairs of socks." <laughs> yeah, but you're complaining. I got any combination of socks, underwear, and pajamas for the whole eight days. There was no crescendo whatsoever. It was a dead flat line. You didn't get on the eighth day a bicycle or something? <laughs> I, was, I was promised a pony every year. Wow. Have you seen a pony? I, I saw a pony. A pony. Well, let me, let me just ask, do you, do you, so you don't approve of Hanukkah? There's gambling, I believe. 
This really? family is whoring. There's a little illicit drug use. <laughs> no, I mean, isn't there like the spinning of a dreidel where you yeah. bet? You yeah. bet on it. Yes. Yeah, and if it lands pointing to you, you have to tongue kiss your great nephew. <laughs> it's just a weird, it's just a bunch of weird traditions. And, and, and money, you know, there are certain stereotypes that Jews... That you promulgate (laughs) at every every opportunity, I have noticed. But they give, they give you, uh, is it gelt? Gold gelt. 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 Donica gelt. And it looks like it looks like it looks like gold coins, but it's cheap chocolate. It's chocolate. And they so they have you (laughs) eating money. (laughs) That's of course. Don't the don't the Gentiles eat money also? No, no, they eat chocolate covered eggs, fertility, the circle Uh, of life. They have us eating money. Huh? I never thought of it that way. Isn't that kind of. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing to give money to your kids, but to eat it, what, what is that? Let's talk about money. I'll, I'll, I'll start my question with uh, the son of the psychoanalyst and see okay. if he gets it right, Dr. Philip Hershenfeld. I've, I've got a grading paper here. Okay. Attitude towards money shaped by toilet training. Is that what pretty much how it works that you show your gift to the world and if you're you're shamed then you become retentive and you're afraid to be artistic and you're cheap i i I generally abjure those retrograde freudian theories from the very beginning of that school of thought, that sort of equating poop and money and all that. But in this case, you happen to be right. <laughs> and there's, and, there's, and there's, there's actually etymological evidence for the uh, connection, for the very strong connection between money and fecal matter. And it, it's, it's the following. Um, in in Italy, uh, in in the pre-Republican era in Italy, the the money was a ducat. How many ducats were, were you giving someone? Here's ten ducats. Here's two ducats. Go get yourself something pretty. And then uh, later, you, you hear the the phrase. Uh, uh, he just dropped a dookie on the sidewalk. Yes. The dookie and the ducat is uh-huh. etymological proof of the connection that you are averring. And why do they call Mussolini? Um, il, <laughs> il duce, the duke. To his face? <laughs> I, I, don't, I think he went for that. He, it's one of those nicknames. It was like me and on the basketball team. I came up with my own nickname. If you have to come up with your own nickname, it's not a good nickname. My, my nickname I devised was Swish. Swish, you know, like the ball. I thought it was like the you know no nothing but net. So I called, but no one. It didn't catch on. I had to pay people to call me Swish. Swish. Plus, Do- and it's, it sounds like a toilet thing. It's a terrible okay. nickname. Doctor Hershenfeld, how many times when he was growing up did sure. you turn to your wife and say, "What are we going to do with him? What are we going to do with him?" 
the humor was a was it was uh, a problem. It was hard to control. It was <laughs> a, a a rapier like weapon. Um, but then you would laugh anyway. Right. Your greatest attempt to keep a straight face. So it was rapier, but it wasn't the rapiest. <laughs> Did I ask you this? Did I, did I, I, I have a, a legitimate question. So how is he doing so far, Dr. Hershenfeld? 10 out of 10. Yeah, I agree with you. Okay. I, I, it's amazing. It is, it is. It, it's a, absolutely, I'm almost developing a soft spot for Harvard. Okay. I'm actually getting. Oh, did you see that that guy, uh, that, that uh, African-American Wall Street titan, who's now put his hat in the ring to run for New York City mayor? He's a Harvard man. Very exciting. Great. Okay, Great. moving on. Now it, now it hardened up. My, my soft spot for Harvard just got... Uh, I, I am divorced. And one of my kids went back to L.A. and went through some storage stuff and found pictures from like 20 years ago. And there are all these pictures of my daughters and they are absolutely gorgeous and they're doing everything right and they are perfect, right? And then one of my sons, I, I get these pictures that, you know, they're scanning stuff and I get a sad gram from when my son was five. He had gone to the Museum of Natural History for their little camp. And when we went to pick him up, they gave us a sad gram because my son, according to this sad gram that they fill out, we regret to inform you that your son had trouble behaving today. He, and then the blank, right? He was kicking, licking other students, pantsing, them then they explain oh. what pantsing is he was pulling down other people's pants and if this behavior continues we're afraid he can't come to the natural history museum camp anymore i'm not they, making this they, up they didn't they didn't make an exception for him because of who his father was no i know that's what i first so I'm not making this up. I would send it to you. I'd show it, but his name is on it. So I have to blank it out. She, the, the, the camp counselor, there wasn't enough room on the sad gram to list all the Rico predicates he was guilty of. It just went on and on. So now and this is a serious question. Of all the, the, the artifacts from 20 years ago, that's the one thing that that I'm sending to everybody, that my kids were laughing. That, that's the thing that brought everybody joy. Not the beautiful pictures of these beautiful kids. The, 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 that, that sad gram of the child being so... I think I asked you about this. Did I ask you about this? No, I, can't, I can't let it go. So what is it that brings me such joy that he was a bad kid. What, why am I, why does that, and, and back then it brought me joy. What is that? Did you ever read the O. Henry story? Nobody knows who Henry is anymore, but he was a great American 
short story writer, I guess 100 years ago. The Ransom of Red Chief. I never Go read on. it, no. Go on. Everybody run out and read it. It's a great short story. <clears throat> There's this little kid who plays Indian, calls himself Red Chief, Native American. And he's kidnapped by these two kidnappers. And the parents, they couldn't care less. <laughs> because they know what's going to happen. <laughs> the kidnappers finally have to pay them to take him <laughs> and And it's just a wonderful story because we just love this image of... Uh, Dennis this, the Menace. Dennis the Menace, absolutely. Huckleberry Finn. And we can all identify with that kid, with that troublemaker, with that irrepressible kid who's who's just going to keep on doing his own thing and not be contained. And uh, we'd love to be like that, except we're grown up and civilized and we can't. So that right. I right. Civilization and its disc. So there, we're always back to that again. Yeah. 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 Proud, almost proud. So when so when he when Ethan misbehave or misbehaves, did you laugh or did you get it? He never misbehaved. Not once. No, no, no. That's not true. I was I was frequently in trouble in my during my parochial education days. I was not a happy student at that place. So I would get sent to the office a lot. Um. But um, but but children are supposed to misbehave, right? It's part. If if a child is af afraid of misbehaving, then that says something, right? Too inhibited, absolutely. But you can also over misbehave. And does do you see? Well, let me ask Ethan this. Yes. Do you do you see, you do see? Would you say how how what what defines seven a out of ten? Seven out of ten. Okay. What, what defines a generation? Like how many years for a new generation to to come? A new generation of. Are you talking patients. about iPhones? <laughs> so it's six months. People. Oh, people. Oh, okay. yeah. Um, I would say it used to be twenty years, but now it's more like thirty-two. Okay. Do do you think your father sees? new generations of children that are identifiable, like, you know, boomers and no. Generation I, I think X. it's all the same. I think people are people pretty much. Yeah, but but the parent, doesn't the parenting change? Isn't it a Hegelian? Isn't it dialectic? <laughs> oh, like, I, I'm, I'm curious. We'll ask your father in a second. Wouldn't you think that if you're raised one way, then you raise your you don't want to repeat the mistakes i think that, that i think that that's the impulse and people try to do that so then it would just be a back and forth so maybe it wouldn't be a progression in one direction it would be a, from a hippie to a strictie to a hippie to a strictie back and forth but then these family uh schedules don't line up so it's a big mishmash so you can't say it's gener you can't say each generation is different but you can look at sp individuals Listen, David, everything I'm saying to you when I answer a question like this is based on my watching of Netflix. I don't have kids, <laughs> so I have no experience. Dr. Hershenfeld. Let, 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 yeah, let the doctor answer. Is yeah. it? 
he, he's right. In, in there are two major influences. One is societal, so that in in a permissive uh, generation, like when everybody gets a trophy, that has an effect. But it's not the central effect. The central effect is the dynamics of the individual family and the personalities within the individual family. So, but but the other thing does have some degree of effect. And by the way, if Ethan wants to tell it, my favorite of his oh, story, another Freudian psychiatrist got a beard. Whenever you it. hear that, and. My favorite story is when he was kicked out of school for the day and sent home. If he wants to tell it, if he remembers. I don't, I don't remember what I did. Or I don't remember the story. I think it was bouncing a basketball oh. in this open classroom school down all the stairs. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah, I don't remember that. But I was. Yeah. And, and you thought it was funny. I, I don't know. I. I it's a bit of a, the 70s are a bit of a blur for me. Just, <laughs> but do you remember thing. what happened when you passed our neighbor's house? No. Oh. No. So we lived in this area, and right next door to us was a very, very, very wealthy family. Oh, and they had donated the, the building for the they school. They donated the building. They sort of owned the whole school. So Ethan's walking down the school, down the sidewalk home, and Mrs. J looks out and says, well, what are you doing out of school? And he tells the story of the uh, head guy at the school, threw him out for the day and sent him home. Well, she tore the head off of this guy. Oh, this is all, this is apocryphal. I, I'm no, it happens, it happened. You you sent this child walking over a mile home and on and on and on. Oh, wow. I, I love that story. That's a good story. Whether it's true or not, I don't care. It's a nice okay. story. It's a very nice story. You want to hear a story that, that sticks with me? My, my son yeah. was in first grade, and I went to their science fair, and his lab part, he had a lab partner in first grade and he goes uh this is roger this is my father and roger goes i know who you are uh you're on tv sometimes roger goes you're on tv sometimes and i i immediately realized that my son because I would, um, you know, a fail. I became a comedy writer, but occasionally I would go on Conan or, you know, the Tonight. You know, to, but I couldn't make a living as a stand-up. And whenever I did TV, I would make a big thing out of it at, in the house. But I go, yeah, sometimes I'm on TV. So you know, don't. Uh, so my son qualified when people. What does your father do? He's on TV sometimes. Some don't don't think that he's a he's not a star. Sometimes Roger goes, yeah, you're on TV sometimes, and he wasn't making fun of me. That's right. that he thought my job was. He's on TV sometimes anyway. Um, yeah. 
Interesting time of the year. So do we try to, is it natural to, well, I guess if you had a happy child, you think, childhood, you think you're going to raise your kids exactly the way your parents did, but nobody had a happy childhood. So you do the opposite, right? To some degree or another, you try, but you also can't, by the way. So, um, because what's bred in the bone is in the bone. So it's, it's hard to fight against it. Just often on the surface, you can be very different, but, but it ends up more or less being the same. Right. When does it get easy being a parent? What's that? When does it get easy to be a parent? Did I tell you the joke? No. A rabbi, a priest, and a minister discussing when life begins. And the priest says, obviously at conception. The minister says, obviously at birth. The rabbi says, life begins when the dog dies and the kids go to college. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The other one I heard, I heard Billy Crystal tell this. Uh, two Jews meet in a in a park. The first one sits down and goes, Oy! and the second one goes, Oy! and the other one goes, I thought we weren't going to talk about the kids. That was the, the uh, yeah. Hanukkah. Hanukkah. Hanukkah, Hanukkah. Do, what, do you know Everybody what it's about? Do you remember what, what it was about? Interestingly, I was just reading about it. It turns out it's a sort of Taliban kind of story. Well, the I Jews were ta- the Jews. Well, yeah, that's the thing. The, the original the thing we're taught in school is that it was these freedom fighters against these Hellenistic um, um, conquerors who were trying to turn the Jews Hellenistic, and the Maccabees rose up uh, to to revolt. But in fact, I think the historical record seems to show from some apocalyptic, uh, sorry, apocryphal literature shows that, in fact, the Maccabees were going after the local Jews who were willing to Hellenize a little bit. So they were willing to go along with the conquerors and say, OK, let's be a little bit Greek. Well, like we'll have the Greek salad. Well, you know, we'll a little bit Greek, but we're not going to have the souvlaki. That's where we draw the line. And these Maccabees said, that was their main target. So wait a second. So there, there was the Israeli salad. What's in an Israeli salad? That's just you take a cucumber and a tomato, you cut it up very small, then you cut it up again, and then you cut it up again because you just you think you know better than everybody else. Like, oh, you, oh, you, think, you think that's small. I will show you what is small. That's not small. Look at how sharp my knife is. My knife is So that's the Israeli salad, right? Yeah. And, and, the, and the Maccabees... Yeah, the Maccabees uh, only they, wanted the Israeli salad. Right. Well, yeah, sort of. Yeah. And, yeah. and their kids they, were going off. Yeah, their kids were like, OK, we'll put a, we'll put a little tuna in there, <laughs> a little bit of an anchovy. We'll, we'll, we're willing to. And they said, no, no. And, and, and they, the Maccabees were willing to just say, get get out of our re- if you're going to put an anchovy in our salad. And yeah, we'll egg, put you to death, we'll put you to death we'll kill you. over yeah. a salad. All of that over a salad. It's all very symbolic. (laughs) The interesting thing about the Greek salad, which we might not have discussed, is if you order a a small, that's like a regular portion. If you order the next portion up, there's no middle. It's either small or (laughs) enormous for the whole family for a week. 
You get one of those things, and you can't. I mean, you're 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 burping olives till the next lunch. It's a lot of food. What are they thinking? Why don't they don't know the word? They don't have the word medium in Greek. <laughs> It's very, it's very upsetting. Okay. Well, something we can solve this. All right. Let's wrap this up. I'll see you, uh, the two of you, for uh, Christmas Eve and hey. New Year's Eve. Do we have to wear white beards? Yes. Okay. You're on. <laughs> um, you know what the Hasidic Santa says when he's coming down the chimney? Oi, oi, oi. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, Christmas Eve, I am doing the comic strip. They have a Christmas Eve comedy show every year. This year it's happening on Zoom. So you can come. It's a very Jewish Christmas Eve comedy show, which is a tradition, Chinese food and comedy on Christmas Eve from the comic strip on East 82nd Street. What, what's going on with the comedy clubs? I, I, I think nothing. I mean, like I heard like. Dangerfields, I think, is defunct, right? Yeah. 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 When does they it come? Will, they will arise again. Yeah. Going uh-huh. out and laughing with other people. We right. are communal animals. We need. Yes. Yeah, we need to, to hoot like those apes. Yeah, right. they right. laugh together. Yeah. Well, there's a benefit. Thank you, Dr. Hershenfeld and son, son of Dr. Hershenfeld. Thank you, doctor. David Thank you, David. Let, Thank let, you, let's, let's plug this gig that, that, that you and the Reverend. Yes, please. I put it in the chat. I'll put it in there again. It's only three days away right now. Sunday evening, 7 p.m. In fact, right now, three, three, uh, three uh, turns around the whatever. Three, whatever. You know what I'm talking about. Three days from now. Um, MVP, Movement Voter Project, which gives Every penny you give, it goes straight to these grassroots organizations. And right now, because the runoff elections are so soon in Georgia, they're happening on January 5th. So right now, um, MVP has set it up so that if you donate through our link, the money goes straight to these 13 organizations in Georgia. They're not even um, warehousing the money because there's no time to lose. So if you donate at the link to MVP to their Georgia project. The money is going straight to these grassroots organizations that are trying their darndest to get Warnock and Ossoff elected so that the Democrats can control the Senate, which is what we need um, for obvious reasons. The two people they're running against are criminals. Can I say that? Uh, Alleged criminals. uh, Ossoff called Purdue. Yeah, he's a criminal. He's a crook. He just takes information that's not public. He trades on it. He makes extra millions of dollars. The other one is a seems to have a lot of air between her ears and a lot of money uh, in her mattress. She's married to the guy who owns the stock exchange. Yeah. Yeah. So they're both doing well for themselves and they should leave humanity alone and not be running for office. But why don't you explain what they do with that money once it gets down to Georgia? You weren't clear about that. Oh, okay. Thank you. Um, So the money goes to grassroots organizations like the, um, the um, black male voters project, which we, we had uh, on an an MVP event the other night, the guy who founded that was speaking. It's an incredible organization like black voters matter. Um, Um, and other gra- other local organizations that work on progressive issues that are vital to young and communities of color 
and um, they make the difference. They made the difference in the presidential election in several of these states, including Georgia. So it's um, well, let's bring bring the Reverend Barry W. Yeah, Lynn because you're doing it together, right? We're doing it together. Yeah. Maybe he can explain it better than I did. I sort of flubbed the explanation, but no, no they're perfectly good. Perfectly okay. good explanation. Now, are, are you joining us today from your Malibu compound? Yes. That's some collection plate, Reverend. Let me introduce the, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. Yeah. For nearly a quarter of a century, he ran Americans United for separation of church and state. He is an attorney. He is a member of the Supreme Court Bar. And besides all that, he is also an ordained minister in the United Church of... I'm just look. I got it. I got it. Christ? Am I pronouncing that? Christ. United Nations of Christ. Interesting. Welcome. You're, really, you're a genius, David, for being able to remember this from week to week. It's tough. I got, it's, it's a balancing act. It's a balancing act. But kudos for you. Thank you. What is going on in Georgia? Well, it, it, there are two crooks running. Oh, and Ethan is right. I mean, these are not people who just have a different viewpoint than people like us have. These are people who are engaged in acts that are absolutely despicable. And you're right. John did say to uh, David Perdue, uh, you are a crook. And that's why David Perdue has never been willing to have another debate. This past Sunday, there were two debates sponsored by the Atlanta Press Association. One of them had John Ossoff with an empty podium. And I thought that's, a, that's a pretty much as bad as you can get as a debater until Kelly Loeffler came up and actually was physically present with Pastor Raphael Warnock. And she repeated, uh, I suggest if like, you have trouble going to sleep, go on YouTube, watch the debate. Here, here's a woman who referred to Warnock as a radical liberal Raphael Warnock. Very hard to say that. Yeah. But she said it something like 22 times. She had no ideas. She kept telling people that she was, she knew how tough it was because she waitressed in high school. Now, she made out pretty well, as Ethan suggested, 500, possibly $800 million. She's certainly the wealthiest member of Congress. And she actually got an African-American woman to say in a commercial that started about a week ago, we really need someone like Kelly Loeffler because not only does she know how to make payroll she knows what how important it is to get paid. Now, that's absurd. But she did recently get paid when she went on to become the United States senator appointed by the governor of Georgia. She, she had to leave her job with a cryptocurrency branch of, the, of her husband's New York Stock Exchange program. So she got a severance package. Um, Nine million dollars. Nine million dollars. And you know, it might not have been actually illegal, but why do we not hold political leaders to a standard that means if you didn't technically violate the law, if you 
do the kinds of things both of these characters have done, you do not deserve to stay in the Georgia seats in the United States Senate. It's the money. There just seems to be no way to keep the money out of Washington, D.C. I know you talk about Citizens United, but I don't know. It, it almost. Let's talk about the Defense Authorization Act. Trump yeah. is threatening to veto it. Why? Well, there are two things he says he's upset about. One is uh, the fact that there's a provision in it to remove the names of Confederate generals from military bases. And that overwhelmingly supported in the House and the Senate. And the Pentagon. And the Pentagon. Everybody's in favor of it except Trump. And then the other thing he's brought in, this is always, this defense uh, Act Authorization Act has always brought out the worst in people. I mean, they attach all kinds of crap to it. So he wanted to include a repeal of a little section, an important section uh, of an Electronic Privacy Act. Uh, it's called Section 230. Basically, it says if if you got run Twitter or you run a little organization, you have a Twitter feed, you have a YouTube feed, and somebody puts something on it that is criminal, you're not held responsible. And that's important. And it was very important for the growth of the internet, that people didn't have to worry that somebody was going to put a little link somewhere to a massage parlor that did more than massage. And all of a sudden, they'd be held liable for participating in a criminal act. Right. He wants to get rid of it because he's managed to convince a lot of people that somehow this will have an effect on Facebook and Twitter's alleged opposition to conservative voices. But it has almost nothing to do with that. Right. But what he really wants to do, he's worried about something else. Uh, Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney from New York I think she's my congresswoman. Well, she could be. She, um, she's been working for years on a very simple idea. And that is that if you form a shell corporation, you have to disclose at roughly the time of setting it up who are the actual beneficiaries of that corporation. So if you, if you set up something that is a shell corporation, which Trump has done many of these shell corporations and clearly doesn't want to inhibit his capacity for forming new shell corporations over the next few years. And this bill is now part of the Defense Authorization Act, too. And he never Trump never admits that that's something he's opposed to. But I guarantee you he is worried as hell about what that could mean for his uh, mismanaged future once he's out of office. Right, right. The Defense Authorization Act. Uh, and Facebook, by the way, the, the, it's kind of interesting, you're, you're an attorney. The Justice Department won't go after Facebook, but the state's attorneys generals have gone after Facebook. Right. How is that different from the, the DOJ, their antitrust unit, going after Facebook? Yeah, you know, I'm no expert on antitrust, but 
the fundamental question here is whether Facebook can also have collateral companies uh, that do other things and that people might not even know are connected to Facebook. So I have a feeling it's it's going to be less important once it's resolved because it's going to be. But what fairly- what is the difference between the state's attorney generals trying to break up Facebook and the DOJ trying to do it? It's 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 done. It's states. It's states. Yeah, but it, well, it's still it's still done in federal court. Right. And, and states attorney generals are, if this is possible, and we now know it is, are even more partisan than the Justice Department, because, uh, of course, they filed this uh, completely frivolous lawsuit uh, to try to overturn the results of the presidential election. A phenomenal number of attorneys general in Republican states have signed on to this brief. And the brief basically argues for the sake of trying to figure out what it is, basically says we in Texas, where this thing starts, we in Texas could have Texas political decisions being made by a new administration, specifically the vice president, Kamala Harris, could cast the decisive vote and it could have an effect on Texas. That's their that's their biggest claim. It, it's literally I cannot tell you I have never seen in Washington and I've been here since 1973. I have never seen the shenanigans that are going on. They're not shenanigans. The, the terrible things that are being done to try to seize democracy from the people out in and, the open. And that, that's the question well, yeah. that I have for you is. You've never seen it, but maybe it was going on. But the Republicans now are just out in the open this time. Is that a fair? Well, yeah, there's always been strange things going on in in Congress that should not be viewed in the light of day. That's true. But, But just yesterday, late in the day, 106 members of the House of Representatives signed on to a statement in support of this nonsensical lawsuit that Trump hopes will overturn the results in four states. That's seditious behavior. Seditious behavior. That is an effort to overturn the democratic principles of the country. 106 put their name on it and of course i'm sure they'll get around to it some of these weirdos that have been elected who haven't yet become part of the house of representatives are probably going to sign on within the next few days and rush limbaugh he's saying that there's going to be a secession well (laughs) you know there are days when I think that wouldn't be a terrible idea. But and who's people, who's seceding from where? Like, is it because I oh, did I did look at that congressional map. Sure. It's pretty red. And then you yeah. have the coastal yep. states that are blue and there are a couple is just a couple of specks of blue in the middle. 
What would a secession look like? You know, people have actually done a lot of research about this. There are very serious, not Rush Limbaugh, of course, is an idiot, but I, I think Al Franken said that. But big fat idiot. Big fat idiot. But I don't like to comment on people's yeah. appearances, as you know, so I didn't even want to admit that. But um, he, people have been writing, and they're very interesting. If people want to go search on the Internet for these things, there, there are proposals where they've figured out which states, and it's not necessarily divided in two. Some people think precisely because there are so many red states and blue states, but there are a lot of people in the middle. Where do they go? Maybe it should be a third country. And then you say, well, what if you live in North Dakota and you really like it there? Well, you'll be safe because they'll, they'll have the same kind of people that have been elected in North Dakota in recent years. But if you want to move, there are complex ideas about selling your property to the state or to the whatever the new country is called, or trading your homestead for some homestead in Western Massachusetts, if you want to move there. It's very complicated, but there are days when I think we're so, we are so divided. We aren't just divided about a, a couple of little things. These are fundamental changes in where and how we look at democracy. And we right. just, well, you, you have, so what you have for the first time is a party that's openly saying they're against democracy. Correct. It, it, it has devolved from let's suppress the vote, let's okay. make it harder to vote, to let's overturn an election. Let's use the courts right. to just overturn the will of the people. They are. And Trump has said, and Graham, Senator Graham has said, has said, they've all said, if you allow everyone to vote, you'll never elect Republicans again. Correct. So they are anti-democratic. What are the solution? Isn't the ant? Why is that not being? Why wouldn't the Democratic Party use that as the 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 tent pole? and say, we are the party that wants everybody to vote. The problem, I guess, is a lot of Democrats don't want everybody to vote. Well, there's that problem, too. <laughs> there's, I don't, I, it, one of the things you have to, why is this whole issue not the centerpiece? I mean, I know, I understand that yesterday we got the approval for the COVID-19 vaccine that's a bigger story but this is a huge story when 106 members of the house and lord knows how many people in the senate would if asked sign on to the same thing and we know that ted cruz has volunteered to argue the case in the united states supreme court if the court takes it which he feels confident they will which is the on behalf of the man who insulted his wife oh yeah <laughs> The, the, if you listen to the back and forth between Trump and Cruz in the 2016, I mean, it's it's brutal. So what what is so is it you're a lawyer? Yeah, you're a member of the Supreme Court bar. Ted Cruz, is this it, does Trump have a folder on him? 
Or is there some ideological purity that he's willing to take before the court? Does he believe? Oh, my. Yeah, I think Ted Cruz does believe that there's a colorable, a realistic chance that this nonsensical argument to overturn the will of the people in the four states that really matter, that he not just because he thinks he's a good lawyer, but he thinks there's merit to it. So make the case for me. What is the merit? There is no merit. There's literally nothing about this. There was only one case out of the, what, 56 that that he's brought or somebody has brought on behalf of Trump. The only one that arguably was a legitimate question was to do with Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania's legislature considered the possibility of extending the time uh, for receipt of absentee ballots, and they didn't do it. But the Pennsylvania Supreme Court said, well, you didn't do it, but we think it's a good idea, so we're going to do it. Had that made a difference, as it turned out, only five or 6,000 votes were even cast that only arrived within those three days after the election. But the question of can a court override the apparent disinterest of the legislature in doing something and order it to be done? That was the only thing that in any of these cases that I thought had some merit, but only if it was would have affected a major outcome, which, of course, it wouldn't because so few people's ballots fit into that three day period. These lawyers that, you know, some of these lawyers that that Trump still has. uh, Did I talk about Joe DiGenova last week on this show? I know who he is. I know what he said. Did he call for who did he call to be murdered? (laughs) The head of uh, of uh, cybersecurity who said that there was no effort at, that they could find. Oh, the, the, the guy from Homeland Security yeah, who was fired. He be taken out uh, and hung, I think, was what Joe said. Right. But I've known Joe DeGeneva from almost the time I came to Washington. He used to be the staff director for a very, one of the few last progressive Republicans Charles Mathias of Maryland. He was a staff. I mean, if you wanted a senator to do anything, you had to go to Joe. And then Joe became the U.S. attorney during the Reagan. Krebs. Thank you, Jeff. The, the guy's Krebs. name was Krebs. My friend Jeff Krebs. reminded me. Yeah. But um, yeah, then he became a U.S. attorney. But he was one of those people that had actually cared about the law. I mean, he was a kind of guy, if you wanted somebody to come and you needed a Republican, he would. He'd come over, he'd be on a panel, he'd be on a radio show. And he sounded like a sensible person, as did his wife, Victoria Tensing, Vicky Tensing. And I'll tell you how normal she was. was, First of all, she was a very strong pro-choice Republican woman. And I once encountered her at the local Fox affiliate here in Washington. And uh, we were in the green room, ready to talk. We weren't even on together, but the other person that was there was uh, the champ, the heavyweight champion of the world who had invented a grill. And we said, I said, what are you gonna be talking about champ? And, and he said, well, I've got this new invention, a grill that I'm gonna promote. And then he said, and I'm also, I, I wanna you know, put my support behind Ronald Reagan's efforts to 
bring back prayer to public schools. This is George Foreman you're talking about. George Foreman, man, with the grill. He's still probably selling it. (laughs) So I said, you know, Champ, I I really think that's a bad idea. And Vicki Tensing gets immediately into the conversation. And she says, you know, Barry and I don't agree about a lot of things, but I agree with him. This is a very bad idea. We double teamed the guy for 20 minutes in the green room. And finally, after 20 minutes, he looked at it and he said, you people are really good. I'm not going to support the school prayer amendment, which was good because if he had not liked what we said, he'd have punched me in the face and I wouldn't be here today. Right. Yes. Or maybe just you'd be a little, you know, you'd look like a pancake. I would. Part of me. Yeah. Maybe all of me. Hey, a bit. Um. Before we go, I, a, a listener actually sent me a note about a correction. It's something you said that I agreed with that is really wrong. And it, we can, and I want to do that. Well, you know, you shouldn't be agreeing with me. No, I know that, but I, it was foolish. What did I, I say? What did I get wrong once again? I, I'm reading this. Uh, Mr. Feldman said on the November 19th show with you that Jen O'Malley Dillon was basically a Republican and clerked under Alito. You agreed. You are both incorrect. Jen is just a longtime loyal Democrat who will be deputy chief of staff. You two are confusing Jen with Dana Remus, who will be counsel to the president. Remus did work in Obama's administration and afterwards as general counsel for his foundation. Obama officiated at her wedding in 2018. Oh, okay. For ba- we have smart person. listeners. We do. That's why I wanted to read it. Okay. Screw it up. Why is HBO Max? What's your problem with HBO Max? Well, I think it's going to kill movie theaters. And as you know, I'm a huge movie fan. I use in my retirement before... Um, all of this hit. I mean, I, I went to movies three times a week. And I went in the afternoons usually because I don't like crowds. I don't like people. And um, that's well, always it, nice to have a reverend on the show who doesn't like people. <laughs> I was visiting a friend like, of mine. I don't like sitting with them. I don't mind speaking to them if they're good people. Go ahead. I was v- visiting a friend of mine who's in a who had a minor surgery today and uh, she had to share her room. A lot of noise. People. People. Um, Can I show you? I, I want to ask you about movie theaters. And, well, go go ahead about HBO Max and then I want to... You know I mean? HBO Max has now acquired the rights to all of the films Warner Brothers is going to issue, the big tentpole releases, uh, John uh, King Kong versus Godzilla, Wonder Woman 1984. And they're going to put it on HBO Max for 30 days. And then it's back to being exclusively in movie theaters. But I don't think, I think we've gotten too used to watching. I, I know a friend of mine who's a director said that he ran into a guy who said, you know, I hated that movie, uh, Lawrence of Arabia. And my friend said, well, when did you see that? And he picked up his cell phone and he said, well, I was watching it on this the other night. Wow. 
Lawrence of Arabia, you don't want to see. I disagree uh, with you. <laughs> you didn't want to see it at all. No, I, I, I have watched movies on really small screens. Yeah. You can see the whole thing. Yeah. You, right. you know, you, you can miss something. On a, I'm, being, I'm not making a joke. When no. it's an enormous screen, if you're looking to your left, you miss what's going on on the right. But a small little screen, you see the whole picture. There's, yeah. there's some value to a small screen. Possibly. But there is not enough value to justify expect. You just froze. Like a, you you just turned into a pillar of salt like Lot's wife. Exactly. I don't know what, why you brought that up. What? The whole Lot's wife thing. Because I'm trying to get off salt. (laughs) Why? Were you thinking about Lot's wife? (laughs) She was, you know, I... uh, You know, you got to admit, though. I dated dated her for a while. Yeah. I dated Lot's wife for a while. You've been married to, you're a happily married man. Yeah, I am. So I, you wouldn't appreciate this. But well, tell it. Well, <laughs> tell the joke. But Lot, I'm not, there's no joke. I'm just saying Lot, I think he, I think what a great story to tell to women. My wife, we're, I, I'm saying my wife, is she dead? No. Is she, she's a pillar of salt. Yeah, yeah. That's and what happened? And, and women would feel sorry for you, right? No, you can't. Actually, women—that—that's a no. bad thing. If your wife's a pillar of salt, women aren't going to be interested in you because no. you're still married, and you're married to a pillar of salt. It's so hard as a lawyer. I can say it's so hard to get a divorce uh, with a pillar of salt. It's almost as difficult as getting a divorce from a sex robot. This is my experience. And what happened to her? Did you just. Got licked to death by by Bambi. What what happens? You know, one of your problems, David, is you get the the whole religious stuff mixed up with fairy tales and cartoons. You're a reverend. All the same. You're a reverend. How could you talk that way, especially on this, <clears throat> the first day of some holiday? I hear is very yeah. important. What I understand it's eight days and that, you know, you don't get the good stuff till the eighth day. <laughs> we Christians, we get it all the same day. No, you had to outdo the Jews. You, it's 12 days of Christmas. Nah, we don't. Occasionally, when we had, you know, young kids, we would do the 12 days of Christmas thing. But basically, the, what Christians did recently is to say, you don't have to wait till Christmas morning. You, you can open one package the night before on Christmas Eve. And that, be, that was a huge sea change in the cultural understanding of Christianity among Americans. Before you go, you do yes. realize that we're doing our show mm-hmm. on Christmas Eve, that you do, yeah. you do this show every Thursday. We tape yeah. on Thursdays. Yeah. Christmas Eve falls on a Thursday this year. <laughs> Is the Reverend Barry W. Lynn going to be here Christmas Eve? If you have a little more flexibility on the time. Ah, here we go. 
<laughs> just negotiate. And uh, did I give you a hard time about Hanukkah? This is the first night of Hanukkah. If I did, I call you and say I need flexibility. No, I I kept my word. My promise. You did. You did. Is this you about did. your grand? Is this about your new grandson? Yes, I have to be flexible about that because we may all have a meal that night, and it might run into this seven. You know, I always come on at seven because I like the Hershenfeld so much. All right. But, but, but I'll tell you, no, New Year's Eve, forget about it. You won't, you won't come here for New Year's I, Eve? I can't come. I have a very, very rigid set of things we do on New Year's Eve. But again, if it's kind of in the afternoon-ish, then I'd be happy to. Well, we, we start, I'll put you on early. Yeah, just put me on early. And I'll read back the, the predictions that you made from yeah. last year's New Year's Eve show, where you literally, you got you said 400,000 Americans would be dead yeah. from a coronavirus. You didn't specify, right. you didn't come up, you didn't say 19. It was no. pretty impressive. He was 18 at the time. <laughs> All right. I'm worried about, I'm worried about the, t I'm worried about movie theaters. I love, you know, I have a really big television. I really enjoy Netflix. I think it's the closest thing to the proof of the existence of God you can find. Wow. But having said all of that, having said all of that, I do like the experience and notwithstanding your inability to, to turn your head and look at things. Um, you want to go back to those. You want to go back to theaters. There'll be theaters. There will be. But you know what I think they might be? Those what used to be called revival houses. When, and I, when I had no money at all, you could see two movies for a dollar. And they were movies that might have been really old from the 30s or 40s. There's or a movie theater on 42nd Street. You can see uh, a, a movie for a quarter. <laughs> it's kind of short, but. Yeah. Would you call it a loop? I think so, yeah. Yeah. I don't think there are any of those places left anymore. Although, if you if you had a Walt Disney Theater, then you could have little loops. Like you could only show the murder of Bambi's mother. That's got to be 12 seconds. Right. Quarter. Very sad. Very sad. It was very sad. I was very upset to discover that Bambi was a, a boy and not a girl. Yeah. <laughs> That's changed, too. You don't see any of Bambi's on 42nd Street anymore. Yeah. Every strip. Anyway, let, let it, let's wrap this up. The Reverend All Barry right. W. Lynn is a lawyer, a member of the Supreme Court Bar. I can't believe I'm getting through this show today. It's a miracle. I've had no sleep, but you, really? you, you invigorate me. You do. You breathe life into me. Yeah. Like, like God with Adam. Didn't God breathe life into Adam? Yep. That's the story. How close? With, like mouth to mouth? <laughs> is God Probably. gay? Is God, do you think God yeah. is? Yeah. We could talk about that sometime. Is there a Mrs. God? We don't know. He's a confirmed bachelor? Is he like the senator from South Carolina? Yeah. yeah. God's gay. I will never forget 
when Joanne and I. Mount Rushmore, hand. Mount Rushmore is all men, right? Yeah. God is gay. Probably. He made Mount Rushmore, put all men on it. That is. That is gay. Yeah. Your your yes. wife? Yes, go ahead. And then we have to wrap it up. I do. What what about my wife? <laughs> you brought you brought her up. I'm sure I did, but I don't remember what it was. You think I'm taking notes? Come on, I don't know. You whatever it was. Your wife I remember your wife showed up for office hours when we first started. We and, did. And she did. told us your wife is a doctor. Yep. And she told us what COVID was. Yep. And it and she she spelled it out. There, there was no politics. There, there was no anti-Trump, pro-Trump. She said, this is what's this is what it's going to be. Yep. yep. And I kept thinking, so it's Trump's fault. Ah, so yeah. it's Obama's fault. And she's no, 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 no. This is what this is nothing to do with politics right. this is what we're up against yeah and i kept saying well so bottom line this for me <laughs> so what are we looking at and she said this is what we're looking at and i go but you're giving me gray areas you're not giving me you know it'll be over by she was amazing yeah yeah please give her my best uh, i will certainly do that the reverend barry w lynn for nearly a quarter of a century, ran Americans United for separation of church and state. And besides being a lawyer, besides being a member of the Supreme Court Bar, he is also an ordained minister in the United Church of, and out of respect to you, I want to get this right. It's, uh, I'm going to pronounce this properly, United Church of Christ. Yeah. I did it there. Okay. Well, listen, David, uh, you you know, you know what a codicil to a will is? It's the add on to the will. Well, then what I mentioned earlier about the 106 Republicans who uh, have signed under this statement in support of Trump's ridiculous argument to the Supreme Court, there was a codicil. And a codicil was, I think, 105 of the 106 people asked you, please, don't make that joke every time you talk to me. I mean, I can't help it. It's right here. It's in print. It's on the Internet. Then I have to do it. All right. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you, Reverend Barry. W. Right. Thank you. Let's go to Brooklyn, where Dave Cyrus, the brilliant comedy writer, Dave Cyrus, is standing by. You see his work on SNL, the king of Staten Island, and you saw his work earlier when Robert Smigel called in as Rudy Giuliani, and that was the writing of Dave Cyrus. How funny was that? I haven't, well, I haven't listened to oh, it Oh, it's yet. great. I'm excited to. I'm it's very great. excited. It's I great. had meetings at the time, but uh, I mean, I'm, I'm very excited. I always liked. Someone in your chat just asked me if I was the voice, which means you're not giving Mr. Smigel credit. It was right. No, I said it was Robert Smigel. Okay. Good, what good. was great is I had never heard his Giuliani before. That's funny because I know I have, so now I'm wondering where I would have heard it that you didn't. Well, I would assume he, I must have heard it when he did it, when he was the mayor of, when he was mayor of New York City, Robert must have done Giuliani all the time for Conan when he 
did that, right? Yeah, yeah. And no, I mean, Robert, he has a small number of official uh, impressions, you know, Tarantino, Rudy. I think Robert, can do, I think Robert can do anybody. No, I mean, he doesn't. I'm just saying there's a small number that you've actually seen him do on stage. Like, right. He did. A, he did a couple impressions back in the Dana Carvey show. Right. He is when, an amazing. And he I think he is the Vaughn meter, not the Vaughn meter, the Will Jordan. Will Jordan cracked Ed Sullivan. I think Robert cracked Trump. He doesn't know. He does a very good Trump. But I, I think nobody was doing Trump back when. And now he's got a new way of doing Trump. Which is even better. Right. Well, Trump has deteriorated yeah. a bit over the years. Well, you did it. Thank you for writing that. That was as funny. You're welcome. You are amazing. Thanks. You're amazing. Where do you get your ideas from? How does how does it? <laughs> no one gets it. That's not a real question. It's the dumbest question you've ever. Heard. It's like it's not a. It, if there was an answer, it means you're just stealing because it's like ideas have to come from within, don't they? Yeah. You have to just be open to stuff and it happens. Are you better writing by yourself? Do you like yes. sitting around? You are. You uh, like, I like, I like being alone. Yeah. Same with art. When I was, well, that you're lucky because nobody wants to be near you. So that works out. And, and how much drawing are you doing these days? I mean, very little. I draw when I have something to draw, you know, when I have a reason to draw, I'll draw. So is uh, there a muscle? Do you, do you have to use that muscle? Does it deteriorate? I mean, you know, you get a little out of practice, but I find it's not really an issue when I have to pick it up again and just start drawing. I just drew a logo for my, oh my God, I forgot to send that. Uh, yeah, I just drew a logo for my friend's business uh, just to give him something quick. You know, I'm at the point in my life where a lot of people know they can ask me for favors and I don't really have an excuse to say no. So I have to slowly start retreating from society. It's, it's, it's how you see people in general just start becoming really weird and aloof. Yeah, I mean, because I get that. You know, we all have our individual talents. I get a lot of, you know, a lot of friends call me and ask me to host a podcast for them for 14 hours. So, yeah, and exactly. You know, how much, how many hours do you have left in the day? You're already doing I know, that. They, I'm being pulled. But you have actual talent. You can write. You have a, you have a portable skill. A little you, bit. I you, try. You can draw. You can yeah, do stand up. Yeah. Mm hmm. And you can write jokes and you can write scripts. You can get kicked out of a country with nothing but your brain and, and find a way to earn a living. I mean, if there are people who enjoy comedy, if I went to some, you know, there's definitely countries out there that don't really need comedians uh, where people don't laugh unless they're talking about why they annex Crimea. So there's definitely countries that it's better for than others. Uh, I actually have something to talk about today. Well, I want to talk about what a brilliant sure. comedy writer you are first. Because I guess we can do that instead. Yeah, you, that made me that made me happy. The, oh, the, 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 the Rudy Giuliani did, thing made me today? really happy. Yes. I was very happy. I was very happy with how that came along. It was, uh, you know, I, I always get afraid when I'm on the spot last minute that I'm not going to be able to, you know, have something to say. And I'm glad it worked. It made me very happy. I and, mean, it's Giuliani, which is just like he's just another example of like. For five years, people have been saying, we live in a world that's out of ideas. We live in a world where it's like we had a writer's room where they fired the, the boss and they just let everyone just say, you know what, just come up with anything you can. Just make sure people keep watching. And it keeps getting more insane. It keeps right. even Trump 
You know, they said like, well, Trump, he's obviously the most insane, ridiculous human being. It stretches reality. There's nothing you can do to elevate. There's nothing you can do to heighten this. And then we found Rudy Giuliani bleeding from the head and farting in Congress. And Borat jerking off on, you know, trying to get a blowjob. To be fair, he was just uh, tucking in his shirt, but he that part I'll hundred percent give him. He didn't look like he was actually masturbating, but he was very handsy with this young woman, and she did confirm he touched her first. He was putting his partner on the back. Get me, he was being handsy in a way that he didn't do anything wrong, you know, in and of itself. But clearly he was feeling out the situation, so to speak, to see if this was going to end in some, you know, getting honey potted. This is what he probably hopes for. I imagine the only women Giuliani has had sex with in the last several years are spies trying to get information. And he knows it and he welcomes it. Right. But he he is he really is America's mayor now. I mean, it is the saddest thing just in the sense that like this was a man who was truly respected. This is someone who had the utmost respect of the American people. And I remember where it sort of went apart was 2008 when he ran for president, as you recall, in the primary. Mm-hmm. And so I'd never seen this before. He was running for president and he wasn't getting any traction whatsoever. Well, he made he them. Came- Here's what he said. He said, I'm not going to win in Iowa. I'm not going to win in New Hampshire. Exactly. I'm he not going to win in South Carolina. I'm banking my entire candidacy on elderly Jews in Florida, 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 nothing good. He only comes from Florida. And it shows you what kind of a human being says, I'm counting on Florida to be the one that likes me. And it's like, yeah, of course you are. He's literally saying the craziest people on the planet are the only (laughs) ones going to like me. And then, and what, but what happened was he started, he campaigned only in Florida. He had a percentage of the votes there. And then he went to Florida and started giving speeches and his support plummeted. Because we found out that when Rudy Giuliani speaks to a crowd, he hemorrhages supporters, which is the exact opposite of the way any presidential candidate should run. Right. So that was a funny thing. So anyway, I, I do have a funny story uh, that we can get into for today's show. Sure. So this last Saturday, I wrote for SNL again. I'm back to doing guest writing for them, even though I was doing it before. Now I'm doing it like officially, right? So I co-wrote a fe- an update feature with Pete uh, about Staten Island. It was suggested to us, hey, there's a Staten Island news story. Why don't you guys talk about that? Even though, you know, we don't like to just be the, you know, shitting on Staten Island all the time. It was a funny story, and uh, my brother-in-law was actually sending me clips of it when it was happening. To give you background, Max Pub in Staten Island is in the orange zone. It is in the zip code with the second highest rate of COVID infections in all of New York City, which makes it, as you can imagine, ridiculously high. That is, I think Cuomo even specifically mentioned it as they are 5% of the population and 80% of the cases. Wow. So a very big problem. So Max Pub uh, is one of the many bars that was forced to only allow outdoor or to-go dining or drinks. So they staged a protest after the uh, owner was arrested for, and this to be clear, he was not arrested for violating the orders. He was arrested for refusing to stop. Meaning police showed up. He was serving people inside. They said, you can't do this. And my understanding, maybe maybe I'm wrong. You know, I say allegedly or whatever, because it's a court case. 
but uh, he refused to uh, make people leave. He refused to stop what he was doing and he got arrested. So they had a big giant protest. Hundreds of people came to Max pub to protest and complain and be very rude to these police officers who were there just trying to keep the peace, even though they constantly talked about how much better they were than black lives matter protesters. He said, well, we don't riot. We don't loot like these people. How come you're not out there beating up the homeless instead of stopping this guy? (laughs) I'm even kidding. He said, like, there's homeless people pooping on the sidewalk. It's like, that doesn't mean that you that has nothing to do with what you did wrong. We are. Then then you should definitely be wearing a mask. Who wants to smell that shit? And guess what? That homeless guy, at least he's doing it outside, asshole. (laughs) That's why he's not getting anyone sick. So Max Pub and I watched this and basically it was everything you ever imagined Staten Island could be. It involved people just sort of, you know, very boisterously talking about that. This is tyranny and this is Cuomo and and de Blasio just trying to be mean to us for literally no reason. There's no disease. Everybody's fine. And even and what I found even more amazing was this guy's lawyer, this guy, Danny, the co-owner who was the person who was arrested or fined. I don't think arrested. I think it was just fined. And he this lawyer who looked like someone uh, that would get buried in the back of the Bada Bing uh, was saying <laughs> This guy claimed, he really said this, he said, they're saying there's, re- there's other restaurants a few blocks away that aren't forced to eat outside. And it's like, well, yeah, it's in a different zip code. And it's in a different zip code that has less cases. You happen to be in the area with the most cases. That's just how it is. I'm sorry, but everyone has to play by these rules. We're trying to mitigate this gigantic, disastrous pandemic. So he said, he goes, the only reason the south of, of, of Staten Island is being forced to, to shut down, this is what the guy said, is because they voted for Trump. <laughs> so he's accusing de Blasio and Cuomo of not determining based on COVID cases, but just saying, if they voted Republican, we're going to shut down their bars. <laughs> so all, right off the bat, this guy deserves zero respect because he's lying. He's right. telling us to try. And then what was really amazing, I watched this rally. And at the rally, I wish I, we tried to get, uh, I wish I could get the rights to show you. But there was a YouTube that showed the, uh, the video of the rally. There was one guy, and I'm not even making this up. This is a rally about a bar that was allowed to serve people outdoors. They just couldn't let people eat inside. Okay. And, th- and I heard the guy say, he's, he goes, I want to, I, re- I want to read you a poem that I found, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, that I found very appropriate for what's going on and what they're doing to us. It is by Ellie Wazel. <laughs> and just skip ahead. He goes, they, when they came for the socialists, I said <laughs> nothing because I wasn't a socialist. Then they came for the tradesmen. And I said nothing because I wasn't a tradesman. And I'm, I'm not making this up at all. This is exactly what he said. He goes, and then they came for the Jews. And I said nothing because I wasn't a Jew. And then when they came for me, there was no one to speak up because they were all fucking gay. <laughs> Watch the video. There is not a shred of exaggeration the way I just said that. That's that was a pitch perfect impression it's of what this guy said. i mean the way and i'm like and i'm thinking this guy's either drunk or this is what he's like every second of the day he sounds a little drunk do and it also, again because they were what and when i'm not and i i want you to find this on youtube because it's perfect no i'd rather hear you they, do it 
And when they came for me, there was no one to speak up because they were all fucking gone. <laughs> I swear to God, that's exactly what this guy said. And I'm like, you're talking about not being able to drink indoors. <laughs> and then the guy, another guy said, he goes, they're telling us most people get COVID in their homes from each other. And that's where they're telling us we should go to drink. Like, they're not telling you to invite everyone else to your house, stupid. So anyway, they had this protest and SNL was like, hey, why don't you guys make fun of this? So we did. We made, you know, we did some jokes and we made a joke about the Holocaust guy. We made a joke about <laughs> just how, you know, ridiculous and childish and babyish this was, which is exactly what it, what it was. At the exact moment, our weekend update around midnight Saturday, at that exact moment, at Max Pub, we were thinking, hey, I wonder if you got to be thinking, hey, I wonder if people are watching it on TV right. or something. Maybe they'll be right. pissed off. Max Pub at midnight on Saturday had people inside illegally. They lost their liquor license. They lost their right to open. And they started letting people in through a side entrance, through a, like another building to, uh, and blacked out the windows. And then the police, because they were waiting, they knew this guy was going to do it. They showed up undercover. And, and went to arrest the owner and said, hey, look, you know, because obviously they told him, hey, these are the rules. You've been you've already been ordered once mm -hmm. and now you're flagrantly disobeying <laughs> the rules. And then the co-owner, according to the sheriff's department and according to video that was released, surveillance video that I saw myself. Ran over a police officer with his car trying to evade arrest. I saw the video and I saw two officers wearing black and just as the lawyer said he goes he says they were wearing black he thought he was getting mugged i saw the video they were wearing black you know what else they were wearing badges insignia on the shoulder they were clearly wearing police uniforms and this guy dragged a police officer 300 feet and broke both his legs okay these are the, remember these are the people that were going around saying these are pro cops Right. And so the lawyer impressed you say, well, they didn't identify themselves as police officers. And obviously the guy who says that uh, this there's no covid, you're only doing this because they uh, voted Trump should be trusted. Right. Uh, so this. So what's going to happen is their body cam is going to come out and this guy is going to be in a ton of trouble. He was he was getting arrested. He knew exactly who was trying to arrest him. It seems certainly looked very, very clear to me that these were police. I, if I could see their police officers from a, from an across the street security camera, I'm pretty sure the guy who was running them over could see what they were. Right. Uh, and I have, I do not believe for a moment that they, they did not identify themselves. I think that is absolute bullshit. So these people, this lawyer that I said before, you know, who looked like, uh, Bobby Bacala went bald. <laughs> this guy said, number one, said number, this guy said, number one, he said, the cop is lying. He is not injured. He said is a lie that he has two broken legs. Mm -hmm. The guy's in the hospital. Right. Like, you know how hard it would be to fake an x-ray of broken legs? Like how insane a lie that is to just come up with off the top of their head, claim that he did nothing wrong, claim that he had every right to run over this cop, basically, is, is essentially what this guy is, is arguing. But what, he, but what the real problem is we need to all get together and blame 
Pete Davidson for making fun of us. Really? And so this guy, and it's the funniest thing I've ever seen. Does he mean that? He's, I mean, that's what they've been doing. They keep giving these press conferences about Pete Davidson on SNL as if we're going to say, well, you know what? I know he ran over a cop, but this is the real problem that uh, Pete is a hypocrite because he lives in. And according to the lawyer, he says he, he basically called Pete a hypocrite because 9-11 happened and Staten Islanders were very supportive of him and his family's loss. And therefore, he should encourage them to get people sick. <laughs> that was the argument. That was pretty much the argument that I saw. Now, you we should mention that you wrote the movie. The King, King of, of Staten, Staten Island. Island, starring Pete Davidson, Bill Burr, Marissa Tomei. Yeah. Did I leave anybody out? It's directed by Judd Apatow. I mean, there's a million people in it. They're all fantastic. And it's a hit movie and everybody loves it. And Mike Vecchione, for God's sake. I would assume. Rich I would assume that you can go anywhere in Staten Island and get a free meal. You must be love. Why would you attack Staten Island? This you've got that town wired now. Well, I guess the real question is why are they attacking Staten Island by trying to get everyone sick? By be, and, and but here's the real. The but real don't problem. you want don't you want one place where you can go, where they go? Hey, that's Dave Cyrus, Staten Island. He wrote he wrote our movie. Well, free pizza. For, you got free pizza for the rest of your life. Obviously that doesn't happen but why not real, because you're attacking the, you're attacking those people well i'm attacking the people who think that they're better than everyone else and don't and the rules don't apply to them but here's here's the big problem with this guy's argument about why he needs to be able to open his restaurant okay he said he's got to feed his family right and i understand that i don't want anyone to lose their business but everyone's business is being affected by this here's the problem a thousand people came to celebrate him and shout and taunt the sheriff deputies and say this is Nazism and communism and leftists are destroying the earth and we're better than Black Lives Matter protesters. Here's what I don't understand. If those people cared so much about his business, why weren't they buying anything from it during the pandemic so he wouldn't go out of business? So they'll show up to scream They'll show up to shout about freedom, but they won't show up to buy mozzarella sticks. Like, that's kind of hypocritical, isn't it? That you're willing to, if, it, if it's about hating liberals, you'll show up. But if it's about just keeping this guy's family afloat, you won't. Right. Those right. people could have come any other day. They could have gone, got a beer to go, get some dinner. And guess what? This guy wouldn't have needed to stay open inside. He would have been able to feed his family. So it's just, it's extremely hypocritical to me. And, but more hypocritical than anything is that these people, these are the same people saying blue lives matter, saying we hate black lives matter, living in the same community that murdered Eric Garner. And they're going to go and say, this is what we're protesting, closing a bar because everyone's dying of a disease. And then, and this is the best part, all these people, all these people basically are now defending the attempt murder of a police officer just because that police officer didn't fit into what they wanted him to do. So all these people talking about law and order and respect and not committing violence, it means nothing to them. The second that cop is saying, hey, buddy, you got to wear a mask. They're the first ones to talk about run him over with a car. It's amazing. I saw a cop. Uh, I was 
visiting somebody in the hospital. I saw a cop in the hospital with the mask over his mouth, but not his nose. Well, that's very rude. I don't. That's a cop. No one should do that. Yeah. Well, you should have. You should have said something. I did. Good. Yeah, I'm glad you did. And it felt great having that nightstick jammed up my ass. You know what? He can't arrest you for saying you should wear a mask, sir. You can't, he can't arrest you for saying the right thing. He He's said, in the hospital. he said, I know, I know. Yeah. I don't know. I don't understand. I get, well, I guess he doesn't, but in a hospital, I, I guess he doesn't it's, believe. It's horrible. What are they thinking? They're thinking me. They're thinking me, 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 me. I want to die. And is what they're thinking. Well, if you're in a hot, I mean, yeah, he's in a hospital. So, I mean, he's breathing in all this stuff. I mean, look, a lot of people don't wear masks. A lot of people don't have the diligence they need. I'm not going to say that every one of them is a monster, but every one of them has every right to be told, hey, hey, put it on. Plain and simple. I've, I've done that. I've come to actually really enjoy doing that because, as you know, I live in Orthodox Brooklyn. So pretty much every time I'm inside an establishment selling food that I need to buy because I still need to buy food, somebody isn't wearing a mask. And I've actually come to really enjoy saying to these people, hey, just politely put your mask on because only because. And what do they do? They always do it because in my neighborhood, I look to them. I look like a UFC fighter. You look at like what? Just having, I look like a UFC fighter to these people mm-hmm. just because we're talking about, you know, not the most burly human beings in my neighborhood. So to, they're actually afraid of me. It's the only place in the world that I get to feel that. So I'm actually kind of loving it. And uh, no, I mean, it, they're. They're usually they're not normally awful people. They're just selfish. Now, what happens once everybody starts getting vaccinated? Well, you're going to have to still wear a mask because otherwise people are going to say they're going to lie and pretend to have been vaccinated to get out of wearing a mask. And we really should have some kind of identification that shows you have it. But the problem is, at first, you have to wear a mask anyway, because we don't know for certain if the vaccination protects you or protects other people from you. Because it's possible the vaccination could make it so you could still infect someone else, even though you're not going to get sick. So we do need to have masks still. We do need to, just for the sake of unity, just for the sake of doing the right thing, even the vaccinated for a little while are going to have to wear masks in public both because we don't know for sure how it's going to work and because we can't trust the lying population to be true. We can't trust them to not be lying that they got vaccinated. So, but, but, but I'm, I'm not saying this is a good thing. No, I'm, no, but let me play this out. There is the distinct possibility. There's professor Ben Burgess. There is the distinct possibility that the people who don't wear masks are also anti vaxxers. So if we all wear masks and get vaccinated, this country could look different in 10 years. Well, I mean, it will mean that the pandemic will last a lot longer than it has to. But like you're implying, it could work out to be one of the first real world Darwinism examples in history in a very non-joking, very realistic way. This could be pure Darwinism we might get rid of a lot of the anti-vaxxer, anti-science community. Right. Frankly, the disease isn't deadly enough for it to be, make a real dent in that. But I think over the years, it's going to become this thing where, be, where it's like, is this really worth it to you? Is your 
fake stupid belief system really worth your friends and family dying over because that's the decision they're making and i know we're not supposed to call them stupid but they're also the ones saying don't call them stupid right at some point you have to say pretending someone knows what they're talking about when they're doing something dangerously ignorant you're not helping them by ignoring it right you're just letting it fester well let us wrap it up. Great job on the Rudy Giuliani Thank sketch you. with Robert Smigel. Back to back with Jim Earl and Melania Trump. What a great opening to this show. I was made me very happy. I needed needed some laughs. We all need. Laughs. We need it. We need it. It's among the best medicines. That's what I hear. Although with a bad case of clap, I'll prefer penicillin over a laugh. Like, I have to tell you that. Dave Cyrus, go see the King of Staten Island. Go watch his work on SNL. Follow him on Twitter, at Dave Cyrus. Thank you, sir. S-I-R-U-S. Bye. Bye. Great job. Now let's go to Michigan, where Professor Ben Burgess is standing by. He is host of Give Them an Argument. And everybody should go download Give Them an Argument. Go to his YouTube channel. He's putting up... Lots of videos on his YouTube channel. Go to patreon.com forward slash Ben Burgess and sign up for his newsletter. Well, quick question, because you are a columnist for Jacobin. Who is who was Judith Jarvis Thompson? Uh, Judith Jarvis Thompson uh, was a philosophy professor. Uh, She was. most famous for uh, for two things. Uh, one of them uh, is uh, something called the trolley problem, which is a uh, hypothetical situation uh, that's uh, to that tests how we think about about ethics, whether the right thing to do is the thing that leads to the best consequences, or whether something can lead to better consequences but still be wrong. Uh, And for uh, a classic paper that she wrote in 1971, which I think is by far the most assigned and, you know, widely anthologized uh, philosophy paper written in the 20th century uh, called A Defense of Abortion. Okay, are you moving your microphone? I'm not, but I'm probably gesturing too much. I'll try to stop. Okay, and what did she say about Kitty Genovese? Yeah, so the Kitty Genovese example is... uh, is in, in in defense of abortion and the point that she was making there. So uh, Kitty Genovese was stabbed to death outside her apartment building and supposedly, according to reports at the time, like dozens of people, you know, watched what was happening uh, and uh, didn't intervene. Uh, I should say, you know, to be clear that there are more recent, you know, investigations yeah. that question how many people really, you know, really did do that. But, right. um, right. but in, in any case, uh, the point that she was making there with that uh, real life example is that all you would have had to do, certainly if you were like watching from your apartment balcony is go inside and pick up the phone, right? You know, this is before people had phones in their pockets, but you know, you, you could, you know, 30 seconds, you, you could be calling nine one one. Uh, and anybody who didn't even do that, right? And we might think, okay, so it, it'd be, you know, whether or not you think anybody should have to like rush into danger themselves, you know, uh, that would be something, you know, that'd be pretty minimal to ask of, uh, of anybody. And her point is that even if you think a fetus is a full person, 
uh, it's telling that nobody who watched uh, Katie Genovese being stabbed uh, would have been breaking the law. Uh, that, uh, that there are no, you know, there are no laws mandating that you you even just to save somebody else's life that you even pick up a phone uh, and and dial nine one one. And maybe there should be accessory like, you know, to. Are, I don't know accessory to a murder. I guess not. No, there I mean, are sins of omission, right? But that's not. Yeah, I mean, there are countries that have that have duty to rescue laws. Um, you know, although even there at that where people would have been breaking the law by not doing that, uh, the United States uh, doesn't. But the but this is the point that even if you think we should join those other countries where where, where they do have have such laws, it's telling that we don't actually make anybody do even that much, right? To keep another person alive. But uh, we, you know, at the time she was writing, certainly two years before Roe v. Wade, you know, we uh, would legally require uh, pregnant women to share their bodies without their consent uh, for for nine months at extreme risk to themselves. Uh, and that seems to, that 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 gap seems to indicate you know, treating pregnant women as something, you know, less than, you know, full people with the, you know, the rights to, to autonomy, you know, to control their own lives, uh, that, that we would treat everybody, you know, everybody else as being. And and that's the point. You know, there are a lot of more sort of um, like zany kind of science fiction examples in that paper that people tend to remember. But I've always thought that was one of the most compelling things in there. Right. In your Jacobin piece, you write about your students and people's ability to change their minds. And as somebody, you wade in to these ideological waters and wrestle with alligators. Have you changed anybody's mind? Is there, do you, do you find that your students are changing their minds or do they always revert to the main? Do they always go back eventually to what they yeah, were raised to believe? So, so those are two Slightly different contexts, and I, I do think this is worth emphasizing how different they are, because at least the way I've always seen it, uh, it's not my job as an instructor to try to to get anybody to think the things that I think. Uh, it's it's my job to. Um, you're you're touching. I, I I hate to be a pain in the ass, but you're oh. touching. You're making some. Thank you. Uh, okay. Uh, so it's it's my job as uh, as an instructor to uh, to help people you know understand the readings to unpack you know the arguments that can be made for various positions you know including tons of that I disagree with uh, and to to help give them the tools to think about things more clearly to make up their own minds I you know I I strongly believe that although. Um, Although obviously, for example, you know, economics departments are filled with people who don't believe that. You know, mm -hmm. so uh, so sometimes I wonder about the unilateral disarmament. But you know, that that is something I think. Uh, so if I think, you know, if I'm assigning, you know, Robert Nozick as uh, a you know famous libertarian philosopher, you try to make like the best case that I possibly can, you know, for for his position. Um, but that said, people do sometimes change their mind about some subjects based on, on the, you know, on the readings that they do uh, in the class. And I think that uh, Thompson's article about abortion is one of the ones that does 
uh, change the mo- most minds. You know, sometimes I'll ask people at the end of the semester if they change their mind about anything based on readings they did in the class. And that's one of the most common answers, which is which is surprising, actually, because it's such a deeply felt uh, issue for so many people. Now, in terms of the things that I do outside of the classroom, when I actually do argue with people. Um, you are the author of Give Them an Argument, and the name of your podcast is Give Them an Argument. Yeah, I, 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 I like doing that. So, uh, and... Uh, and yeah, I, I think that the person I'm arguing with uh, for reasons I talk about in my book, I, I don't think that person, you know, is is likely to, um, you know, to be to be convinced. You know, they've got too much ego bound up. In it. Have you ever just, won an argument? Have you ever? I'd like to think so. Uh, where the other also, person where the other person says enough already. I, you're right. Like in life, sure. Uh, I mean, there there are there are cases, you know, when you know I've argued with friends or anything, but you know, once about, you about point, something that they did. But I'm talking about an ideological, yeah, argument. Yeah, ideologically, yeah. Somebody has uh, said to you, you know what, you're right. And I will also say, though, in terms of public uh, ideological debates, uh, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll certainly get people you know, emailing me or, you know, sending me Twitter messages saying uh, that, you know, saying that they changed their mind about things, you know, based on on watching these these things. I mean, that certainly happens. I think anybody who does this will get that kind of feedback. Uh, Again, that's the distinction I'd make, that the person who, you know, who's um, on the other podium on a stage or who's on the other end of the YouTube split screen, you know, in, uh, in that kind of debate, they're very unlikely to do that, you know, because, again, there's there's too much ego bound up in it realistically for that to happen. Uh, people in those positions do change their minds, but it's a very long process. Well, one of the metrics we could use on this show is Zoom has a polling app. That's- yeah, but uh, but that what what that would show is who had changed their minds in the last 20 minutes. Right. Uh, and my experience, at least. And I think most people have talked about this with their experience is not that that's like a very realistic model. I mean, sure, it happens. But I think usually when people change their minds, it doesn't really work like that. Usually the way it works, certainly all the times I can think of, you know, what I've changed my mind about anything ideological uh, is that it's not like that. What it's like is my first reaction here in a good argument for a position I don't like is irritation. And then. Uh, it starts to work on me, and then it could be days later or weeks later, months later, that I, I I think back to it and I realize that I feel differently about it and that some of the very considerations that I dismissed the first time I heard them now seem really powerful to me and that those seem like part of the reason that, that I think that. Uh, so, again, people do change their minds, but to be realistic about it, it usually happens, and arguments certainly play a role in that. I obviously believe that. But being realistic about it, it's usually a slow process. Is there something virtuous about what's going on with Trump and Giuliani and Lynn making these arguments? You believe in arguing. You believe that arguments, the better argument, wins out and there's an agreed upon truth. But keep keep going. Yes. Well, but there's an agreed upon truth that you can arrive at by arguing. There's there's this truth that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be agreed upon. Well, I I can't get you to agree to stop touching your microphone. Well, I'm not touching my microphone. I'm touching my desk that the microphone is on. And apparently it's sensitive enough that that does it. I'm sensitive enough. 
when you see, would you agree that there are certain people in Washington, D.C. who believe in the adversarial system and you make the best argument you possibly can, even for the most outrageous cause? And and if your cause is just and righteous and your argument is good, you'll win. And that we're seeing Trump pushing it to the limit in terms of making these crazy claims of voter fraud and i hate to say the system is working because he's surrounded himself with idiots who will work for free like giuliani but that they even the republican judges and republican lawmakers are listening to the argument and arriving at a truth and saying get trump out of there that 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 there's no there, there isn't anything wrong with what giuliani is doing he's trying to make the best case no, I, I mean I, I think there is i think that in the context i think in certain contexts i think what you're saying makes sense well in that what in that people are going to claim that the election was stolen so mm-hmm. right now giuliani is making the best case he possibly can that the election is stolen so that five years from now historians, you know, honest interlocutors who are trying to arrive at a truth can go back and see, now they made this argument and even Republican judges said, get out of my courtroom. So isn't he doing us a favor by trying to make the best argument he possibly can? Well, look, I think if they wanted to make the best argument they possibly can, they wouldn't have hired Giuliani. (laughs) Right, Uh, but he works for I, I, free. That's you know, yeah. I mean, it's. Uh, I remember. I think uh, Vanessa B. You know, from Current Affairs had the best line on this: that hiring uh, Giuliani to uh, to run this effort was the coup equivalent of making uh, making plans with my laziest friend. I can say <laughs> I tried, but I know that I'm staying home. Uh-huh. Uh, like like they they didn't. You know, obviously. I mean, look, think about Bush v. Gore when this sort of effort was actually successful. That was run by by Jim Baker. This is such a. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, this is such a night and day thing. I think the reason, you know, Giuliani you know, needs a paycheck and he likes the notoriety and uh, and and honestly, I don't I don't think any of the Trump people particularly think that uh, this is going. You know, this. I mean, maybe there are some particular well, Ted Cruz people in that, in that camp. No, I don't think I don't think Ted, I don't think any of these people believe that this is going to succeed. I think that I. Honestly, if I had to guess, I would say that it's mostly about fundraising from the faithful, uh, that that's the uh, that's the main reason they're doing it, that and ego. Uh, but look, I don't think that I don't think the best argument is guaranteed to succeed by by any stretch of the imagination. I think rhetorical packaging works. I think uh, I think historical context. I think who has access to certain levers of media power. All of these things make a tremendous difference. And there's absolutely no guarantee that just being right or even just having a good argument, you know, will mean that you you win anything. But that said, I think it can be helpful. Right. How important is anger in winning an argument, getting people angry enough to reveal who they really are? Do you, do you poke when you're in a debate? Mm. Do you you're fighting, right? You're jabbing. Are are you trying to get people to to say something racist or bigoted well, or sexist? Are, do you try to get them 
to expose one of those weaknesses? Although I will say this. So I think that, I think that in some kinds of debates, it's useful and, and important. Uh, and this, and this gets down to a point that people often will bring up if they're, if they're skeptical about the value of the exercise, you know, this like, Oh, look, if, if you, if you like really just deeply disagree with, with somebody's, you know, worldview uh, and, and the most basic assumptions, you know, what, what, what possible point is, is served by this. And what I'd say is that when that's true, oftentimes the point that's served by this, that's kind of along the lines of what you're saying is getting them to um, get, you know, is, is getting down to their most basic assumptions so you can show how, you know, how ridiculous those basic assumptions are to people who might otherwise find uh, what they're, uh, what they're saying tempting. Uh, so if, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking here, for example, of, um, you know, of a discussion that, that I had with a libertarian a while ago about healthcare, uh, and and I think you know just just getting them to spell out, uh, yes, I I'm okay uh, with uh, with lots of people you know having substandard you know healthcare or 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 being more likely to die in the short term or you know things like this that that's that's an acceptable trade off to me it, the point is not that i'm going to come to some sort of consensus about this with them but i think that it's a useful exercise to show anybody who might otherwise find their rhetoric compelling that that's what's at the end of the rainbow mm-hmm. and having a, a a keen understanding of marxist critique it's almost impossible to lose. This is what my son said to me. He said, if you read Marx, you'll win every argument because it teaches you to cut through all the fog and get down to class. And once you filter things through class struggle, every it clarifies every political position for you. And it's impossible for you to lose an argument because you reveal your opponent's lack of caring if if they don't like you you cannot win a debate if you're against medicare for all without revealing uh a dark heart yeah i mean it 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 seems like it's going to be very difficult you know there are and we've never seen you know we never saw we never saw biden forced i'm getting angry i'm sorry hang on it's okay we never saw biden or kamala forced to defend their kamala's change of heart on medicare for all Biden has never been asked to debate his position on Medicare for all. Never. Not once. Is that is that a fair statement? Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to remember the debates that happened, uh, you know, during the primaries. But I, I, I think that's largely right, because uh, the way that the most of those played out is that the other um you know, Biden and the other centrist candidates were sort of snipe back and forth about the details of their their compromise plans, 
and you know Bertie would pop up every once in a while with you know we should have healthcare as a right you know and uh, and then, but he was know, never so. asked who do you think can deliver healthcare better an insurance company or the government nobody ever yeah. asked him that uh, do you believe yeah, in government that's, that's, or do you believe in health? That, que- that question he was never asked. Do you believe was. in government or do you believe in health insurance companies? If you believe in health insurance companies, then get the F out of government. Or at least the Democratic Party. There's just no interview. There's no inquisitor. There's no debate. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I do remember like in the in the debate uh, when it finally got down to just him and Bernie and and they did one. I remember, um, I I guess I do remember a line from Biden that that suggests that some of that stuff was broached, which was that he, uh, he argued that, you know, the, uh, the pandemic uh, was a disaster in Italy, which showed that, uh, and even though they had socialized healthcare, it's that showed that socialized healthcare wouldn't, wouldn't solve everything, which I think is, is not an argument that's aged well, uh, given you know, given how Italy is doing now and how we're doing now, how do you see this a year from now? What do you see the Biden administration pulling off? There's a story now that he met with civil rights activists and said it is not within my constitutional purview to use executive orders to make the progressive wing of the Democratic Party happy. And I thought, you are, you haven't even started yet. Yeah, which which is astonishing, because if if you take a beat to think about this, by all accounts, Biden was one of the big champions within the Obama administration of the Obama expansion of uh, the Bush-Cheney drone program. So if if he's saying this, that that means that uh, that that it's not within his constitutional power uh, to, you know, use executive orders to, you know, give people certain social welfare benefits, the things the progressive party, winning the party might like. It is within his constitutional power uh, to use a unilateral executive action to send flying killer robots to countries with which we aren't at war uh, to kill people, in some cases during the Obama administration, American citizens. Hmm. We're all lucky. Are we at a more dangerous time than we think that we, we like to flatter ourselves right now and say, well, we dodged a bullet and, you know, there's work to be done, but we survived Trump. If Biden doesn't appeal to progressives, then we're going to take to the streets and he's not going to shoot us, I don't think, the way Trump would. So if we're not going to get shot, we're going to take to the streets big time, which doesn't you've talked about this. Doesn't that set the stage for fascism? If 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 the progressives feel they can. Protest with impunity, then there are calls for law and order. And if Biden isn't delivering to the the working class. We're going to go full fascism in two years, right? Is it, it's, it's more dangerous now. Once people well, realize that the, going going full fascism in two years, but but here's what I would say: that um, 
Trump, you know, Trump is is gone and, you know, thank God for it. But uh, but, um, you know, there's another election in four years and another one in four years after that. And even if we even if you really believed that Biden becoming president was going to mean like hitting the reset button on America so we could go back to 2009. And obviously it doesn't really mean that there is no going back. Uh, all of the things that have blown up since you know, 2009 aren't going anywhere. But even if it did mean that, okay, well, how did that story end? Uh, it ended with Trump. So I don't know why if we, you know, like some people seem to think that if we have the, you know, the sensible centrist Democrat, you know, back in office to technocratically manage everything, then we're not going to then um, then everything will be fine, you know, going forward, uh, which, of course, is what people believed about Obama. As hard as this may be to remember, Obama at the time was celebrated as the return to normal after the insanity of the Bush years. Right. Uh, and and again, uh, the Obama administration oversaw um, you know, eight years of, you know, continuing what had happened before then, you know, in terms of the expansion of the gap between uh, between the rich and poor, the Obama administration did, you know, there were a few gestures at the end, you know, uh, like you know, executive orders about, you know, surplus military hardware. But um, but uh, the Obama administration, you know, certainly did very little uh, throughout most of those eight years about the police violence issues in inner cities that really flared up at the end. Uh, the Obama administration um, signed more free trade deals, even as the uh, even even as the effects of the, the previous deals, you know, helped uh, uh, create this kind of post-industrial misery to which they had no good good response at all. Like you know, essentially, um, you know, West Virginia, for example, which was solidly Democratic, you know, before this, um, you know, Trump won that won West Virginia by saying he was going to bring back the jobs, the coal mines. Of course he was lying, but also uh, why, why did that message resonate? Uh, because all the, Ob- you know, the Obama administration's only solution to uh, the misery of laid off former coal miners uh, was to plant some technology training centers in Appalachia, mm-hmm. uh, which is, you know, which, if, you know, so of course there's no guarantee you'll get a job, you know, to compete with some 22 year old who just got out of college when you finish up at the technology training center. So the Obama administration's approach to laid off coal miners in West Virginia was essentially telling them to stop complaining and learn how to code. And so it's very unsurprising to me that this story culminated in Trump the first time. And even if he doesn't, you know, pull a Teddy Roosevelt and, you know, and, and run for president again four years later, which I don't think he will, but, you know, who knows, uh, whatever. I mean, there are like the Republicans have have lots of these guys, you know, it could be uh, could be Tom Cotton next. It could be right. Josh Howley, could be Tucker Carlson. Uh, and, and so I don't I don't see any reason to believe I mean. Who knows, right? I, I but I, I guess I don't understand why some people seem to feel confident that everything's fine now and we dodged a bullet, uh, because we've seen this movie before and it doesn't have to end the same way now, but it could very easily. Right. I'm gonna play a clip and bring in Burt Ross, American hero, mm-hmm. former mayor of Fort Lee, who took on the Gambino family. He then became energy czar of New Jersey, invented the right turn on red in New Jersey. Let me play a clip because I find this terrifying. There was a vaccine summit 
Pfizer, to its credit, refused to show up this week. And everybody's talking about how crazy Trump is. And he's just rambling and rambling and rambling. This is a long clip. It's, it's about 90 seconds. If you don't think there's going to be revisionist history that sings the praises of Trump, you are mistaken. If you don't think there are going to be people who are longing for the Trump administration, the fact is, I'm going to play this clip. It's settled law in the Republican Party that George W. Bush was a failure because he was. He was a failure. Iraq, failure. He, he crashed the economy. He let Katrina kill Louisiana. He let the World Trade Center get attacked. He, he, it settled law that Bush was a failure. It will not be settled law that the Trump administration was a fiasco. They're going to say that COVID happened on his watch, but it happened on Canada. I mean, look at Canada, look at Italy, look at Great Britain. And he's going to be able to run on the vaccine. Let me play you a clip of what he said. And it's terrifying. It's 90 seconds. This is how he's going to be able to to either run again or somebody like him. And if somebody has the courage, I know who the next administration will be. I received almost 75 million votes, the highest number of votes in the history of our country for a sitting president, 12 million more than the 63 million we received four years ago. President Obama received three million less in his second term, and he won easily. I received 12 million more, which, by the way, is a record, 12 million more. And they say that when the numbers came out and the numbers came through machines and all of those ballots were taken away and added, all you have to do is turn on your local television set and you'll see what happened with thousands of ballots coming out from under tables, with all of the terrible things you saw. All you have to do is take a look. And if somebody has the courage, I know who the next administration will be. And I'll tell you what, life will be much easier for this country because of what we've done right now and because of a lot of the people in this room, the job you've done on the vaccine, together with a lot of others, has been a modern day miracle. And it's really been acknowledged as such. And I want to thank you. I want to give you my love and I want to give you my thanks because you're very special people. And now, good luck. You distribute that general and really set records. OK, set records just like we've been doing for four years. Thank you very much. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. can't hear you david you can hear me now right yeah i can hear you now. standing ovation and i'm only playing one part of that speech he starts going over his record as president if you're so inclined it's impressive bert ross can I, I can I, I, you know uh, professor ben burgess you can stick around if you want but well, well 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 let me just say this before i go you know one, one last comment and then you know uh, I'll vacate that 
you know, I'm not as optimistic as you are. You say it's settled law, you know, how bad Bush was. And I don't get that sense when I turn on MSNBC. And oh, it's, the, the, the Republicans have settled it. The Democrats are aren't so sure. That yeah, the Democrats seem to have, have completely rehabilitated the Bush administration. All they these, take breath know, mints from it. Like David Frum, who who was who the uh, asshole who wrote the uh, the axis of evil speech. Uh, you know, before the invasion of Iraq, uh, is it was like a resistance hero right. uh, on, under under Trump. So, uh, so I think that my, you know, you know, my unfortunate my prediction would be that uh, maybe you know uh, it might take two or three cycles, but sooner or later we're going to see uh, centrist Democrats uh, talking, you know, comparing whoever the hell the Republicans are running at that point and saying, well. Yeah, but you know, but reasonable Republicans like Donald Trump are against this guy. You know that they, they like he, he right. you know, sure. Like it was very like, you know, I had my differences with Donald Trump, but you know, this is a new. I agree with you a hundred percent. They studied Nick. Trump studied Nixon, and didn't make the mistakes Nixon made. And uh, somebody will study Trump and make sure that they don't make the mistakes Trump made. Bert Ross. Yes, thank you, you Professor me? Ben Burgess. All right. Thank you, David. Thank you. Uh, give them an argument. Watch it on YouTube. Download it as a podcast. Bert Ross, we're not out of the woods yet. We're not even David close. Feldman. We're not. Happy well, Hanukkah. It's all summed up, David. It's all it's all summed up. Uh, somebody actually a number of people sent me this. So I guess it's gone viral. And somebody somewhere had a sign for the Christmas holidays called joy except the j fell down <laughs> okay and that sums it all up it's like the new song is going to be oi for the world <laughs> Wait. do you know that if you do the scale backwards it's joy to the world really joy to the world the dumb yeah. C-B-A-G-F-E-D-C. That used to be my opening line with dates. That was very, that, that got them. That was. Bert Ross is a columnist for the Malibu Times. Let's, let's stick with what I'm asking you, sir. Which is? Don't you think Trump, hmm. with through the mists of time, there will be enough people who will not only miss him, but be able to point to accomplishments? Sure. You have you have seventy something million who voted for them for him. By the way, I love the logic that uh Trump and his followers uh promote, and I think they're actually arguing this before the Supreme Court, and you heard it in that clip. Four years ago, he got 60-something million votes and he won. And this time he got 70-something million votes and he lost. And if that isn't absolute prima facie proof of fraud, imagine, by the way, that you play on a basketball team and you win a game. The score, 80 points for the winner and 70 points for the loser. And the winner then plays another team and scores 90 points and loses. 
How can that possibly be? Isn't that bewildering? The fact that the other team scored more points is irrelevant to morons. (laughs) And we're growing them. If you had a convention of morons and you opened up all the hotel rooms in the world, you they'd be they they'd be on the street. So sure, sure, there are going to be people who will always consider him to be great. A lot of a lot of it isn't. Uh, you were talking about um, Bush, etc., and, and Obama. A lot of it isn't simply the reality of what they do. It's how they promote what they do. If you take the last three years of Obama's administration. He created literally as many, he's actually slightly more, but it, it, it's, it's so close, it doesn't matter. In the last three years of Obama's administration, he created the same number of jobs that Trump did in the, in the, in the first three years of his. And yet, if you talk to the average Joe, there's no way in the world they'll buy that. I, I can't believe, I can't believe that anybody would think that the, that, that, that Trump was the beneficiary until the pandemic of the Obama economy. Well, if you look at a chart, what he did was continued. Uh, when Obama took office, I think unemployment was over 10 percent. And uh, when he left office, it was a little he, he had pretty much halved it. And then that continued. And uh, Trump had around 5 percent when he took office and, and brought it down before the pandemic to around three and a half. Right. But to these numbers, don't we have to change the yardsticks? Are we really measuring unemployment properly? Are we? It should be poverty that we're measuring. People are working, but they're still poor. So what does it matter? If you're working and you're poor. Well, (laughs) there are are degrees. If you're unemployed for an extended period of time, you may be homeless. Right. That's different from working... uh, Look, there's no question that starting, I think, in the 1980s, the middle class disappeared. It evolved. And right now you have a uh, a diminished middle class and you have wealth, the likes of which I've never seen. And you have unbelievable poverty. Right. I had an uncle. uh, Now we're going back to the 1950s. He had a nice small house in Teaneck, maybe three bedrooms, a little backyard. He had one car and. his wife stayed at home, my aunt, with three children whom she raised. And he worked, he had a pretty good job in civil service and social security. And then Saturdays, uh, he would work for Tom McGann or something, selling shoes in a department store. His son, my first cousin, was married to, uh, my, my, my cousin is a, uh, a professor in the city school system, PhD. His wife, same thing, PhD, taught as a college professor. They have one child. They have one car. They have a two-bedroom apartment in, in Upper Manhattan, way up near the Coits, uh, near near. Uh, you almost said Coitsville, the Cloisters. The Cloisters. Thank you. Tell us, Coitsville. Coitsville is Fort Lee. Yeah, Jeff Tatarian is here. It's the Cloisters. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and so with two people working full time, they are probably not living any better off in terms of standard of living than my uncle did. 
Um, and there is something wrong with it. I have I have friends and whom I, whom I am very close to, and they have some of them have four houses. Um, and I can't even imagine. I'm in a situation where every year somebody somebody my kids and my wife ask what I could use for Christmas, and say, so "Help me, God! I can't think of a thing." If there was anything I wanted, I would buy it. And I. Uh, what do you want for Hanukkah? That should be the question. Hanukkah, yes. That's a problem for eight days. Boy. And um, I have friends who are infinitely wealthier than I am. And I don't even know how they can figure out how to spend it. Uh, and it shouldn't be up to us to just, you know, obviously some of us are more charitable than others. And that's uh, even though I won't get into the debate again, I, I happen to have tremendous regard for, for Bill Gates. I think he's walks on water. But the you can't rely on people's largesse to close that gap. Uh, but we, you know, you were na naming a number of people in the Republican Party who could pick up the banner. By, by the way, God, there's nobody more more sober than, so, somber than uh, Senator Cotton. I mean, oh my God. Uh, I don't know if he ever smiles. But they have all kinds of young people. Nikki Haley, Cotton, on and on. Ben Sass. Who are our young people? Who, who you know, we have Nancy Pelosi. We have Chuck Schumer. AOC, Biden, AOC, um, they are Cory Bush, what Rokana, who Cory Bush, Rokana, Cory, Cory Bush. She's a new congresswoman. Oh, OK. That's great. Uh, it just N Newman who beat Lipinski. She's good. And there's some new uh, Elisa Presley kind of good, you know. AOC. Oh, Presley's daughter. Uh, A AOC, Rashida Tlaib. Yeah, they're. Well, you're. You believe. Ilhan Omar. You believe that people on the left side of our party uh, are going to win the big prize. And this election. I don't know how you can derive hope from this election. The fact of the matter is that as soon as people voted to get rid of Trump, they then voted conservative. We lost seats in the House. We picked up one seat in the Senate. We lost state legislatures. Uh, I don't see the country anywhere remotely near the left. Okay, so and so so hang on for one second. I don't want to get into an argument with you. And we've talked about that you and I, but I've been asking on this show, where's the left? You know, other than Bernie, well, it's, not, it's 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 where are the people? But let me people? ask you. Let me ask no. you this question. Let's say I'm a Republican, okay? Mm -hmm. Here's what I believe if I'm because I, I want you to tell me what you, your 
you know, you're not a lefty, you're a liberal, you're a, a democratic centrist, you're you're a little more. I'm to- a pragmatist, David. I get I get what I think I can get. Right. Be- I I can go in I can go in with a wish list, but if 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 I'm pissing in the wind, it doesn't do anything but, for me. But that is a cop out that a lot of Democrats make because they really don't want what I want. Well, I'm not so sure. You say, that I but want you say, so people want, say, would people love, say, I'm I a pr- would love a country. I would love a country where uh, there were many more things that the government would provide, certainly for people in need. That the middle class would increase. Okay, let me let me make a statement. Uh, hang on, hang on. I want the, hang on for one second. I'm going to tell you. I'm going to pretend I'm a Republican. Okay, and I'm going to look at the American people and saying this is who we are. I believe that you cannot spend enough money on the military. I believe as a Republican that you cannot spend enough money on the cops. I'd rather spend money on the cops than our schools because the schools don't keep you safe. Cops keep you safe. I believe in law and order. And I believe that we should have a strong police and we should have a strong military and that everything is about jobs that we provide jobs, low-paying jobs, because we serve the richest 1% because they're the job creators. You get rid of the 1%, then you get rid of jobs. So as a Republican, I believe in cutting taxes, especially for the rich, and making... They don't say that, but they... they Eh, no. They're they're pretty oh, much no 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 they hang no, on no. hang on they wouldn't they don't say that but but this well, is what, what they point? believe hang what on what is your point because I'm, I'm going to ask you in a second hmm. my question Rep- we know that the Republicans believe in taking care of the rich f the poor if you don't have a work ethic don't come to this country we don't this is the Republicans believe if you're an immigrant. Don't come to this country unless you have something to offer us. We believe in money and keeping every penny we earn. And and if you're weak and you don't work hard, then live on the street. You're not my problem. You want you want health care? Earn it. That's what we believe as Republicans. At the core of our very being, that's what we believe. Tell me what the Democrats at the core of their very being believe. Do they believe the opposite of that? Because if they don't, what well, do they do? They even believe in labor. Do they believe in unions or do they? I, I hear Democrats still saying, I believe that unions uh, built the middle class, but, you know, they're corrupt and they're they charge too much and but. What do the Democrats believe in? Well, not, not, not sure. yeah, what are you selling as a well, Democrat? I'm not, sure it's a, I'm not sure it's monolithic, and I'm not sure. Ah, I'm not trying to be rude to you, Bert. No, I'm, 
It's monolithic with the Republicans. It is. I think that they have a more unified message. Because they have unified beliefs. They believe in religion. They're against abortion. I think that they have... um, they have forever in a day made the amount of money that we spend on the military a, a an act of patriotism. If you do not believe in expanding the military budget, uh, then you're not a patriot. But what do the Democrats believe? What does Nancy Pelosi believe? I believe that that she would be in support of a minimum wage, uh, that she would be opposed to tax breaks for the wealthy. Okay. More job opportunities for poor people, more education that would be free, more opportunity for people to to get into the middle class. But it's a very hard thing to sell if you don't have an extraordinarily good person on their feet. We have always led with intellectuals. If you look at Adlai Stevenson, Adlai Stevenson, very educated, extremely educated, extremely articulate ran against Dwight Eisenhower two times and got clobbered. You know why? Eisenhower was in the old Madison Square Garden. Eisenhower, because Adley was the Jimmy Carter. He was a compromise. He wasn't as liberal as we like to think he was. He was an intellectual, as was Jimmy Carter. When Eisenhower ran, he was in Madison, the old Madison Square Garden on 8th Avenue. And 10,000 people sang, we like Ike for he's a jolly good man. And he won big. We, Adelaide Stevenson wasn't a jolly good man. All right. Kennedy barely won with a little help from Mayor Daley. And he won because he was young, had a good looking wife and was charismatic. So we we had um, you're 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 not answering my question. It's you you don't you don't know what the Democrats really believe and have to offer. Let me show you. You know, Deborah Messing wrote to me. She should be she should she should be a candidate. She she should be our messenger. Deb, Deborah Messing from Will and Grace is asking me to donate to the Center for American Progress near Tandon's organization. This is the the Clintons set up this think tank. And near Tandon is going to be head of the OMB if Biden gets his way. But I doubt she'll get there. And Deborah Messing is asking me to donate to the Center for American Progress. And she asks... What are we for? It's not good enough to say you're against Trump. We at the Center for American Progress, what are we for? Well, the first well, thing I, the first thing should I be mean, the first I thing would, she should be saying is Medicare for all. That would be the first thing or putting the fossil fuel industries out of business within the next 4 years. Okay. And 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 
by the way, can we take her down? Well, I want to read you one paragraph here. Exactly. Okay. So, so Bert, this is this, she's asking me for money. Okay. And this is, what, right, this is what this is what she's right offering. To ask Democrats what they're for, but any Democrat who tells you that they're for the elimination of fossil fuel uh, is not going to win an election. Oh, okay, hang on. The, the, she's asking me for money, not my vote for money. And she writes, "Okay, we are for tackling basic issues like access to child care." Yes. Hey, hey, let me let, give me one second here. Let me just read. I'm agreeing with you. Okay. Basic. We are for tackling basic issues like access to child care, paid sick leave and family and medical leave. That's what she leads with. And we are for stopping climate change. Well, that should be the first thing, probably. And how is she going to stop? How is Deborah Messing and the Center for American Progress going to stop climate change, Bert? Quote, by making it part of our conversations around the economy, infrastructure and racial justice. You want my money. You want my vote. We've got four years left before we're all underwater and we're going to make climate change part of our conversations around the economy, infrastructure, and racial justice? Are you kidding me? Who who are you? Who would give that? Excuse me. I don't know this woman. (laughs) From Will and Grace. I I think she's quite attractive, and I think we should support her. You're right. You know what? What? I I don't care. I I don't care. I give up. You're right. Are you so old that you're... She's asking for money. <laughs> What's your problem? <laughs> How much? <laughs> I'm gonna go. Oh, this is a sexism. Oh, God. Yeah, well, politically incorrect. Vegas Mirgashad. What are you doing for Hanukkah? Nothing. And, and by the way, I was, I was actually in the mood for potato latkes, pancakes, and I made them. I made them once. And they were actually quite good. But I think that if you eat a batch of potato pancakes, you can't, if you got on the scale the following morning, you, you wouldn't see a weight. The scale would say, are you effing kidding? <laughs> Get I off mean, me, you fat bastard. It, that, is, that, is, that is correct. I, I once stayed at a, at a friend's home in Palm Beach. He wasn't there. Very one of the Fortune 400 wealthiest Americans. Can't you just say Fortune and 500? Why does that have to be Fortune 400? It was in the 400. Well, get five, round it off. Anyway, That's so- and he he has some beautiful artwork, et cetera. And I I called him up, and I won't mention his name. I'll I'll, I'll make up a name, Jimmy. I said, Jimmy, there's an an item here. I would really like to steal. Do you know what that item is? He figured one of his pieces of art, which is quite expensive. I was, I, he, he had not, not a clue. I said, do you know that you have a scale that weighs five pounds light? <laughs> he said, yes, I'm aware of that. I said, that's what I would like. Okay. Mm. My problem as I get older 
is if I get to a certain weight, I look down and I can't determine my gender. <laughs> and there are only two ways to fix that. And one of them isn't happening. <laughs> I'm glad you're alive, David. Hey, 90-year-old woman. You know, I, don't understand, I don't understand the chatters that you have. Well, and don't pay it to their animals. Here's some good they news. They call chatters. They, first of all, they're chin. I call them chin whackers. not listening to anything I say because, oh, you this, know, I'm a little confused. They said this woman was 92, and then they said there was 90. So maybe that vaccine's already helping her. But what's remarkable is they said that she retired four years ago. Yeah. And no she side was effects. very much with it. Oh, who does that? What? That's a, put that on that woman, that face. That's not right. It's just a minor side effect. That's a... Now, William Shakespeare, on the other hand... Yes. Looks like he's not going to benefit that much from the from the vaccine. He looks may, already. You know what? When I saw the British getting that vaccine, it made me proud to be an American. That, now, was, a, that was a Pfizer. That's an American vaccine being tested on the British for our phase four trials that they don't know about. And now we know it's safe. The, we, we didn't tell the British that they're phase four. I think that uh, we're going to be surprised at how few doses are really coming out. They're talking about California getting in the, in the initial uh, disbursement, 300,000, which is a, basically because you have to have two, it's 150,000 people in a state of 38 million. I'm not even, I, I can't even do the math. By the way, the, Trump is such a moron. The other day, he announces that 15% of America has already had uh, the virus, and therefore, we have herd immunity. Well, first of all, he says we're almost there. People, 15 million people. No, he said 15% of the population. Well, 15% of our population is 50 million. 15 million people is 5%. Even if it were 15%, we'd be nowhere near herd immunity. So he has no clue. He just talks and nobody seems to. He said, what he says. on Tuesday during the vaccine summit, then we'll bring in Emil Guillermo. Donald Trump said, if COVID 19 kills, Another 1.8 million people in America. We won't need a vaccine. He said Tuesday, you know, it's terrific. We're 15% of the way to herd immunity. By the way, you're going to miss him. You're going to miss heard anything that dumb. You would say he didn't say that. But but in this particular case, it doesn't matter how outlandish and moronic something is. It, it sounds like something he would say. The guy who had it right. And then we have to wrap it up. Then we have to wrap it up. Capitalist. We have to wrap it up after this. Very quick. Okay. You can't be more of a capitalist than the than the head of Exxon oil company. And a former Secretary of State called him a fucking moron. And that's exactly what we have. And half almost half the country thinks he's great. So 
Bert Ross. Email. Sorry to take your time. I'm out of here. Let me hey. just wrap it up. Hey, Bert. Bert, you yeah. should go to my website, amok.com. I have vegan a vegan latkes recipe there, and um, you know, I'll make sure through. Well, David. if you cook it and send it to me, that would be great. <laughs> I'll email hey. it. I'll email it to you, cook. Bert, that's all right. I'll, I'll warm it up. Hey. We're doing Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve here. Well, can I can I leave now? And we'll well, are you going to come? Are you going to come to our New Year's and Christmas show? It's on a Thursday. That's when we tape. Uh, I don't know. What do you? I'll see you. Bye. See you well, Bert Ross. Let us now go to Northern California, where Emil Guillermo is standing by. He is the host of the PETA podcast as well as a columnist for ALDEF, the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. Tell me how the lockdown is going, sir. Well, you know, I I just stay in. I, I, I have stayed in since March. And I, I the secret, the secret for me is I love the lockdown. Was that a song? I love the lockdown. I, I love the lockdown. I, I this is... I, I come willingly to your show, David, because this is the only time that I get to. Well, it's not the only time, but I, I interact. I look through the people and I interact with my old friend. Mm -hmm. And th this is humane. This I am. I am relegated to the idea that I am in my closet. I've got my gong. I got my PETA T-shirts. I, I this is where I do my work. And so I I. I can go on like this indefinitely. Just yeah, bring me on a Zoom once a week. I'm fine. I'm fine. Are you so doing? Are you going to do our Christmas show? Are you going to do our New Year's show? Sure. I mean, I, this is where I am. I'll, I'll call. look. Ha, is this your Hanukkah show? Happy Hanukkah, dude. Thank you. Don't patronize me. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, yeah. Okay. You know. Well, never mind. I, yeah. Sure. I. You know. I. I. I will come. Bring good cheer on Christmas Day, you know, uh, and, and New Year's, you know, coincidentally, because it's Thursday. It's a Thursday. You tape. Yeah, sure. Fantastic. Tell me some good news. Good news. Uh, PETA has exposed on the PETA podcast this week. We expose the fact that, do you know who the president of South Africa is? No. You know his name? No. See, I mean, a lot of people just like. The South Africa problem is that's over, right? We we solved it. Trevor Noah's on the comedy on Comedy Central. Everything's good now. We're South Africa. Right. No, see, people don't know who. I mean, both Bota, but no, now that was like decades ago, right? It's Cyril Cyril Ramaphosa. Okay, Cyril he's better than the previous guy who believed that AIDS didn't exist. Uh, just barely. Cyril Ramaphosa believes that you should breed big game animals and then bring American tourists to South Africa to shoot those big game animals. And, you know, uh, the Trumps are big, big time trophy hunters. Uh, you remember that guy who killed uh, the, the dentist who killed the lion from Minnesota, Minneapolis. Yeah. I mean, he got in a whole lot of trouble because of that. Uh, well, there was a guy from the Golden State, my state, our, well, California, went down there and uh, shot up some uh, rhinoceros and went on Facebook and Instagram and bragged about it. 
And uh, PETA investigators found out not so much about this guy, the the tourist, the American tourist. There, there are tourists from all around the world. But the fact that Ramaphosa did the provided the animals to the the range and it's not much of a range it's like a it's like a big fenced in area they they let out the animals that they they keep in these cages they let them run out free and then they let the safari hunters go and hunt them down so he gets he gets both ends and on tape the PETA investigators got the the caretakers of this whole operation saying that Ramaphosa got 50% of it all so this was inst- Aside from being the South African president, this was Ramaphosa's side hustle. Hmm. And, you know, look. Is there any justification? PETA does not support, condone any hunting. Is that correct? That's right. Nothing. If, If... When... If you're in the wild and you had to kill a bear because you were hungry, you know, look, I mean... PETA has a stance that, that animals aren't there for uh, to you know for entertainment. They they aren't there for uh, and then they they don't even call them pets. So they're our, our companion animals, and yeah, uh, they they're not there for food. They're not to be eaten. I mean, if you if if your choice was a bear or a bunch of berries, Peter would hope you'd eat your berries, save the bear. What about when hunters say they're thinning out the herd, that they're going to die anyway? Well, that's been an excuse that people have used uh, for a long time that, hey, you know, this is this is birth control. Well, hey, how about birth control? That that has been used by some communities, especially when in Staten Island, they they gave I'm serious. Didn't they give the deer in Staten Island birth control? Well, I know in some communities they 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 did. I mean, when when people said, oh, we might we got to shoot the deer because the deer are, you know, anyway, to get back to the South African hunting, it's a big deal. Americans are going down there. They're shooting up the, the big game. And um, but the thing that people can do who are listeners here, the big game hunters have to bring their 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 catch back up to America, back home. And of all the all the airlines have said, no, they're not going to allow this. That's good. But guess who allows it? UPS. That's right. UPS, the people who aren't picking up packages in, in America, they're picking up people's rhinoceroses and bringing it back to America. Wow. So you should go to the PETA, PETA.org, uh, sign up to, to send a message to UPS. UPS is like a holdout and they shouldn't be. They should join the other airlines and say, no, we're not going to we're going to not going to let you like bag your carcass and then ship it for you. And this guy, this guy in California, not only did he bag the carcass, he ate little bit of the rhinoceros anyway why would you do that because people are deranged because people don't have a you know they're unethical they don't care about animals they 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 think one way that animals are there to be in service to man right that that they are dominant it's the same sort of thinking uh the same kind of species is thinking that really applies to all oppression you want to talk about uh, racism and and sexism, all oppression. It all is based on a kind of supremacy, and so speciesism really covers all of it. So I've been reading. I'm obsessed with Trump 
because yeah. I realize that it's I'm obs- look, I'm obsessed with him, too. But uh, uh, recently obsessed, not with what he's doing with Giuliani and trying to get out of, you know, trying to overturn the election. I'm obsessed with his presidency. I, I'm studying his presidency. The, it's history, I hope. And yeah, I, I find it. it yeah. And it's just a, a, it's fascinating. So I'm putting up a picture of Don Jr. Uh-huh. After yeah. he bagged, I don't know what that is, a water buffalo? Yeah. Right? You know, they have a whole, in South Africa, they have whole menus that you can go and you can pick the animal you want before you go down. And they'll make sure that they're like for a rhino. You, you get it a la carte, $45,000. Uh, you can, you know, you can get a trio of jackal. And, you know, and they breed specific kinds of of animals based on do you want a full color spectrum of that animal i mean it's really ridiculous and it's it's really uh well here he is yeah, posing he's got terrible. his I think it's a water buffalo a water I don't, I don't know but uh he's got his knife or that's he, a bad toupee i think yeah and he's got the the bullets wrapped around him what is that called uh, yeah, like Dandero or so, not yeah. something like that, and the the rifle, and he's smiling, and yeah. as you, you read about how he was raised, I've been reading about what the father said to his face. What did he say? You're an idiot. I wish I didn't give you my name. I can't believe you're Don Junior. You, you're my namesake. He's an idiot. The father talks about him he's pretty accurate <laughs> i mean you know, he, you know yeah. donald trump is a liar but sometimes he does say the truth he yeah. says in front of his son you're a moron you're an idiot you constantly create problems for my business uh, this, is not, this is trump talking to don jr recently not like when he's a teenager or no, throughout his life Throughout his life yeah and Eric, well, that goes without saying. Or Eric. You know. Well, not Eric. He's just Eric. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, here's Eric and Don, two brothers, sharing a leopard that yeah. they killed. Yeah. I remember that picture. Yeah. yeah. I'm just yeah, showing yeah. it like they're smiling and. They're I, imagining it's their, their father, I think. Uh, if this makes you happy. Now, I know that there's some people who hunt for food. You don't eat leopard, right? Not me. Not I. Yeah. Don't wear leopard either. So you, you're killing this leopard, and then they're holding it. Eric's holding it. This dead cat. And this is... This is why there's no empathy in the Trump family. I mean, it is just terrifying. Well, it's terrifying to think that uh, we have to endure another, what, four or five weeks of of, uh, of the family. I, I hope they, uh, I hope Monday goes successfully. Everything is certified and out they go by by. But January. that's evil. I mean, that is just pure evil. I understand. Look, you're a vegan. I've become a vegan. I used to be a vegetarian, but now I'm a, a vegan. Although you say I don't do it right. <laughs> Too much oil. 
That's all right. I'll help you, David. You've been a lifelong friend. I'll help you. I understand that people eat chicken and fish. I understand that. I understand that people hunt Mm -hmm. to eat venison. But for sport, just so they could just put a trophy, a trophy picture. What do they do? What what are you going to bring that leopard home and make a rug out of it? I mean, that is so sick and depraved. They sell pelts or they use the pelts, I guess. Uh, they they make a rock. I don't know. I, they definitely save the head. They bring it to the taxidermist, right? Uh, and Don I, Jr., by the way, is eyeing a political career because, as I've been told, he gets more love from the Republican Party than he ever got from his mother and father. But he goes to these rallies and for the first time in his life, he's getting, he's accepted. Well, I, I believe that. And he's uh, hooked up with uh, Miss Guilfoyle, who is. Uh, Gavin I, Newsom's ex-wife? Yeah, Gavin Newsom's ex-wife. How did also. that happen? Well, San Gavin Newsom's. San Francisco politics. Come on. She was uh, in the, uh, the DA's office and he was a rising star. Uh, meet people at work. Um, so they, they're basically all the same. They're Republicans. Gavin Newsom, Kamala Harris. is if, yeah. if They're Republicans because San Francisco is a neoliberal hotbed for Democrats. You can only get elected if you're a Democrat. Kamala's ambitious. Yeah. Well, Gavin's is, I, ambitious. So they, they went, well, I better be a Democrat. So I'm liberal on the social issues. I, I, th- I think that, well, I think both of them were more even they could have been progressive Democrats, but it was bad for their career. So they 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 moderated and they became this neoliberal thing. Uh, I don't I, it gets to the point where you don't really know where they stand. Uh, there's, they stand for whatever they do that's right, right? I mean, I, I've known or have covered uh, both of them for, for some time, you know, in, in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I really don't know what Kamala Harris is for. She's for, she's on the right side of race, as, you know, as long as it benefits her. I mean, she, but she's against busing. You know, that little girl was me. Right. Well, yeah, well, she'll, she'll bang on Biden at the, at the debates. When but she's good. against busing. Well, I don't know. Has she said that? Yes. Yeah. Well, the whole Democratic Party's against busing. Yeah. Well, she's the suburbs now, I guess. D.C. And I, I, I just don't know. Look, I think with all the stuff that's going on with the, the this bogus lawsuit that's moving up, and the the eighteen AGs and the hundred uh, House of Representatives uh, backing Trump, I think, I think we have. A left, a right, and a Trump. And that's where this, that's the spectrum. And that's bad because the Trump side is really a pro-fascist side, an anti-democratic side, an anti-democracy side. Let's not confuse the term. An anti-democracy side. And I think what we need now, and what I'm concerned about and thinking about and writing about, is we need a pro-democracy movement in America. Yes. Now that they've shut down pro-democracy in Hong Kong, and what a, I mean, that, look, pro-democracy in, in, amen. in Hong Kong. 
it was a big deal until they they arrested all the leaders just recently. Did we hear a peep out of out of out of what's his face out of Trump? No, you know. In the past, look when when Tiananmen Square went down in '89. You know, even Bush had, you know, had the courage and the morality to say those butchers of Beijing. I mean, the Republicans were on the right side of that issue. But, you know, China, by the way, that's a great restaurant. Butchers of Beijing. Yeah, you know, they, they, they have they serve they serve that fake meat. Too. Yeah, it's delicious. Yeah. So the the uh, the, the thing about. Uh, democracy you're absolutely you know harvey jk professor harvey jk was on the show tuesday and we talked about democracy that the and i said this earlier on the show if there's one thing the democrats should be is for what they're named after democracy and And they're not well but more so than the republicans and tell ask ask the green party how well, pro-democracy the Democrats are. Uh, all right, that's true. Look, if there's anything that should be the bipartisan issue that brings everyone together, it's this idea of democracy. And so the ironic thing of having China uh, jail and arrest uh, the leaders of the pro-democracy movement in China and really in less than 20 years to see the whole one country, two systems thing in Hong Kong fall apart. And now, you know, the autocrats are 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 really firmly uh, in control there. And really, those are those are the people that that Trump wants to model himself. He wants to, you know, oh, he's a president for the lifetime. You know, we, I could be president for, for a lifetime. I mean, he is really he's confused. He just wants power. Right. He wants power. He wants control. And now the word is uh, from reports that he's just grim people are dying in america he doesn't care it's just sad for our country and i think that you know here's the thing i don't think a lot of people the 74 million who voted for trump they're still out there they're not wearing masks they're you know they're they they still think he's he's the he's the guy and what they will follow him and the hundred congressmen who who signed on and said they're backing this lawsuit they're gonna follow follow trump this is bad for our country this is bad i mean going forward we we really have an anti-democracy pro-fascist wing of our country that's pro-power and anti-poor anti-people of color anti-medicare for all anti you know get it yourself we're capitalists you know this is sad for a country, and, and certainly Biden is not going to be the answer. But Biden is at least, you know, our government standing erect as it can be at this stage, which is a positive thing. If all goes well, then he gets inaugurated. Here, here here's what I'm worried about. Yeah. When George W. Bush was president, we had a president, and he moved the ship of state. When Obama was president, he moved. You knew who the president was and we knew who Trump was. I don't see that with Biden. I hope I'm wrong. I don't see Biden seizing the reins of the executive branch and saying this is what this is what the executive branch is doing. This is what we believe I don't know. I 
Don't you think the other day when he was quoting from FDR, speaking from the shoulder, I thought he was beginning to fill a void that we have had. We've had this void. We just a rhetorical have. void, but oh yeah, all right, right. It may be rhetorical for now, but he is still just president elect. But I think that we at least it's we're hearing it. We're oh yeah, a president used to say this. A president used. To, Used to have to care that Americans were dying, you know, piled up one on top of the other in in hospitals. Right. And, let me do this. Let me, yeah. Can you stick around? We'll bring in Alan Minsky. Sure. And sure. let me yeah. plug our big COVID town squares. Number six, we're raising money for Henry Huckamaki's education and research. Henry Huckamaki, Huckamaki is a an immunobiologist and it's kind of interesting for i was thinking uh when the pandemic first started i got an angry email from the irritable immunologist who was mad at me for talking about covid with no information and i said why don't you come on the show so we started having irritable on the show who is just so funny and brilliant and then Henry started joining us, who blew us away in every way. And we've been doing the COVID town squares. I guess this is number six. It's to raise money and educate our listeners about COVID. So go to DavidFeldmanShow.com, hit pay-per-view, and it'll take you to our Eventbrite page. And it's pay what you want. That's how we're doing it for this holiday season. Pay what you want. Everybody who comes, if you pay a dollar or you pay a million dollars, you all get a limited edition special postcard to commemorate our big event this Saturday at 9.30 p.m. COVID Town Squares, December 12th. Join us for another entertaining, enlightening COVID Town Squares. And uh, go to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit attend a live taping, and sign up. And don't forget, we're doing office hours again Friday you night. Get, you get a free dose also. You get a free vaccine. Joining us in Southern California is the executive director of the Progressive Democrats for America, who is... Not mute. It was muted. Alan Minsky. of America of, of America. America. Yes. Progressive yes. Democrats of America. All right. I said, and you shook your head, and that's why I'm bringing you in, sir. I said, I don't feel that Biden. I don't feel like we're going to have a president. And you shake your head. You disagree. I do. I didn't think Obama did much to really change things. Too. But dramatic. you knew we had a president. Oh, yeah. Was, yeah, sure. It was. I think Barack Obama will go down in history as one of the greatest candidates in all of global politics, in the history of global politics. Um, and, you know, it was a decent president as presidents go, but he was a very status quo president, especially, of course, after the Republicans won. Though he did some good things in his final two years. Yeah, I think he sort of woke up and saw that maybe some progressive measures were necessary to get going. But I mean, if the progressive measures were in the first two years when he had a huge majority and just 
He lost massively within two years. The guy had the whole world in the palm of his hand coming in. And you hire, you're in the middle of a Wall Street uh, induced crisis. You hire Wall Street to dig your way out of it. Guess what? It wasn't going to be too popular with the population. I'm going to defend uh, him. I'm going to yeah. I'm going to defend yeah. him. Just because you can't do a show where everybody agrees. Oh no, and I, I can defend him too. I can. He I didn't swing. run. He didn't run on macroeconomics. I know that's true. That's that, that's that, 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 spr- that that's got sprung on him in October. Yeah. Of, right. Nobody and, thought there was going to be a global economic collapse. And and if you actually look at really what his campaign was about as it launched, that was very far away from the the the, the driving motivation. Uh, motivating political points that he was making, uh, which obviously there was, there's always he ran basically ran. He said, and he was wrong on this. He said we, the wrong war. Iraq is the wrong war. Afghanistan is where we need to be. He was running on killing Afghani's and fewer Iraqis. That's basically. I think he also ran as somebody who was just lifting up the, you know, sort of renewing the idea of America as a competent, progressive, liberal society. Uh, and, you know, in many ways, it's a little hard to look through the haze of the Donald Trump years and really remember back how hideous we all thought George W. Bush was. But we all really did. We were absolutely appalled at his reelection. Um, you know, he was he was clearly not the president, uh, his administration and people in his administration were making the calls. I do agree that he used the executive branch. That is the Bush administration. Bush, Bush the second's administration was a very activist executive branch in a way that the Obama administration was not. Um, and it also was an effectively activist, progressive uh, executive branch uh, beyond what Trump was and what Trump wanted to do. But Trump got so you know, was always pretty marginalized from the rest of the political establishment. Um, so, you know, the most the most impactful um, executive of the 21st century so far has been George W. Bush because of Dick Cheney and the other people he had in his administration. And the impact was horrific. It was horrible. I think, no, go ahead. You know. One more note on Obama. Let's not forget the fact that, you know, how he galvanized the, uh, the you know, the, People of color, blacks, Latinos, huge huge majorities, and how people saw when they say hope to change, people saw in him as a person of color uh, that he would bring some change. I I was there at the I covered the inaugural in January. As cold as you know, I mean, I was just freezing my butt off. But the number of people who were just there was that that feeling that. Uh, bipartisan support. You know, there's all that talk. Mm. The, oh, yeah. It was so strong. And, but there was a feeling in Washington, you'd walk around and people would be cheering. Oh my God, mm-hmm. this is the new world. Right. Mm-hmm. And see what happened subsequent. Oh yeah. No, I mean, but I mean, but that goes to the point that he, I think he was one of the most uplifting um, political candidates in the history of political candidates. And, um, um, and certainly, I think what 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 was articulated by the American population in electing him in pretty much a, a landslide for him in the Democratic Party in November uh, 2008 was probably one of the high points. And I can't think of a higher point in the history of American democracy. Yeah, I mean, and he certainly is the vehicle and deserves all the credit for it. Emil, you're- he, he didn't. He didn't capitalize on the. In fact, he almost downplayed race. Almost yeah. the first, 
almost the, the first four years. You know, played, and then and he turned on black people in many ways. He told young black men to pull up their pants and he pulled a Bill Cosby on younger African-Americans and talked about personal responsibility instead of talking about lack of a safety net. Although prison re- prison reform, he near the end, he, he was talking about prison reform. You know, the last two years he did some things was also significant. The Kerry actually was the secretary of state, not Hillary. By that point, there was a lot of uh, corrective stuff that happened along those lines. But, you know, when you do look at the, the achievements, especially after 2010, where the excuse is, though, you know, the Republicans have controlled the House, but still the level of achievement is pretty low. So I do think there was a disconnect during much of the Obama era with the machinations of the presidency in the way that wasn't necessarily the case recently, especially among Democrats during the Trump era. Trump, for whatever it's worth, you know, is always going to get grab attention. And I think there also was heavy engagement during the Bush years. I think people were aware that this was an active executive branch. They went to foreign wars. Um, you know, they, uh, they they pushed the ownership society. They busted, they blew apart the global economy. But the actions of the executive branch were, were central to the political thought process of the country. And even just the, the, the level of engagement was high during the Bush years. So I, I want to ask you, Alan, about uh, racism and sexism on the left. Mm-hmm. One of the things I've noticed, I'm not, somebody said to me, I'm not making a sweeping generalization about the left. I have noticed some leftists have soured on identity politics, that they look at Biden's multicultural, diverse cabinet and they say, big deal, they're still neoliberal pigs and they get angry. They, they, they say things like, what good is it if you have a, an African-American running the Defense Department if he works for Raytheon? What good is it if you have a woman who's your, you know, Homeland Security, if she works for? And I, I agree, but I'm hearing a lot of white men, white mm-hmm. heterosexual men who insist they see absolutely no value to diversity in the Biden cabinet. So to me, it speaks to two things. One is racism on the left, Mm -hmm. as well as white men being a problem, even Mm -hmm. though they're, you know, leftists. Is there, uh, do you see, do you see uh, an, an animosity um, I, mean, towards- I, say, I, 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 I hear that what you're describing is something of a phenomenon and I recognize it um, more pronounced than ever before on the left. Um, right now, I actually have had a very good 24 hours because politically, because somebody who I could even even even, you know, well, I, I, I know pretty well is going to run for house in Marsha Fudge's district. And she's going to be Senator Nina Turner. Right. But uh, Marsha Fudge is going to be in, in housing. HUD. HUD. Urban development, yeah. right? HUD. So, um, OK, so and Marsha Fudge is African-American and a woman. Yeah. Nina Turner wins. Right. You will have her join the ranks of 
what was called the squad in the last Congress, Cori Bush and Jamal Bowman, as the most outspoken core group of radical progressives um, in the Congress. All seven are uh, people of color, six of them are women, and I do not know a single leftist in the country that just does not thrill at the notion of Nina joining them in the House and joining them as, as a group. Now, there are other great uh, progressives, not all uh, white male at all, white males at all, who are, you know, exceptional. I mean, certainly Pramila Jayapal and Ro Khanna, neither of whom are white, white males, um, would fit ideologically very close to, and they're very high profile. But, you know, the squad, as it were, is something, and it came in in a certain year, and now it would be added to in the next year. So, so his pick of Marsha Fudge for HUD, mm-hmm. that's a good pick. <laughs> um, Marsha Fudge for HUD is a fine pick. Uh, Marsha Fudge was pretty upset that she didn't get the Secretary of Agriculture, where she was pretty much favored. And I do think there is a real problematic element to her not getting it that has a lot to do also with... Um, Vilsack. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and the idea of a black woman getting it was, uh, you know, something that is hard to get around, thinking that that was an element to her not getting it, because the conception of agriculture and and uh, farmers being white Americans is is not only not not that accurate because there's incredible diversity of people working in the agricultural industry now. Farm workers, <laughs> yeah, always been a large large rural African American population southeast. And um, but anyway, that, there's that. But my point being is that um, you know um, I, I I know very few leftists who don't just. Purely for the squad and the end of the squad, and as large as it can be, and the idea of Nina Turner joining it. So there's that just to defend the left in general. Right. Now, the dynamic that you're describing, yeah, I hear it, and I think it's nonsense. I think you just have to judge people. You judge people according to what their public policy positions are. We at PDA just fought really hard, and, you know, a little feather in our cap. We played a role, and not an insignificant role, with our partners, Medea uh, Benjamin, who's on our board, Marcy Winograd. Norman Solomon, David Swanson, in helping make sure that Michelle Flournoy did not become Secretary of Defense. Now, here's the deal. Okay, Austin is going to be a former general, and yes, he's on the board of Raytheon, but has, has the revolving door of corruption functions in Washington? His being on the board of Raytheon is standard fair revolving door corruption. Michelle Flournoy, along with Blinken, by the way, but with Flournoy, really, I, my understanding is in the lead. She started a whole new company to be the primary beneficiary of defense contracting while she was out and then goes into the Pentagon. That's what right. a West exec was called. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, that, first of all, that's on another level. Then, okay, Austin has been a general. He has not been a out-and-out architect, and he hasn't been an as again, I keep using the term today, it's a little bit creative use of it, but an activist general, he very much was somebody who dutifully performed the duties that were, you know, uh, required of him to perform. Again, eventually up in leadership, but not a driver of policy type of person. And today. there were African-American generals in the Pentagon who pushed back when Donald Trump wanted to right. br- bring troops onto the streets to fight BL- Black Lives Matter. But here's the point, though, which is the virtue of which is the virtue of identity politics, the the virtue of having an African-American 
just for the sake of having an African-American there. We'll talk about that. Go ahead. I know I'm interrupting. Just, just to finish the point, Michelle Florina is a hawk, a hawkish hawk among the Democratic ranks and possible leaders in a way that Austin or Johnson are not. Um, and so that's why we push against Florina, who is very conspicuously would have been the first woman. And we didn't advocate for either of the generals, but we were much happier uh, that it wasn't Florina. I. I mean, we obviously are not really fans. I mean, we'd want Andrew Basevich, you know, or we'd want, uh, you know, somebody else to be the head of the Pentagon. Emil, but, uh, what, what are your thoughts about, for lack of a better word, tokenism? So, well, I, I'm, I don't like it. Um, I think that if you look at all the cabinets over the last uh, few administrations, you know, the look at the Republican cabinets there. Some of them, the Bush cabinets were, were actually much more, much more diverse than people think, you know, for a Republican, for a Republican. And, and I worked for a guy who was on the cabinet of both a Republican and a Democratic uh, administration. I, I worked for Mineta for uh, back in the early 90s. But now Mineta, sad to say, he's sort of typical for that that Washington you know, the revolving door. He went to work for Lockheed. Uh, you know, I know him as a, as a humble former mayor of San Jose who went to Congress and drove a Dodge Colt. I mean, he had no money. Uh, I was one of his staffers in, in Washington, D.C., and uh, speech writer. And we, he, ta- we, well, he was secretary of transportation. He was secretary for transportation. And he drove under- a Dodge Colt. No, this is before me oh. or, or after me, after me. I was there when he was a humble congressman. And then he was then he became the uh, the the chairman of the Public Works and Transportation Committee. And then I le- I left to do more media stuff. And he left Congress in 95 when, you know, Gingrich took over. This is all history for your younger Okay, but the question I'm at, go ahead, the question I'm at, Alan, go ahead. Well, I just want to say, look, you know, it, it, if you want to get down to it, these decisions, you know, it, I think it's just a matter of who who's chosen in terms of their public policy positions. There are innumerable people, so it's great that there's diversity in the cabinet, and, you know, and it can cut both ways. I think we, probably because of pressure that was occurring in the 48 hours before Javier Becerra was named, that no prominent Latinos had been named, that the head of HHS, hugely, hugely important position at this hour, right, goes to somebody who's probably better than, you know, the average temperature of, of the Biden administration. Now, to your point, you know, it's, it's funny. I wasn't expecting Becerra. Becerra was mm-hmm. a congressman when I was uh, working in Congress, and I met him a few times. He's a good manager, has done good things when he went back to California and he left Congress and he's done some things. You say, why is an AG going to be an HHS? You know, you say, you know, what is he, is he going to, who's he going to jail or who's he going to prosecute? But, you know, the fact is he's done some things on, on COVID, you know, in California and he, he's actually a good fit for the job, and he's a Latino who has good managerial and good political skills. So yeah, all of the other one of the weird things about him, too, is he's really proven to be, of course, he was in House leadership, but yeah. as AG, he's proven to be such an, a, an efficient um, organizer of the office 
that it was like, wow, why were you in Congress? You really, you really, you would think he would have gone to the, um, you know, the uh, executive. executive. Yeah. yeah well, but this is the whole thing about all these guys from California who came around the same time, like, uh, like, uh, well, I don't know. You might have some ideas about Panetta, right? But mm. Pan- Panetta manages to go from the revolving door of politics, right? From one bureau to another because he happens to be trusted generally and a good manager. So mm. all you're looking for... CIA, right? Well, I, I oh, think... A whole bunch of things. Yeah, over the time. yeah he was... Yeah, I mean... Yeah, did, you was, ever, did you ever see Panetta and Manetta in the same room? Yes, that was a joke, and we saw him. On, we saw him on Manetta Lane at the, or at the there in the village. Uh, that, oh, wow! Did he really in Greenwich Village? Yeah, you know, there's that you know the Manetta place on the Italian. Yeah, but, but, but the Panettas and the Manettas, yes, that's an old joke for speechwriters for both of them. So. Oh, okay. But but look, I you know the, the thing is, he, um, yeah, Washington, it's. You, 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 you want diversity, but in the end, like Alan says, you want competence and not just technocrats, not just people who know how to do the job, but people who. Well, Mineta was as a transportation secretary in a Bush White House. Was he right. good? It was, it was commerce under Clinton. It was transportation under under uh Bush. And we, we criticized Colin Powell on this show because he could have stopped the war. But but well, actually, he was a Democrat and a Republican. That's that's not fair. Well, it, it's it's tough. You, you see these people, you, you meet them, you think, OK, they'll take the principled stand and then they do something like vote for NAFTA, you know, um, and I remember that they're being there for the vote in the, in the Capitol. And that, that kind of like sickened me a bit because I just knew that I, you know, I, I, I didn't want to go on the inside. That was a little too inside for me. And I had to go back outside. But, right. you know, you just people make these votes in politics and they're tough. You don't understand them. And in the old days, before 1989, before 1990, people were just more colleague collegial they were more you know left and right getting together i mean one of Manetta's good friends was henry hyde the you know the uh, illinois uh, conservative who had a secret family yeah right i mean you know that they're not perfect david they're not perfect Uh, also alan simpson was an old friend of so there were people they're crossing the lines and it wasn't until the 90s that people got really combative and angry and and that grew and built toward the kind of gridlock politics we have now. So why is that? I, I have a theory as to why that is. Alan, why why is it so divisive? I think it's unfair to say you have a theory, which is very teasing and I'm very interesting. I'm a subject that you just broached 15 seconds ago, and I'm only reflecting on the fact that PDA is setting up liaisons to every Democratic congressional office and yeah, if we have a chapter in a Republican district and you want to do it too, yeah, sure, go ahead and do it. We don't even try mm-hmm. with Republicans, you know. I mean, when we do our letter drops, when, uh, about, at this point now, half the time that I've been ED, I've, of course, it's been COVID. But before that, I would be up on Capitol Hill and be lobbying. And it was fun to go into the Republican offices and talk about, you know, student debt cancellation. All the young kids who staff, you know, entry area there, they want student debt cancellation because they're suffering under student debt loads. But, you know, it was, it was pointless to talk to the elected officials. 
and you know we're we're going to have a heavier lift if we win in Georgia, which we're pushing really hard to do um, because we have to get uh, 50 and we have two liaisons per office. We'll have to get 100 more liaisons organized like that because we don't even bother organizing the liaison program unless the party has power. McConnell, what's the point? It's like almost a waste of time. You want to hear my theory? Why? Yeah, that'll be a lot more interesting. Uh, There's echo. There's an echo coming out of your. There you go. I think it has something to do with the politically correct movement. The same time that we saw the rise of the politically correct it was during the George Herbert Walker Bush administration that we saw the term politically correct come up. And yeah. I, actually, now I'm starting to bristle for for not a fight with you, David. But well, let me let me tell you let me tell you my theory first. So we all have to hate somebody there was a time when you could hate jews arabs muslims blacks women asians filipinos filipinos you you still can philly that's okay it's still good and jews that's a, a those are perennials we hate and we're not allowed to hate anymore so the only acceptable form of hatred and vitriol is hating somebody for what their political beliefs are. It is perfectly acceptable to say in public, I would never let my, and I've said this, I would never let my daughter or son marry a Republican. I would disown my child if they married a Republican and people would you go, go, ah. would you go out. With, would you go out with a Republican? Well, that, that's the point. You know, you can't say I won't allow my daughter to marry a black man or a a Jew, but you can say I won't. And so all this hatred that we have has to go somewhere and it's gone into politics. It used to be. So I'm saying if you want to get rid of divisiveness in politics, bring back racism, sexism, homophobia and anti-Semitism and then. We'll get things done in Washington. Because we'll correctly place our hatred toward where it should be and the politicians can get along. It's actually a beautiful thing. It's it's part of evolution that we now hate people, not for the color of their skin or their their religion. We hate them for what they believe politically. That is that means we, we have evolved. The hatred has always been there. Now it's for different reasons. Now we hate each other because of our political beliefs. There's almost something beautiful about that. Isn't that better than hating somebody because they're a woman or they're gay? Um, it, it was a little bit different theory than I thought you were going to come up with, a little bit more creative. So I was bristling to argue uh, against a point that you didn't make. So what, what, what was the thought? Oh, you, oh, you no, thought no, I was going to no, say that the, now. this is better now. So you thought I, mean, I was going to uh, say that, of course, I, of course, fundamentally think what you're, you're, you're ostensibly arguing, if you take away the irony is of course, reprehensible, but, um, but with the irony accepted. So understanding that you don't really believe this because I think I might, well, I kind of do believe now. that the crazy <laughs> uncle, the crazy uncle at Thanksgiving <laughs> can no longer talk about Jews and black people and gays because, you know, his daughter brought one. So all he can do to get attention and to get 
is defend Trump. I, I'm sorry. I remember all in the family and Mike Stivick and Archie Bunker were constantly arguing and Archie was a full on bigot. Right. It didn't stall the arguments. OK, that's my theory. Go ahead. Oh, no, I thought you were going to make a totally different point, which was, again, you were I thought you were leaning into some point about rejecting or resenting political correctness. Well, that's folded into it. I, I think I think I think even going there is a trap. If people try to draw us into these culture war arguments, which I think are I, I, you know, I'm not going to doubt that people don't want to get into this, those arguments because they do. So obviously there's something to it. But I think for the left, you know, I, I think the thing is to be like, no, we stand for this. We stand for this. We stand for this. We stand for this. And we talk about things that will make people's lives better. You know, I mean, I'm more interested in the left reclaiming liberty than going back into the uh, politically correct wars. And so, yeah, my default position is I'm, I'm not an opponent of political correctness. I understand that, you know, language is this territory of contestation and battle, and I support people who challenge the way that it marginalizes people. And, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and you go ahead. Yeah. At the same time, though, I, 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 I still think we need to understand that identity politics is what, the, what critics throw at people who want to who want to argue for diversity, who want to argue for inclusion, who want to argue for more democracy, because that's what it is. It's not identity politics is really just saying, hey, you know, democracy is a good idea when we're all involved. Democracy is a good idea when you count, you know, the blacks and Latinos and the Asians. And, you know, underneath the Asian umbrella, there are Filipinos and Cambodians and Vietnamese and Chinese. And, you know, and, you know, uh, you know, there's all these things. And. Inclusion, right? Uh, I think that's what gets lost when people throw around identity politics as a big stick to say, "Ooh, bad identity politics." Oh, you're going to become, you're going to become the Balkans. Uh, you know, remember the term that they threw around, uh, Balkanization. We don't want the Balkanization of we we don't want the Balkanization of America, but we want we we want people who are different to be represented in our government mm-hmm. and in our and in our affairs, and we want. You know, this is an old phrase that people kick around. Uh, we want a government that looks like America. We want a, you know, we, we want a, a cabinet that looks like America. I don't know what that means anymore. Now, I mean, but we want we want at least one Asian who's more than just an Asian, you know, from the U.S. Right. trade, who's the trade rep. We want at least, you know, well, Becerra is good, although I my heart nearly sank when when Biden said, here's Mr. Bakaria. Uh, that did you see the press? Did he said that he said that? Yeah, yeah. He uh, at the press conference he says, "Now here's uh, Javier Bacare." Oh, excuse me, Becerra. I, I have it on tape. I'll send it yeah. to you. It's kind of- well, I suppose all I'm saying too is is how could anybody disagree with Emil? What Emil just said? But they you know? do. They do. <laughs> they do. Yeah, I'm baffled by it too. Still, and, and, and I agree. It's it is a yeah, identity politics is a negative term that's been used to shut that down. Yeah, it's it, it is the rhetorical uh, the it's the rhetorical criticism to say, hey, you boob, you know, what is this? You know, this identity talk, it's all BS. You know, we want this goes back to the merit. This goes back to the idea we want. 
want the best and brightest. No is kind of, you know, BS, right? We want to have inclusion. We, I mean, and look, and that's one of the things that Trump, didn't Trump has said the, that, that, that order about diversity training in, in the White House? Was that... Did that was that just an idea he was floating, or no? They wanted to get rid of it. He was going to stop. Yeah. So I mean, you know, that was uh, one of my big, uh, one big reasons I got speaking gigs in Washington. They had to have a diversity speaker to talk on an Asian American, uh, Asian Pacific Islander. Um, did you just mention U.S. Trade Rep? Was that name today? I think the U.S. Trade Rep was uh, was an Asian American. Oh, so it's not Jimmy Gomez. If I'm Jimmy didn't get that. I I I get her. I forget her name. I was just uh, scanning uh-huh. the papers, but I think she was named. So maybe, but I I I might have her in the wrong. Well, it's just a matter of whether we have we have uh, endless elections in my district again. Yeah, because <laughs> whenever somebody runs for the Congress, when there's an open election, it becomes a state rep who wins. Then we have to have a state rep election that goes all the way to the next general. Oh yeah. <laughs> all right. So well, I, I just know that um, I I don't see a whole lot of. I was hoping for different kind of Asians. Maybe we'll get some Asians in the court. Maybe we we'll get a, you know an Asian. Well, we're not going. Well, maybe Biden will get a chance to make a Supreme Court uh, appointee. Although. I know who's, Do you know who's, that there are no Protestants on the Supreme Court? They're either Jewish or Catholic. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, what yeah, about Breyer's Catholic? Breyer's Catholic? Yeah, uh, Jewish. Oh, Jewish. oh, sorry. He's from my he's from my high school. It was a conspiracy concocted at Ellis Island about 80, 90 years ago. So it, it, uh, it is pretty amazing. I'm dating myself, but that would have been about 100, 110 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Very you quick. Were wasps on the Supreme Court. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, we should start that. Yeah, you know, we should <laughs> campaign for it. I can see already the nice posters. Yeah. <laughs> Ellen has tested positive for COVID. They're shutting down production. But I'm sure she'll take care. Of, I'm sure she will take care of all her employees. I'm sure the Queen of Nice will make sure that if they shut down production, that Ellen will pay their health insurance. And here, Biden is, did did I share this one with Biden? Hang on, did I share the wrong one? Biden met with civil rights leaders and privately told them that progressives' hopes for executive actions are way beyond the bounds of his presidential authority. It's amazing. Yeah, this is something I've been in the middle of. There's this sort of debate going on below the surface about about what his capacity is for the student loan, whether that's really within his power and capacity to do that. And um, if it's not, it really is interesting that Jack Schumer sort of, uh, you know, threw him on the tracks. Well, some good news before we say goodbye. All right. Some good news. Do you eat at Chipotle? Uh, the last 10 months. Yeah. don't. They have a great E. coli dish, I think. <laughs> New York City Chipotle besieged by avocado hungry rats, employees say. This is according to NBC News. Uh, I, don't that, I don't know that avocado hungry rats is intimidating in the era of COVID. It's like, oh, that's quaint. 
Employees at an upper Manhattan Chipotle said they were overrun by rats that ate produce, bit them, and chewed through the restaurant's digital ordering system. (laughs) You mean I was ordering from rats? They chew on why it speaks. It speaks to what the tastiest part of Chipotle is, is the digital ordering system. The employees accused the chain of failing to act until a general manager was bitten (laughs) in late November. Chipotle says it takes employee and patron safety seriously and is working with the building's landlords to make fixes before reopening. Somebody's got it in for Chipotle because I actually crave chipotle and their their food is healthy and all they do is get bad publicity you can have a vegan meal email at chipotle i've been i've been a few sometimes i mean you know maybe a handful of times not not many because i prefer just to cook in and I, i don't go out much but i think somebody is going i think the cattle industry is going after chipotle because don't they have ethically raised meat Mm, I'm not sure. They do. I think they, I think they claim that. Yeah. I think Chipotle. I think somebody's go. I think people are going after. Hey, thank you so much. Alan Minsky is the executive director of Progressive Democrats of America, and Emil Guillermo is the host of the PETA podcast. People, we're watching the- after those Chipotle rats too. Yeah. To sure. I will eat at Chipotle. You can get a good vegan meal there. As long as they keep the rats out, it's purely. Somebody's going after Chipotle. I think the cattle industry. Just, so. just treat the rats humanely. That's all. Yeah. All no, right. No, no, that sticky stuff. Emil Thank you. I'll see you all next week. And don't forget New Year's Eve and Christmas Eve. We're here. I expect you. All. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah. This, this war on Hanukkah has to stop. And one way. By the way, you never hear of a menorah. Never hear of a menorah fire, Henry. Have you noticed that? Like every year, you hear about Christmas tree fires, right? From the lights, right? You're you're a brilliant man, Henry. Jews light what eight candles? You never hear a home in Brooklyn was burnt to the ground after a menorah fire. I mean, you never hear of a menorah fire. No, you just hear of burning bushes. That's all. Yes. COVID Town Square is December 12th, Saturday, 9.30 p.m. Eastern. Henry Huckamacki and the irritable immunologist will take your questions about the most important issue of our time. COVID. That's right. (laughs) I agree, David. That is what will be happening. Yeah. And. It's pay what you want, everybody. Why, why don't you tell everybody what what the tiers are? Sure. So uh, we've ditched the, the first couple of tiers on uh, the Eventbrite page. You, If you want to make a, a donation, you are able to donate any amount that you want. Uh, $1 will get you in, $5 will get you in. Obviously, the more, the better from my perspective, but we want to make sure that we can get everybody into there. So uh, if you have any interest in coming to the show, it's a pay-what-you-want entrance fee, although we do have some perks at the higher tiers. It's the same perks that we had before. $30, you get a funny credit at the end of the show. Which is great. $50, you get to join us for our next rehearsal session, which we had a few people 
uh, do this last one. That's the sausage fest, I believe. The sausage party, David. Sausage oh. party. You corrected me last time on that. This time it's my turn to correct you. Uh, We're showing how the sausage fun. gets made. Yes, and eaten, yes. and digested. That's right. And excreted. <laughs> that's and right. And how the fecal plumes are neutralized. That's, that's correct. That's right. So, uh, yeah, we had a couple people do that. That was a, a lot of fun. It's always fun having extra people in the rehearsals some good ideas come up from the other, the other people, uh, a hundred dollar tier. I don't remember exactly what was in there. Plumex was in there. No, no, no Plumex this time around. No Plumex this time. Okay. No Plumex this time. $250. You get a handmade knife from me. That'll look something like this. That is beautiful. Wow. That is amazing. In any case, all the proceeds yeah. go towards Henry's health insurance, his education. He is stuck in Michigan. He should be in Germany right now taking on Ebola and COVID. Germany's loss is our gain. Please, I don't ask you for much. Everybody gets a postcard if you show up. Hey, Henry, let me show you. David, if I if I may, uh, one quick thing first. So, folks, we saw that getting the word out on social media is effective. That's how we have next Thursday, we're going to have Michelle Shepard coming on to talk about MK Ultra and the excellent series that she did on it uh, for the CBC. And that was because we had multiple listeners tweeting directly at her on social media, mm-hmm. basically peer pressuring her into doing the show. And it was effective. We, we've got her. So let's take the lesson from that and seeing that when a few of you do take up the reins, uh, we do get things done. So if everybody could just, you know, take the Eventbrite link and send it to one or two people, let them know uh, the admission fee is whatever they feel like donating. They don't have to make a, a large donation, just anything that they want. It's going to be three hours of science, comedy and entertainment there's certainly a lot worse ways that people could could spend a uh, Saturday evening. Yeah. So, it, you know, like with me, just just <laughs> yeah, if you're listening, if you're in Zoom, if you're on YouTube, if you're listening to the podcast, find the Eventbrite page. David tweeted out. Today yeah, let me tell people, people go to DavidFeldmanShow.com, hit the pay-per-view button. It'll take you right to the Eventbrite page. And our pay what you want tier gives you access to the show, plus a limited edition COVID Town Squares postcard made by Frankie C. We're only making 100 of them, and they will be collector's items. It's a seasonal COVID Town Squares postcard. The $30 tier is our super generous tier, and you'll get the postcard plus a funny credit at the end of the show, which is up on YouTube and will live forever at $50 you get the sausage fest tier where you get the postcard the credit at the end of the show you know I'm, I got the credit of donkey fluffer and you get to attend our next rehearsal you get to see not only how the sausage is made you get to see how it's eaten digested and excreted and then the top tier ticket is Hank's shank you get the limited edition postcard the credit at the end of the show the sausage party <laughs> pronounced sausage did you know that henry i'll take your word for that one yeah it's a sausage party plus a handcrafted finnish style knife made by none other than henry hakamaki himself hakamaki himself and once again 
Visit DavidFeldmanShow.com. Click pay-per-view to purchase your tickets for COVID Town Squares, number six, this Saturday, December 12th at 9.30 p.m. Let's make this a success. Uh, And uh, speaking of which, COVID Confidential, I see Kathleen just wrote in the chat, COVID Confidential is the radio play that we've been making. Uh, You're going to see the debut of the new episode, and we have none other than the Reverend Barry W. Lynn taking a role in this week's play episode. So that's another little perk for anybody coming. You'll be able to see the debut of the new episode of COVID. I hear he's difficult to work with. Oh yeah. He's just the worst. Just the worst. He's a troublemaker. The the Reverend is excellent. Everybody loves Reverend Barry W. Lynn. That that includes me. And everybody loves Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner. They just bought a $30 million dollar billionaire's bunker property near Mar-a-Lago, Henry. I want to show you, you know, we have our own royalty, Ivanka and Jared, but Princess Kate and Prince William are picking up the slack because, you know, the Queen and Prince Philip, they're in their 90s, you know. Prince Philip is going to be 100. They can't go out and see the people. So Princess Kate and Prince William took this little train ride up to Scotland to visit Queen Elizabeth. What do you notice about this picture? Henry? Yeah, there seems to be uh, no masks in the picture. Well, they have is... a vaccine, so they don't need masks. Do yeah, they? that's that's true. And speaking of which, so I, I'm not going to say too much about COVID right now because we did talk almost two hours about it on Monday and we're going to be having a show on Saturday with a lot planned. So everybody, if you want. Uh, really deep dives into everything that's going on in COVID, make sure to come on Saturday. But this Pfizer vaccine that got its emergency use authorization in the UK just got the go-ahead from an advisory panel to the to the FDA today um, to go into emergency use uh, authorization here. The full FDA body still has to vote yes on it, but that'll happen anytime now. Once that advisory panel gave it the go ahead, it was just uh, inevitable. But yeah, they have a vaccine there. These individuals should not have been at the front of the line, though, you know, as you said. Well, but now here, Prince William, Princess Kate talking to a commoner, and the, the person I think below, I, I believe that's. Camilla wearing one of those funny hats with the horns on it. Nobody's wearing masks. Look at this. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you're right. And maybe they got the vaccine just because of, you know, their high birth. But well, he uh, had it according to their according to their uh, their plan of how they were going to distribute the vaccine. It should just at this point be frontline healthcare workers that are receiving it as well as the elderly. Prince William had it, but describe this picture for our listeners. Yes, they're standing in front of what looks like to be a uh, nursing home type facility. A bunch of old people sitting in the front. The workers, or at least the family members, the people behind the really old people are all wearing masks. But the, the old people? The old people aren't. Uh, the only the only hope that I have is that this is all old people that have gotten the vaccine, but I kind of doubt that that's the case. Hmm. And there's also the queen. Another, in, yes, that's the queen. And she's socially distinct. That that's the queen. Prince William and okay. Kate are visiting the queen, and she's, she looks a little funny in that picture. Yeah, but you know she's 
social distancing and emotionally distancing from them. There's the queen. No mask on the queen. No mask. Well, you know, David, we, we all have been saying for a long time by we all, I mean, us on the left, uh, we're anti-royalists. And it looks like they're just trying to get away with the monarchy on their own right now. Well, anyway, I like. And we're going to be talking with Grace next week about uh, the crown, which I know you're addicted to. I, I heard about it when she mentioned it the last time on but the you're show. you're addicted to the, the crown, I've heard right? about it. Dave, I, I, what is it? Is it a TV show? You don't watch The Crown? L- literally, the first time I ever heard about it was when Grace mentioned it, and that's the only thing I've ever heard about it. Let me ask you a personal question. That's one of my guilty pleasures. The Crown and Five State uh, Killing Is Spree. it a TV show, though? Yeah, it's great. It's great. Okay. I, I'll defend the royal family. You don't watch TV, right? No. Do you know that there are people, when they wake up in the morning, the first thing they do is turn on the TV? Sure. I mean, and I understand the allure of that. Uh, when I was a goes, kid, I used to do that. But like, I can go days without turning. The, I mean, I'm ashamed to say this, but like, I can go days. I don't even know how to turn on my TV. <laughs> you know, I probably struggled myself. Uh, pretty much the only thing I watch on TV is, is uh, football, or as we say, soccer in the U.S. Oh, and another death. Uh, there was another famous soccer player who died. Yeah, Paolo Rossi, who was the leading goal scorer and uh, the, the best player of the 1982 World Cup. He died at 64. Right. Italian, of course, one of my uh, favorite players then, therefore. Yeah, you know, I used to tell my kids that it's pronounced Italian. I know. Yeah, I've told you that. What are you reading? For uh, pleasure. Right now, what do you read for pleasure? Well, there's no time for pleasure. We've got a lot of That's reading. That's the name of my autobiography, right No Time for Pleasure. Yeah, so uh, right now I've got two books that I'm going through for guerrilla history. Just started both of them for upcoming episodes. If I say what they are, it might give away what the topics are, but I'll say it anyway. So we've got uh, Our History is the Future by Nick Estes is going to be on our uh, reading list for an upcoming episode, as well as uh, Greg Grandin's Empire's Workshop. Uh, we don't have Greg Grandin on. That's for the Alex Savinia episode, uh, but that is to more or less guide the conversation that we're going to be having with them. So what is your, what is your, what is your intellectual diet? What, what do you do to read right now? How, what is like a typical day when you, when you're not carving knives and committing crimes in the woods? What, what do you, what do you, what is your discipline when it comes to reading? You know, when I get time, I, I read. Uh, unfortunately, there's not a lot of time these days uh, other than reading papers on COVID. That's that's really the bulk of my time at this point is papers about COVID and other stuff around the house, you know, cooking and, and whatnot. But when I find time, whether it's early in the morning or late at night, I, I read a little bit here and there. So what, what, like, what do you, do you read? On, you don't read on a Kindle. Do you read actual books? I read actual books if I have them. Otherwise, I read ebooks. I'm terrible with ebooks, but with the amount of things that I'm reading right now, it's and I just don't have the money to buy the physical copies of all the books. So uh, I, I'm having to read a lot of ebooks for for guerrilla history and, and for from the other library things. 
Yeah, I'm not going into the library. No, but right you, now. I, but you can take books out. Yeah, you can, but uh, when possible, I do try to patronize the independent publishers. So if it's a book from like a mainstream publisher, Penguin Random House. When we say patronize, uh, you mean talk down to them, be condescending? No, uh, no. But if it's from like a you know a major publisher, I'll generally rent the book. Uh, from a library or something like that. But if it's from an independent publisher, Verso, Haymarket, Pluto Press, uh, you know, Monthly Review Press, one, one of those independent publishers, I generally at least try to get the ebook because those independent publishers really are giving voice to a lot of authors that otherwise wouldn't get their voice out there, a lot of stories that wouldn't have uh, any any place in the mainstream public consciousness. And the pandemic is hitting them particularly hard because books are something that is a leisure activity for most people. And with people hurting so, so badly economically, that the amount of money that they have to spend on leisure activities like reading is really reduced. And those independent publishers generally are operating on really tight margins as it is. I know Verso, uh, for example, it, they, their margins are super thin. If you look at the prices that they sell books for, it, it's obscene how cheap you can get really excellent books from. from you, you, too, so. you probably don't know who Steve Allen was. He was a com comedian, TV host, and public intellectual. Very prolific. And, you know, I quit drinking. And one of the things that helped me quit drinking was something he said. He said, I'm always amazed that people have $25 for a great bottle of wine, but never have the money for a hardback, hardcover book. People always have the money for something that rots their brain, but they always find they can't, you know. And, no, I agree with that entirely, David. Yeah. I, I mean, it, I don't drink, so I guess all of my money goes into the books then rather than into, you know, your bottle of wine. But and, and that's kind of how I you're gave right, up. That those, those transient uh, pleasures that, you know, they expire once you use them rather than something that kind of lingers with you, whether it's the physical copy of the book or just the knowledge that it imparts, those things you know, people tend to, to second think, uh, second guess whether or not they should be able to uh, afford that at the time. Whereas, like I said, those transient things, I think people don't put much of a second thought into it. That's one but of the I'm ways I quit in that. Yeah, I really I, not. One of the ways I quit drinking and, and smoking dope was <clears throat> by reading. I, and I just said that I'll, instead of buying liquor, I'll buy a book. Then I started going to the library and I would come home with like 10 books and I would pile them in front of me. And I, I thought, all right, I'll I, instead of spending four hours getting shit faced, I'll just take a book, skim it. When I get bored, I'll move on to the next book. And <clears throat> it's uh, if you have a low attention span. Putting a stack of books in front of you and some magazines or a, a, an ebook is, I, I think you need a large, I think you need a bigger extent, uh, uh, attention span to watch television. 
Yeah, you know, there's times where I feel like I have a, a large attention span, in which case I'll sit down with one of the books that I have to, you know, try to power through. Uh, if my attention span feels like it's flagging at that point in the day, or I just want, you know, a quick hit of something, I'll generally grab like a cookbook or something like that. I've got probably 15 cookbooks on the other side of my room here that, you know, I'll just skim through every once in a while, see some recipes that I want to make uh, in the upcoming days. But yeah, you know. What do you cook? everything uh my thing that i cook probably most frequently is uh indian cuisine and more frequently specifically north indian cuisine um as well as yeah bengali food uh, but i cook you know italian finnish foods my from my heritage uh east african food as well as west african food both excellent i don't cook a lot of latin american food if i'm being quite honest but a lot of other, a lot of other things, a lot of Russian food. And do you want to travel around the world? Is that your, when things get better or? No, not really. You don't want to see the world? Not, not, I'm not a big traveling. Not what, what's, what's, what would be your, your, and then we'll, I'll let you go. Uh, what would be a perfect day for you? In terms of not being around other people, I'm talking about a perfect day by yourself. Like, you oh know. yeah, my, well, my perfect days would be by myself, David. <laughs> right. Just in the woods with a book. That's about it. Nice little fire, a little bit of tea going over it. What more could you want? I agree with you. Well, maybe the woods and the tea, the outdoors. I think just a couch. You know, I got my shelter out in the woods. It's real comfy out there. Yeah. Just a light, some something to read. Yeah. Well, you're you're amazing. You really are. I, do I, don't, I don't even know how I met you. I don't even. I can't even. Re- I can't even remember how I met Irritable. I think oh, it has I can something. Tell you how to- I met you? <laughs> oh, you you wrote to me. I did. I gave you a list of about forty guests you should bring on, and I brought you, brought you on, on instead. Doctor Fraud. Uh, yeah, but I, uh, I said, why don't I have you on instead? Well, you did that because I came on at office hours. I showed my my sister's dog to Dr. Jen uh, and then, you know, mentioned that I was an Ebola researcher. And then you said, well, you should come on with the irritable immunologist. And and the rest is history. The irritable immunologist wrote to me and said, why don't you have actual experts on COVID? And I said, what about you? Because that's not what I had. But he turned out to be absolutely like a comedy i'm not making this up no the people i, I, I he's a comedy you, genius I, you should buy the 50 dollar ticket to the show just so that you can sit in the rehearsals with irritable he's an absolute riot he's a i mean a right a comedy yeah, no, genius. he's he's one of the funniest people i've ever met but he's also like one of the smartest people i've <laughs> ever met it's it's really unfair uh you know some people just tend to seem to have it all. But he like he just materialized out of nowhere. It's incredible. Yeah, he, 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 he uh, emailed into you because you were getting your COVID advice from Howie Klein. Yeah. And, uh, you know, <laughs> we're, we're, you know, reciting it as if it was gospel. I like Howie Klein a lot. But, yeah, there are, are some things that Howie Klein is not exactly the authority on. And, and COVID irritable's uh expertise is a little bit a little bit higher in in that field there are when uh, i'll wrap it up it 
it is absolutely sometimes with office hours because it slows down for me. It's Friday night and I start to meet the people who show up and then I go to bed and I cannot fucking believe how smart and accomplished everybody is who show. I mean, it's just it. it well, it's teachers. It's mostly the teachers who are. Uh, it's incredible. Well, I, everybody that comes is intelligent. I mean, they have to be able to endure uh, eight hours of podcasts twice a week. And I think that just that endurance shows some sort of intellectual capacity. But the amount of talent that we have, uh, in addition to the, the intellect of the people that show up to office hours, we have people making furniture during office hours. We have people, uh, you know, making cabinets. We have people that are, you know, teachers. We have people playing instruments in the background. There was one. There was one great. office hours where Captain Cully was flying a plane over <laughs> pilots uh, flying <laughs> over Alaska in a, his private plane, not a commercial plane. And then we went to China. We walked, uh, Mr. Ulrich from Global Chinese Television News was walking the streets of Beijing and Captain Spaulding. What happened to him? I don't know. I wish he came back. I, that was that was the best. He would just sleep. We would watch him sleep. He's All so right. Peaceful. I have to go to bed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you also have to tweet out the Eventbrite information so that people can yes. share it easily on social media. Yes. Andy Brown just said, what happened to Master? What did happen to Master Connor? Yeah. that. What happened to Master Connor? We had, you know, Kung Fu Master. Uh, Officer, so, it hasn't even been a year that we've done this. Uh, no, I think you started at the beginning of April or so. Yeah. For uh, my life, it's completely changed my life. I, I, I mean... There, there are people who I like, I feel like I've known you my whole life. For you, it probably feels like it, but you know, Lane. <laughs> Pretty much I mean, is, David. Uh, it's unbelievable. Yeah. It really is. Hey, office hours, Friday nights at 9 p.m. You should convince Ralph to come sometime. I think that he would be, you know, shocked by the talent and then shocked that you're I, not utilizing Well, the, I, the closest I get to Ralph is Mark Green. We've been yeah. having him. I'm trying to get Mark Green to keep coming back on Mondays to be a regular because Mark Green, uh, his resume is phenomenal. And he he is Ralph's biggest fan. And yes. Oh, I, I, I might have him, uh, you know, I might give him a run for his money. I, I was I played Ralph in a eighth grade presidential debate. Uh, it was supposed to be, okay, this is a story just for the people that have already sat through the entire episode. Eighth grade, it was 2008. Uh, so it was 2008 election season. And we were going to be having mock elections in my uh, history and current events class. And so the teacher asked the students who wanted to volunteer to play Obama, who wanted to play Biden, who wanted to play McCain, who wanted to play Palin. Of course, I was the first person to raise my hand. I said, I'm, I'm, I'm Ralph Nader. He's running as an independent this year. And, uh, you know, I drafted in somebody else to play his vice presidential candidate who in 2008, I believe was Matt Gonzalez. Um, wow. 
and yeah, we, we won the debate and won the mock election. So I, I've been a big fan of Ralph for since I was probably 12 or something like that. You should uh, work for public citizen that, you know, one of the things you might want to consider is not going back to Germany, go to Washington, <laughs> D.C. and running I for office to Washington, D.C. My mom would kill me before I got out of the house. You should run for office. Uh, oh, I, there's not a chance I would get elected in this congressional district. This is a Trump plus 30 congressional district. Well, we'll bring in our Hollywood bigwigs. We'll bring in <laughs> Lena Dunham they, and Rob Reiner. Up here, David. We've huh? got militias up here. They, they'd get shot at and run out of town. Deborah Messing and George Clooney. They're going to listen. They're going to listen. All right, folks, I don't ask you for much. I really don't. This Saturday night, please come to COVID Town Square's number six. It's a live Zoom event. And I promise, here's my guarantee. Pay what you want. Everybody gets a postcard. We already went over the tiers. If you don't come away from COVID Town Square's number six feeling educated and entertained and safer, I'll give you your money back. That's my that's the Feldman guarantee. I'll give you your money back if you don't think it was worth your time and energy. Everybody gets a gift. Pay what you want. And this is the you know, I'm being told this vaccine is the moonshot. We're going to learn more about these vaccines. So please go to David Feldman dot com. Hit the pay-per-view and uh buy a ticket pay what you want thank you henry bring friends huh? bring friends bring friends bring to some Saturday. friends pay what you want you can pay a dollar more than that would be great but you know let's fill up the room and get as many people to uh you know see the show as possible it's right. going to be a fun one thank you and subscribe to henry's newsletter by going to patreon.com forward slash huck not hawk Huck, 1995. Hey, thank you, Henry. It's yeah, good to no talk. I, you know, it's good to find out a little bit about you. Not just no, what you know. You know. That, that was what just... Henry asks was originally, or ha- ask Henry, but, uh, you know, I thought that bringing on some guests would be much more interesting. And uh, I, Well, I think ask is, Henry, but... maybe, you know, let's, let's talk. We'll talk. We'll talk. Do we have Dan Frankenberger here? Thank you, Henry. You're you're Take just care, you're a gift to the universe. You really are. I wish I ran show business. I would. Um, Dan Frankenberger, are you here? Okay, he drifted off. As have I. I don't know if you've noticed. <laughs> I've had no sleep. I've had no sleep. Um, okay, there are still some good people in this world. I just want you to know that. All right. Uh, James, raise, you have a question for Henry, James. There you go. James, you have your hand raised. Okay. Let's. Ra- How great was Robert Smigel and Rudy Giuliani today? Dave Cyrus. How great was that? <clears throat> All right. We're going to wrap it up. Thank you, everybody, for coming to the Zoom room. And if you would like to attend a live taping, go to davidfeldmanshow.com. Hit attend a live taping. 
and you'll sign up. We have a, a newsletter, a new newsletter that's fantastic. It's the reading list that I send to the guests and myself. It's what we read to produce this show. So please go to davidfeldmanshow.com and sign up for the newsletter. And everybody who attends the Zoom show gets a link to the newsletter. It's just a, a really easily digestible list of what we read to produce this show. I want to thank all our guests today, Robert Smigel, Martha Previtt, who was Melania, Jim Earl. I want to thank Henry Huckamacki. I have to look at the list. It's been, I, I've had no sleep. So let me check the list. Does anybody remember who we had on the show today? Hang on. I'm sorry. I have to wrap this up. I think Dan is busy preparing the, the show for Saturday. So. Dan's internet died, which oh. is why he's not here. Okay. Uh, I want to thank America's mayor, Rudy Giuliani, for being here. Oh, hang on. Hang on for one second. Where are you? Let me do this right. I want to thank America's mayor, Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't want to do that. I'm sorry. And uh, Melania Trump. Okay. Uh, Martha Previtt, Jim Earl, Henry Huckamacki, and of course, Professor Alex Avina. Pick up his book, Specters of Revolution, Peasant Guerrillas in the Cold War, Mexican Countryside. Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, animal behaviorist and author of Raised by Animals. Dr. Philip Hershenfeld and his son, Ethan, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, Dave Cyrus, of course, immunobiologist, Henry Huckamacki, Bert Ross, Emil Guillermo, host of the PETA podcast, and Alan Minsky, executive director of Progressive Democrats of America. Go to davidfeldmanshow.com right now and hit the pay-per-view button and please pay what you want buy a ticket for saturday nights covid town squares with the irritable immunologist i promise you you'll have a great time i'm gonna say goodbye to everybody listening to this as a podcast and on youtube and the conversation in the zoom room continues remember to stay strong and protect the weak. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy too. you tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show To get your ears on right, buckle in real tight He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way
It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. So get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Oh, I want to play the Holly Jolly Christmas thing. So we have to leave YouTube, but I want to play it for the podcast. Where is it? Hang on for one second. Where is my Holly Jolly Christmas that Lance Jeffries did? Oh, come on, Feldman. Is this it? Yeah. Okay, good. All right. We're going to say goodbye to... The YouTube audience, we can't play this on YouTube because we'll get dinged, but our podcast listeners get to hear the COVID players. Brilliant, brilliant song. Uh, it's a takeoff on uh, Holly Jolly Christmas recorded by Burl Ives, who was a piece of shit and named names and almost sent Pete Seeger to uh, prison for 10 years. Okay, thank you to... Everybody on YouTube, bye-bye. And now that we're no longer on YouTube, I think, yes. Okay, this is the uh, COVID players. I love this. You drown in truth decay. Listen to him muse and get the blues in his jolly, bitter way. On this David Feldman Christmas, the numbers continue to spike. Take a break from the gloom and jump on Zoom and plan a general strike. With eight hour podcasts, our families have written us off. But it's better than leaving the house To risk catching a cough Have a COVID player's Christmas Before the states go down in flames We've got a lot of singers and one or two ringers And none of us have ever named names That's Lance Jeffries, Kathleen Ash, and Karen Emerson. That's the COVID players. And never forget, Burl Ives named names. <laughs>